Asatoma Satgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Mritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Sarvesham Svastir Bhavatu Sarvesham Shantir Bhavatu Sarvesham Mangalam Bhavatu Sarvesham Purnyam Bhavatu Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death unto immortality. May all beings know happiness. May all beings know peace. May all beings know success. May all beings know completion. May all beings be free of suffering and from the causes of suffering. And may all beings be protected from harm from within and without. May all our efforts contribute to this. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Namaste Namaskaram one and all. In your own time, blink your eyes open and gently lift the chin. And we'll join each other now here in this space, connecting soul to soul as opposed to roll to roll. It is with reverence and such humility that I receive you all today. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. It's a joy to come together, Om. And uh, we've got an exciting evening ahead. I, I'm sure some of you know that in America, it's quite common. Yes, uh, we've, new moon. We've got an exciting evening ahead. It's quite common in America, um, when you go to an Indian restaurant, that you'll see a buffet. You know, I don't know if you've noticed that, but most Indian restaurants in America, it's customary to do a lunchtime buffet. <laughs> Welcome, Jana. And you must ask, why do you think that is? You know, why is it that Indian restaurants continuously have buffets? Um, and a big part of that is because if they didn't have buffets, you wouldn't really know what to order. You can imagine for a lot of people, their first time at an Indian restaurant, they're looking at the menu and they're like, what is this Saag Paneer? What is this Rooney Paneer? Rogan Josh? It's all very uh, intimidating and confusing. <laughs> so there's nothing better than 
actually seeing the food that you intend to eat. So having a buffet frees you from the difficulty of navigating a complex menu. And you can see with your eyes, you can see, oh, that looks pretty good. And, and before you know it, you've stacked your plate full of colorful, delectable goods. You allow your stomach to guide you, your eyes to guide you. And generally speaking, the meal tends to be quite good. And you go home rather satisfied. Similarly, tonight's lecture will be like that. It will be a philosophical buffet of ideas, so to speak. Some of these ideas will appeal to you, some of them won't. Um, and that's the joy of it. You know, I intend to provide you with as broad an overview as possible while still getting into each of these philosophies as much as possible. And essentially, we're going to be tracking the history of ideas. That is the way ideas emerged and have developed throughout the years. So it's going to be a little bit of a historical survey today, the history of yoga. But in history, in the study of history, um, historians have often been criticized for focusing too much on extraordinary people. So we have a lot of historical sources on kings and queens and extraordinary individuals, but not a lot on the everyday man, woman, and person. You know, so history as a study has often been criticized for not being inclusive enough. We don't really know that much, hi Emily, about what life was like for the everyday person. So in today's discussion, we're not so much focusing on the history of people and events as much as we are on the ideas that emerge from those people and from those events. So yes, we will be talking about extraordinary individuals like the Shakyamuni Buddha of 6th century BCE. We'll talk about Shankaracharya and Mahavira who started the Jain movement. Um, but we're also going to talk about events like the invasion of the Mughals in the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, but really, we're talking about those events only with regards to how they affected the ideas of that time period. You know, so that's one thing to note. Secondly, the question is, why focus on ideas? Ultimately, because ideas are what live on. You know, while the concept of India as a nation changes throughout the ages, you know, what it means to be Bharata or Aryavarta, the, the realm of the Aryans, what it means to be Indian will always change. Um, it means very, it means something very different now than it did many years ago. And it's probably going to mean something very different in the years to come. So while India arises and disappears, much like every sensation arises and disappears in the field of your awareness, um, the ideas tend to persist because the ideas are about the awareness itself, uh, most of the time. So when we talk about these ideas, you might ask, what's it to me? Why does it matter to me um, to learn about these ideas? Well, for three reasons. One, because they're friggin' cool. You know, you'll hear a lot of cool stories, exciting stories. So just on an aesthetic, artistic, and cultural level, they're very enticing and interesting. And so if nothing else, um, just for a trivial fun, they can be fun. But deeper than that, uh, because the ideas pertain directly to the deepest questions of life. Now, what is it to be human? What is it to be embodied? Uh, what is a body? And what happens when this body dies? Uh, what is happiness? And how can we go about obtaining it? Is there such a thing as stable, everlasting happiness? Um, or are we doomed to suffer pleasure and pain in an inevitable cycle of change? Uh, essentially, what does it mean to be alive? 
What's the purpose of life? These ideas pertain directly to those questions. That's why they're important ideas, you know. Um, and thirdly, uh, they are uh, in, uh, in your care now. You know, so these ideas have been entrusted to you or given to you by numerous sages, saints and mystics, yogis, uh, pundits who have come to the West from South Asia throughout the ages to share some of these ideas so that they may be a common treasure for all. Um, so we can think back to Swami Vivekananda, who in 1896 gave a fine speech at the uh, Parliament of World Religions. And this was the first statement of South Asian philosophy in the West, except for maybe Alexander the Great's interaction with some of the yogis, you know, back in the day. This was the first, let's say, formal statement, the formal address of South Asian philosophy to the West, delivered through the thunderous, thunderous voice of India's foremost ambassador. And the first line that we hear from South Asian philosophy here in the West, the first statement um, ever made was, my sisters and brothers of America. He didn't really get past that line because there was thunderous applause and everybody stood up and they were so excited. uh, Because unlike many of the speakers that came before Swami Vivekananda, this speaker spoke directly to the audience. You know, he hadn't prepared a speech. Um, no formalities, no, oh, thank you, Chicago, Parliament of World Religions. There's no, there was no um, a preamble. He just came right to the point and said, I love you. You're all part of my family. You know, and they felt that vibration. When Paramahansa Yogananda came a little later, he would say something similar. The message of yoga would encircle the globe and create a brotherhood and sisterhood, um, a family of humanity. You know, and sitting here today with all of you is truly a testament to that. And people from all over and we've all come together um, to celebrate something, you know, and, and, and I want to zero in as to what exactly it is that we're celebrating. And ultimately, I want to say we're celebrating a feeling. We're celebrating a vibration that has nothing to do at all with the ideas, uh, language or metaphors that we have used throughout the ages to describe it. You know, so the vibration goes way beyond any of the stories I'm going to tell you about today. It goes way beyond any of the schools of philosophy because they will all be forgotten. You know, it's inevitable. Some of them are as old as 9,000 years uh, by some liberal estimates and by conservative estimates, 5,000 years. But they will go. You know, India will disappear. Uh, things come and things go, but these ideas, they will persist. They will be taken up again by some other culture, by some other peoples. They will be expressed differently, perhaps, with different mythologies. But they will almost always point to the same thing. And that thing is a felt experience. So as we go on our tour today, uh, remember that each of these ideas are pointing to something. As the Shakyamuni Buddha famously put it, we must not confuse the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. And there's also a Sufi proverb, do not confuse the reflection with the moon in the pond with the moon itself. You know, so ultimately we're, we're into the moon. It's a new moon, so this uh, metaphor might be a little off the mark. <laughs> uh, but this feeling, it's something that anybody can feel anywhere. So the reason these ideas persist 
Uh, and, and there might be several. Some scholars will say it's because of the traditional rigor or the conservatism of Indian society. Uh, the memory of the Indian youth, because we memorize these texts and it's an oral tradition. Scholars will give you various reasons for why these ideas have persisted. Why it is we are talking about them today, 9,000 years later. Um, but I, I'd like to just humbly propose that the reason these ideas exist the reason they have persisted is because you've all felt something. <laughs> whether it was a, in a New York yoga studio lying in Shavasana at the end of the day, whether it was in a TikTok, whether it was in a sentence in a book, whether it was an image that you saw while walking down the street one day of a meditating Buddha or Shiva or something, something stuck. And what happened was you experienced something. You experienced a feeling, a vibration, and it was so authentic, so real, so legit um, that it drew you in. And here we all find ourselves. We're all coming to this, um, a different way. You know, some of us came through postural yoga and we were so surprised when we found that there was a lot more to this than just poses, that poses had very little to do with yoga. And we started to read Patanjali and then we realized, oh my God, even that Patanjali's Yoga Sutra was only one grain of sand in the beach of South Asian philosophy. And then we realized there was more and there was more and, and, and here we are. And some of us are, are pundits and we've been studying this for a really long time. We've read all the texts and we're veterans of this South Asian philosophy. And yet we know that there's still more to discover. We know that perhaps we haven't turned the ideas into a lived experience. We feel somewhere deep inside that there is a gap between our knowledge and uh, experience. We haven't yet maybe digested some of the ideas. You know, and some of us don't know how we got here. We're complete beginners and, and, and these terms are going to sound strange and alien uh, and, and hopefully we can unpack them together. Okay, so let's go on this journey. Before we do that, two disclaimers. The first is, um, I'll give you a metaphor. It's from Paramahansa Ramakrishna and he once said, religion is like this or at least spirituality is like this. There is a mountain of sugar. One day, an ant approached the mountain of sugar, picked up a little grain of sugar, turned around and walked away. It looked over its shoulder and said, tomorrow I'll come back and take the whole mountain. I'll bring the rest of the mountain with me. <laughs> what hubris, right? It's very unlikely that this ant is going to carry away any more than a single grain, perhaps two if it's lucky. In the course of its lifetime, it might only be able to pick up one grain of sugar from that sugar mountain. Now, Ramakrishna's metaphor is pointing out the ineffable nature of the divine, that the vibration we're talking about is so profound that it is inexhaustible in terms of expression. You know, you can say so much about it. Uh, Christianity is one grain of sand. Islam is another grain of sand. Hinduism is a grain of sand. Jainism, Buddhism, they're all grains of sand, all of them pointing at this one thing. Industriously, we taste the sugar, uh, but it would be very foolish to taste a grain of sugar uh, and say we've, we, we, we know the whole mountain. And yet, and yet the taste of your grain is very much like the taste of all the other grains in that mountain. So do you notice that while any one way of speaking of this mountain is incomplete, you know, every little part is only a part and not the whole, yet through that part you glimpse the whole. And so Paramahansa Ramakrishna also said, many paths, one truth. 
He, of course, was citing or referencing the Rig Veda, one of the oldest living texts of our human existence here. And in the Rig Veda, there is a beautiful line. And that line is, Ekam Sat, truth is one. Vipra Bahuda Vadanti, though sages talk about it differently. You know, so truth is one, though it can be spoken of in many ways. Many, many years later, a mystic, a healer in the Levant would say something similar. He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I know the truth or I have the truth. He would say, I am the truth. And not only would he say that, he would later say, according to some gentleman named John, he would say, these and even greater works shall ye do. For now, I'm going back home. I'm Audi 5 Thou, and I leave it to you. You know? Um, and this healer, Jesus, the Christ, and many years after him, a gentleman named Paul, a Jew living in Rome, would have powerful visions of this healer. This healer appeared to Paul as Ben Kenobi appears to Luke Skywalker in, in The Empire Strikes Back. And this healer would say to Paul that you have a mission. You must teach this liberal philosophy all over the world. You must bring everyone into one family of truth, not a truth of dogma or belief, but a truth of experience. And so Paul, this gentleman, set out. He sailed the seven seas like Sinbad, you know, spreading these truths. And he would say, as you will read in his letters, um, ye sons of God, you know, ye sons and daughters of Mary, he would say, uh, plural. So ultimately, uh, we're gathered here today to celebrate a vibration and the idea that this vibration can be expressed millions of different ways. And today, I'll try to express them many different ways. All right. The second disclaimer is that uh, talking about it is not enough. Uh, Paramahansa Ramakrishna produced a beautiful disciple, one of the figures you will meet today, known as Swami Vivekananda, who we introduced already. And he said, if there is a God, I must see him. If there is a truth, I must realize it. So another thing that we take away from South Asian philosophy is that mere belief will not do. Mere dogma will not do. Even the faith-based parts of this philosophy, like Vaishnavism and dualism, will say, no, it's not enough to just believe. That faith must take you to experience. Religion is realization, as Vivekananda said. So it's not enough that I give you philosophies. I must also provide practical means that you can use to verify the truths of these philosophies for yourself. You know, so practice, practice above all. And today we'll be talking about various kinds of practice in the hope that you will find one that appeals to you. So in terms of a path, I've often been asked on TikTok and I've often been asked in other places, what path should I take? Here again, we will cite Swami Vivekananda, whether by philosophical inquiry, jnana yoga, whether by devotion, bhakti yoga, whether by selfless service, karma yoga, whether by psychic control, raja yoga, by any of these or by any combination of these, become free. Do you see? So don't worry about committing to a path. Feel free to be syncretic, to mix and match. Uh, you have been given the license not only to practice, but to practice eclectically. Okay, 
The next disclaimer is that please feel free at any point in today's discussion uh, to ask a question, to put it in the chat, or, or unmute and say, that doesn't quite sound right, Nish. Because ultimately, for something to be true, it must be true for you. If I say anything that does not check out in your own reasoning, if it doesn't match your own experience of life, call me out on it. Uh, this is, after all, Indian philosophy, and Indian philosophy thrives on debate. It thrives on, on a rigorous dialectic. You know, the very word Upanishad implies a student and a teacher fighting it out to arrive at truth. Okay, and my final disclaimer before we start is uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, thank you for coming on Saturday. Uh, thank you for supporting our Make Art from India for India effort. On Saturday, we had an art show, and I'm so excited to tell you that we raised um, $6,000 that day. You know, that afternoon, it was so exciting, and thank you all for coming and supporting that. Um, thank you for being there and celebrating, because as you know, it's not just about uh, raising material funds. Yes, that's part of it, uh, but it's also about cultivating a feeling, a vibration, and sending that over to India. So right now, there are Tibetan monks who are chanting Om Mane Padme Hum up in the Himalayas, you know, and they've been chanting it for centuries out of the belief that they will send that vibration out from the mountains to englobe the world in a peaceful feeling. And so you might imagine that as you sit in your meditation, every time you feel a meditative absorption, you can thank those Tibetan monks. They are prayer are flapping in the breeze, sending vibration out into the world. Every time you feel happy and peaceful, it probably has to do with someone else feeling happy and peaceful. So the final disclaimer I want to make is, if you feel compelled to donate fiscally, that's very welcome. Any way you'd like to do so is welcome. If you feel compelled to leave for India and do some work there, that's great. But know that those aren't the only ways to help. By simply feeling good, by sitting where you are and rejoicing, by meditating, this too is a form of hell. So let us say that we are all now enmeshed. We're enmeshed in a quantum web, if you will. We're enmeshed in a field of vibration. And every time we feel good, it contributes to the overall goodness everywhere else. So what we do tonight, I believe with every fiber of my being, God willing, will resonate everywhere else in the world, you know. So I intend to hold the highest possible vibration for the longest amount of time, hoping that that will do something. Okay, so um, that being said, if you feel at any point in tonight's conversation that you feel like, oh, I want to uh, participate in India's COVID relief effort, there are many ways that you can do this. So I'm going to put in the chat some of those ways. You can, of course, Venmo at Yoga World Heart. Um, any contribution. Uh, Yoga World Heart is the studio that I teach at, and uh, we're sending all of our income from this conversation and from the Make Art for India event to charities. And we're distributing it to several charities, or you yourself can send directly to those charities. Some that I recommend are the GiveIndia.org or, or Give India Fund and Feeding India. Uh, there's also Yoga Gives Back. And these are all charities that we love, and you're welcome to send some money to them. 
Also, uh, if you don't want to send any money to the studio, if you don't feel like sending any money to those two or three charities, you can, of course, send money uh, to, to me. Thank you for this. That's my Venmo. And anything that you send me tonight uh, will go to Give India or to Feeding India. So these are ways that you can fiscally contribute. But please remember, that's not the only thing that we can do. And if you fiscally contribute, uh, but you feel bad, it's better that you didn't give that money, actually, honestly. You know, feel joy. And that's what matters, you know. So when someone gets a respirator because of our efforts tonight, you know, when, when, when someone makes it through the night because of what we're doing, um, it won't just be because of the respirator, you know. It will be because we are flooding the astral vicinity. We are vibrating the quantum web with joy, with goodness, with celebration. So I cannot thank you enough for coming here and celebrating with me. This little boy is elated, is elated beyond any words he has to describe it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's start. <sighs> So we're going to start, um, let's take the conservative estimate, 3,800 BC India. Yes, Ryan, so glad you're here. Some of you have been here for years now. Some of you I've known for years and some of you I'm just starting to meet. And yet it feels like we've known each other forever. Destiny, I met Destiny last week uh, and it still feels like we've known each other for many lives now. So we're all amongst family. Please feel free. We are recording, so note that. But please feel free to share, you know. Feel free to be vulnerable uh, because you're in a community of yogis, spiritual practitioners of many different faiths. Um, and we're all here to celebrate the oneness that all of those faiths point to. Okay, so we'll start 3,800 BCE India. Some estimates place this at 7,000 BCE India. Um, but this is generally our point of departure for conversations about South Asian philosophy. So we call this Vedic India. There was a civilization that thrived in a region that is today Pakistan. And this is known as the Indus Sarasvati Valley. That's what the anthropologists are calling it now. Um, because it references a river known as the Sarasvati River that used to flow in this region, but today has dried up. It's also the name of the of a goddess, one of the goddesses, one of the many goddesses we'll be encountering tonight in our tour. Oh, keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. Uh, just kidding. Feel free to jump out of the vehicle and run around. <laughs> uh, in this safari, the lions hopefully won't eat you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, the Sarasvati Valley features the intersections of three rivers. Yes, questions about speculative history are fair game. Everything is fair game tonight. Don't even worry about it. So, uh, the Indus Sarasvati Valley, named after this river that has now dried up, is really a valley, an intersection of three rivers. You know, there is the Yamuna, there is the Ganga, and there is the Sarasvati river and they all meet in this valley and two important cities thrived in this region the Mohenjo-daro city and Harappa these are two cities 
Now, the Vedic India, um, before these cities even emerged, uh, was a pastoral and nomadic community that first conceptualized God as various natural forces, which of course they personified, much like any early culture, any early pastoral culture, they personified these forces as gods and goddesses. They called them devas and devis. So deva literally means the shining one. You know, interesting word, the shining one. We might see today why that word is so special. So devas and devis uh, first were about natural forces. So there was Vayu, which was the deva responsible for the wind. There was Agni, the deva responsible for fire. There was Varuna, the mysterious sea god. But of all these devas and devis, the most important ones were Indra and Agni. Now Indra is a lightning god. And notice many early cultures start with some kind of virile, strongman Zeus figure. You know, Baal, or Marduk, or Mitra. This was India's Zeus figure. He was a lightning god, Indra. Very virile, very strong, and much like Zeus, he was the king of the gods. You know. Now, it's important to remember that these gods, Indra, Varuna, Agni, they weren't exactly beings as much as they were offices. So dig that. These were uh, titles given to beings, uh, but the name Indra isn't a reference to a being as much as it's a reference to an office. This is kind of a trippy idea, but generally the belief is the Indra that we have now is very different from the being of Indra back then. The office has been vacated and other souls have been filling it. Isn't that strange? So it's almost like souls graduate to higher high, uh, positions. Um, and it's kind of like we live in a hierarchy of spiritual offices. And the highest offices are the Vedic gods. The second thing to remember is that the Vedic times do not feature idols of those gods. So there was no image of Indra. There was no image of Agni. There was no image of Vayu. Why would you need one? Vayu is the wind. You know, Agni was the fire. Um, and there were no idols. There were no stone statues. So if you go to a Hindu temple now, you'll see bronze sculptures. You'll see beautiful reliefs. Um, and, and you might in your mind be seeing the figure Shiva or the figure Vishnu. Those don't show up until much later. So all the idea of Vishnu, Shiva, banish it from your mind now. It don't exist in Vedic India. The only iconography we get from this time is a fire pit. Remember, this is a nomadic pastoral people. So they're moving around a lot. Uh, and so the only thing they have time for is to create a little pit in the ground in which they will light a fire, you know. Uh, and the ceremony they did around the fire is known as the yagna. So that's the name of the ceremony, yagna, sometimes spelled like this. Oh, sorry, spelled like this, yagna. When you see a J and an N in Sanskrit, it's a Gya, like Gyana, you know, or, or Gnosis. So the Yagna ceremony um, was basically a group of men standing around a fire, throwing clarified butter into the fire and chanting mantras. And they would be chanting these things that sounded like spells. They would be very uh, hypnotic and trance-like. And you can imagine many people chanting them together would create quite an effect on the practitioner. But importantly, these rituals weren't for everybody. 
you know, it wasn't for everybody. It was only for a specific group of people known as the Brahmins or the priests. Now, it's important also to remember that most pastoral shamanic cultures outsourced their shaman work to a specific group of people. So it wasn't like everybody was practicing. Everybody looked to a group of people to be their intercession between them and the gods. So there was a kind of intermediary between them and these realms. So what were the shamans doing? Well, essentially, they were placating the gods to extract what is known in the Vedic rasa. Rasa means juice. It literally means juice. And it's a reference to a few things. Rain. Rain is rasa. Minerals are rasa. Uh, crops are rasa. Uh, anything that helps you survive on earth is rasa. The devas and devis are the forces in nature that provides you with rasa. But they have their opposite. You know, the opposite of a deva, the opposite of a devi is an asura. An asura means a chaotic or... ah, The word demon doesn't really apply since the asuras and devas are both seen as kind of like uh, not within a moralistic framework. You know, so devas aren't good. Asuras aren't bad. There's no moralizing here. In the same way, you don't make a moral claim about gravity. You also don't make a moral claim about helpful natural forces and harmful natural forces, right? When you fall down the stairs, it's not like you say, oh my god, gravity is evil, the devil pushed me. No, 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 no. You fell down the stairs, you recognize it was an impersonal force, and you called it gravity, you know? Uh, and then you learned how to work with gravity. And now you can do a kickflip on your skateboard and you're at Venice Beach every day impressing people. Okay, so you learned that there was a force and you learned how to interact with that force, but never was there any moralizing. Similarly, in the Vedic times, there also was very little moralizing. It was like, look, there are certain forces in nature. They are helpful to us. We'll call them devas and devis. Then there are certain forces in nature that are harmful to us. We'll call them asuras. Asuras can become devas. Devas can become asuras. That's an interesting facet too. They're sometimes also interested in the same goals. Uh, although most of the time they're opposing and fighting one another. Humans are caught in between. Does this sound familiar? It's Zoroastrianism. So remember, in the Indus Valley, there is the Vedic people. Our closest cousins is actually the Avastani people, who are today uh, what we might call uh, uh, Iranians. And the word Iran comes from Aryan. The Vedic people were calling themselves Aryans. Aryans means noble one, by the way. Horribly appropriated many, many years later by a certain individual in Germany. So uh, I'll explain a little bit how that happened too today. How is it that the swastika and the, the word Aryan came to be misappropriated and misused? We'll discuss that. But for now, just know that we have a brother or sister uh, community living alongside of us known as the Avastanis, and they have a completely different worldview. For them, the Asuras are the gods and the Devis are the, uh, you know, so it's funny that these words get interchanged. Sanskrit and Avastan are very close languages. They're both Indo-European languages and they share a lot of words. You know, so in Iran, or at least at this time, early Persia, there was a philosopher. His name was Zoroaster or Zarathustra, and he formulated a philosophy known as Zoroastrianism. In this philosophy, there were two beings, two primordial beings. One was Ahura Mazda. The word Ahura comes from the word Asura. Interesting. Ahura Mazda means Lord of Wisdom. Ahura Mazda is the good guy. 
right? And his opposite is Ahriman or Aingramanyu. Now, Aingramanyu is like the evil force, the force of darkness. Aingramanyu and Ahriman, sorry, Aingramanyu and Ahriman are the same being, sorry. I'm just going to say Ahriman. Now, Ahriman and Ahura Mazda faced each other at the dawn of time, or, or before time, actually. And they were both like sizing each other up. They were like, who are you? And who are you? You know, like two children in a, in, in a playpen. And first, Ahura Mazda's first instinct was to make friends. He offered his hand. Ariman saw that as a sign of weakness, slapped the hand away and said, I will make war upon you. Ahura Mazda said, fine, let's go. And then they created a battlefield known as Earth. And the two of them fought on that battlefield. So you can imagine this Earth plane is really just the table of arm wrestling. You can imagine Sylvester Stallone there saying, when I turn my hat around, it's like a switch. And his arm, you know that movie? Is that reference going over your head? There's an arm wrestling movie with Sylvester Stallone. Anyway, so these two beings are arm wrestling. You can see how this dualism, this idea of good versus evil, finds its expression in Christianity many years later. The idea of God versus Satan. You know, you'll read it in the book of Enoch that there are good angels like Mikael and his host. And then there are the fallen ones like Lucifer and some of these names ought not to be spoken in polite society. But if you'd like them, they're all in a book known as the Lesser Key of Solomon, the Goetia. I don't recommend you read that book. Uh, but there are names for these dark beings and they fight. Importantly, look what Solomon did to build his temple. Um, Oh, thank you, Mikey. And Mikey provides a technology, adversar adversarial neural networks. They're opposing creative forces, and we can see them uh, uh, without any moralistic framework. Now, look at what King Solomon does. He isn't like demons. Ew, let's not work with them. No, he in it, it recruits them to build his temple. You see, interestingly enough, the idea here is that there are forces and they can be worked with. That's it. So these Vedic philosophers, these early priests, were just finding ways to work with those forces. That's it. And in order to do so, they developed what we call the Veda. So this is today the oldest literature in the world. It's four principal texts. Veda, the word Veda means knowledge. It comes Darth Vader, Veda. No, the word Veda, we're going to talk a lot about Star Wars today because there are a lot of threads. Yoda, Yoga, Mace Windu, Mace Hindu, I won't get into it. Um, we should perhaps do a separate day, you know, just Star Wars and yoga. But for now, enough. it's enough, suffice to say, Vedas comes from the word uh, V, which means to see. So Veda literally means knowledge and knowledge literally means to see. That word V is the same as in the English word video, vision, the French vu, you know, so we share a lot of these words because of the Indo-European languages, no? And the Hellenistic culture, the Greeks are also Indo-Europeans. So when the Romans came and took over Greece, uh, some of those words like vision, V, came in uh, ver in Portuguese. Yes, so the idea is video, to see. The Vedas are revelatory, meaning... What ended up happening was these priests opened themselves up to something, to what we don't know. But according to myth, according to legend, they heard something. 
And so much like the Prophet Muhammad was revealed to by the angel Jibril in, 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 in the mountain named Thaur, much like Moses met, sorry, not Moses, Abraham met the angels, much like Jesus, Jesus was the son of God from the beginning, according to high Christology, but much like these beings had revelatory experiences. You know, you can imagine Moses on the mountain. They, they're, they're having these experience, this, this revelation. Like that, the Vedas came to man. So the idea is nobody wrote the Vedas. Nobody sat down and figured it out. It was given to us. It was a revealed scripture. So the Vedas are sometimes called Shruti. Shruti, Shruti means revealed. And you know, Shruti actually means, this, the root of the word Shruti is the same as Shravana, which means to hear. It's a heard text. So the Vedas means the, the scene, but we heard it. <laughs> so it's very synesthetic, you know. So apparently we heard it from these beings, and these beings taught us how to work with them. So if you read the Vedas, some parts of it are super alien. You know, they're like, oh, this is so weird. So the first book reference I'm going to give you, if you're interested in reading the Vedas, um, I actually recommend The Secret of the Vedas by... Aurobindo. So Aurobindo gives you a book describing the Vedas and some of the symbols of the Vedas. But of course you can get um, Rig Veda translated by like Penguin Classics or whatever. Now there are four Vedas. The Rig Veda, Yajur Veda, Sama Veda and Atharva Veda. So the Rig is the oldest. Welcome Amanda. The Rig is the oldest Veda and the Atharva Veda is the newest. Uh, and remember, this is all during uh, 4000 BCE India. Now, importantly, the Vedas, what we have of it, uh, references an older text. So some more liberal estimates place this culture at 7000 BCE. Now just note that. And there's also some geological data for that too, given the river and all that. Okay, so we won't get into too many historical details. Suffice to say that in the Vedas, we have a few things. One central part of the Vedas is litany. So the word litany means ritual text or liturgy. It basically is uh, descriptions of how to perform rites and ceremonies in order to cajole the gods. So if you're interested in performing the ceremonies, it's all there in the Vedas. And today it continues to be practiced by a branch of Hinduism known as Purva Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa. So I put that in the chat. Mimamsa means to reverentially read. You know, Mimamsa, to read with reverence. So the Purva Mimamsa are the oldest, most ancient, most orthodox Hindus because they are interested above all in preserving the rituals of pastoral nomadic Vedic India. Whew, that was a wordy sentence. <laughs> so Purva Mimhamsa means like, oh, it's funny, Saravana is coming. After we talked about Shravana, there's someone here named that. It's a common name, you know, Shravana. Okay, so Purva Mimamsa. Uh, is ritualistic Vedas. But there's another part of the Vedas too, which deals with philosophy. You know, which is, how do these rituals work? This is known as the Jnana Skanda, or the part of the Vedas that's interested in epistemological, philosophical questions. So while there was the karma part of the yoga, what do you do? There was also the how should you think about it part of the Vedas. You know, this is where things get interesting. So here's what we know about Vedic times. Their first interest was in securing material goods. 
You know, so at first they were curious about how do we uh, uh, live better in this world? Crops. How do we triumph over enemy tribes? All of that. But then their interest started to become more, um, let's say, mystical. They started to propose the existence of various realms. These realms were called lokas, planets, or svargas, heavens. There were many of these that were spoken of in the Vedas, and there were two paths you could take. One was known as the Pitriyana. Pitri means father. Ayana means path. No worries, Saravana. It's, it's all okay. Welcome, welcome. Now, Pitriyana is the way of the fathers. Pitri, father, same as pater. You'll see it in the Latin. And, uh, you know, fra, uh, uh, how do you say in French? Frère? No. Uh, père, mon père. Uh, yes, like that. Or father. It comes from Pitri. Ayana means way. Ramayana, Rama's way, Rama's journey, this means odyssey. So the odyssey of the fathers is one way you can take. Now, um, and I am reading the chats, it's just that uh, I, I can only respond on Zoom, yes. So um, the ayana of the fathers is the way that you go when you've done meritorious deeds in life. So if you're a hero, you know, you fought for your tribe, you defended virtue and, and morality, you go the way of the fathers, and you go and, and enjoy a kind of Elysium. So this you'll find in Greek myths. If the Spartans die in battle, they go to Elysium, this wonderful field where they can hang out with their ancestors. You know, so a Spartan is really excited because when he dies, what does he get to do? He's not really interested in like having virgins or whatever. Really, he wants to go and get an autograph from Leonidas. You know, you'll see in the writings of some Spartans, happily I will die in battle because then I will meet Leonidas, you know, the great Spartan general who led the, uh, the, the movie 300. He took a stand at Thermophile and, and, and defended Greece against the Persian invasion. 300 men defending slavery against the onslaught of liberal values and the abolition of slavery. Call it what you will, but there was a brave start. <laughs> you do know the Persians allowed a lot of autonomy in its cities and they were also anti-slavery. Anyway, so um, there's... There's Leonidas defending against Xerxes or, or, or whatever. And, and uh, the goal of the Greek hero is to go to Elysium and meet his fathers. It's a very masculine kind of thing to want. I just want dad to be proud of me. You know, <laughs> I just want a pat on my back from dad. You know, So that's one way. Another way is you could go the Devayana, which is the way of the gods. And that will take you to a place called Brahmaloka, the realm of the gods. And this is where you can enjoy learning and, and all these like beautiful things. So the idea is the Vedas were first about material welfare. They realized that sickness is a thing. Death is a thing. Life basically sucks. I mean, you're in pastoral Pakistan, Sursa 7000 BCE. Mortality rate's pretty high. Infant mortality rates is pretty high. You know, uh, life expectancy is pretty low. Life is rough and it remains to be rough today. So at first they were interested in making life better. But then when they realized that this world is kind of doomed, then they realized, oh, there's actually other realms, realms in which there is no sickness, uh, realms in which that the body doesn't continue to punish you. So let's go to these realms. Okay, so we'll leave it at that. The Vedas were interested in going to these various lokas. But then... This is interesting. A group of sages emerged that started to ask even deeper questions. They asked, is there more to life than cows and cattle? Is there more to life than getting Leonidas's autograph? Is there more to life than sporting with celestial nymphs in heavenly spheres? 
apsaras they're called, nymphs. Um, because pleasure comes and pleasure goes. Doesn't matter how sublime the pleasure is, whether it's a taste of your favorite sweet or it's the rapturous encounter with a shining being like a deva, pleasure comes and pleasure goes. So why chase pleasure? Because even the most sublime pleasure will come and will go. So today we're all asking the question, is there more to life than breast implants and bank balances? Is there more to life than climbing the corporate ladder? Is there more to life than these 80 or so years, if we're lucky, of, of chasing pleasure and, and, and power? These questions were asked and it produced what we call the Upanishadic India. The Upanishad, and this is our next stop on our tour. So we're, we're passing by the Vedas now. By Vedas, we're going to the Upanishad. There's so much more to say, but also so much more to cover. Uh, we're still in year 7,000 BCE. We literally have 9,000 more years to go. <laughs> and at least that many books for me to, to share with you. So let's move on. We're now in the Upanishadic times, which is marked by a spiritual maturity in India. The maturity that says, hey, you know, maybe there aren't many gods. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe there's only one god. Just a thought, guys. You know, uh, hear me out. And in Upanishadic India, here are a few key discoveries. The first, whatever exists out there exists in here too. That's an important discovery. Yes, there was wind, vayu out in the world. But notice, there's also wind in your body. Sneezing, coughing, breathing. So there are internal values too. So the same way winds have a law-like quality out there and you can harness them for certain things, the winds in your body also have a law-like quality and you can harness them for certain things. Isn't that interesting? So it means that your emotional quality kind of correlates to your breath. When you're feeling happy and peaceful and relaxed, the breath is deeper and slower and richer and fuller. When you're stressed and nervous and excited, the breath is shorter and quicker and shallower. So what if, if, if you know emotions change the breath, doesn't the opposite also apply? Like when you change your breath, you change your emotions. So they started to become interested in that. Okay, tracking the movements of winds in the body. Then they realized Agni is like fire, right? But there's also fire in the body. The same way the fire was central to a Vedic ceremony uh, in that it spiritualizes stuff. You know, so what fire does is if you put something inside, that thing becomes spirit. You know, you take ghee, you see it's so dense, it's like matter. And then you throw it in the fire and it becomes subtler and subtler. It becomes smell. And that smell goes up, the savor, if you will, goes up into the sky where the, supposedly the gods live. But it's not like the gods live in the physical sky. In Zoroastrianism, they also say Aingra Manu and Ahura Mazda don't live in earth. They're like kind of apart from the earth in that they're in different realms. So when you burn something, you help it go into different realms. You make it subtler and subtler so that it can penetrate into subtler and subtler realms. So in the same way, physical fire spiritualizes physical stuff. So too does your stomach fire known as Jattaragni. Jattara means stomach. Agni means fire. Jattaragni... Um, the same way fire digests things in the world, Jattaragni digests your food, but it also processes your emotions, your traumas. So if you had a strong digestive fire, not only would you have a good metabolism, you could eat whatever you want and you'd be chill, but you'd also be able to deal with emotions better. If you had a low Jattaragni, uh, you might feel like 
unmotivated or, or unable to digest things that happen to you. You might find yourself clinging to events and traumas, unable to move beyond them. So they became interested in stoking the stomach fire. So you can see in the Upanishadic age, people were beginning to turn their attention away from nature and towards something more subtle, the inner realm. Why did they do this? What was responsible for this shift? And the answer is, India at this time had achieved very complex systems of science. You know, they already knew about atoms. They knew the world was made of atoms. Uh, they knew about nine planets. And the Vedic times, the sun was known to be the center of this solar system. This solar system was called Bhuloka, and it was one among many floating in an ocean of milk eerily like the Milky Way of today, you know? So the science was very complex. The mathematics was very complex. The logic was very complex. And as we learn in one Upanishad, someone says, I am skilled in all the astronomy. I am skilled in all the math. I understand all the arts. I can play all the musical instruments. And a great sage, sage says to him, everything that you know is but a name. Kind of an interesting line. It's saying like everything that you know isn't really worth as much as you think. So one thing these Indians discovered very early on, it might be wrong to call them Indians since now they'd be Pakistanis, right? One thing they discovered very early on was that um, everything changes. Everything they looked at in the world changes. Everything dies. So yeah, you could go to Brahmaloka. Yes, you could go to Swarga. But doesn't that end too? Isn't change all pervasive? Isn't the experience of life, whether in this realm or in other realms, isn't it always going to be susceptible to change? And if that's the case, shouldn't we be interested in finding the thing that doesn't change? Isn't that more noble a quest? And so they started to look for the changeless thing. They looked for it all over the universe. You know, they astral projected into other universes and realms. And they realized after that extensive mystical search, um, nothing was the, the changeless one. You know, so they started to look within. And then they uncovered a secret, a powerful secret, a secret that back in the day you had to climb a mountain to learn about. A secret that it would have taken you years to even cajole out of your guru. A secret that you can now buy for $8 or something on Amazon. <laughs> um, you can purchase the Upanishads on Amazon and you can read them, you know. But I want to impress a point now that that was not the case back then. Back then, if you wanted to learn the secret that I'm about to share with you now, you would have to make a journey far up into the mountains to go and meet some reclusive sage who probably wouldn't even teach you this stuff until he, she, or they were sure that you really could learn it. They would probably Mr. Miyagi you for years. There's a Buddhist story of the famous Buddhist adept Milarepa and his master Marpa. Marpa refused to teach Milarepa anything for years. He forced Milarepa to build a house. And every time Milarepa almost finished the house, Marpa would wreck it. And he'd be forced to build the house over and over. You know, even Marpa's wife felt bad for Milarepa. It was like, teach the Teach the goddamn thing. Look at this boy. He's approaching the end of his life, but Marpa refused to teach him, you know? So if you were around in 7000 BCE India, 
you would probably have to live an entire lifetime in the service of one of these masters uh, before you learned what we're about to talk about. So Danish asks, why are the Vedas considered important when they didn't deal with more subtle realities? Aren't the Upanishads most more important in that sense? I would say yes, and the reason I say that is because I'm a Vedantist. A Mimamsa practitioner, a Purva Mimamsa practitioner would disagree. A Purva Mimamsa practitioner, which, like I said, is the most orthodox form of Hinduism, interested in preserving the ritual culture of nomadic pastoral India, they don't think the Upanishads are that important. They think it's mere philosophy, bah, to hell with all your intellectual theorizing. Better to do the work, you know. Um, But I will tell you why the Upanishads are more important than the Vedas. So the Upanishads are part of the Vedas. Don't forget that. You know, the Upanishads are part of the Vedas. Just like there's a ritualistic portion of the Vedas, there's also a philosophical portion of the Vedas. And more important than the Upanishads are the commentaries on the Upanishads that would come after, most notably by the famous Vyasa and the even more famous Shankaracharya, two figures that you will meet today. So if all of these names sound like too much or you're feeling overwhelmed, don't worry. Just relax into it um, and carry away what water the palms are able to hold. Even a little bit from this river shall uh, nourish you for a lifetime. You know, and today I will I will attempt to pour the whole ocean into your cup. So don't be afraid if anything spills over, and certainly don't try to remember all of this. <laughs> we are here to celebrate India, after all. So if you feel good, that's enough. <laughs> if you're just feeling happy right now, you don't even need to listen. Just sit. Mm. And look at Roxanne. She'll smile at you, and you'll feel happy. And look at Caleb. You'll be happy. Okay. So, um, the Upanishads deal with these subtler questions, and there are many of them. I'm going to talk about two of them now. Just the two, like, there are generally considered maybe ten that are particularly important, uh, because ten were, uh, were, were commented upon by Shankaracharya. So Shankaracharya, among the many Upanishads, chose those ten, uh, because he saw that those ten were the most uh, pertinent. So I'll tell you two, actually three. There are three I think that are important for our discussion. The first I'll tell you about is the Katha Upanishad. You know, some of you were here for my deepest ideas in yoga lecture. For those of you that were here for that, you'll notice this lecture and that one was very much similar, um, except this one will go a little deeper um, and be a little bit more extensive. But in that lecture, we started with the Katha Upanishad. Yes, Jeremiah, is there a more perfect and beautiful place? Some of the uh, Vedas thought uh, suggested that there was. <laughs> Svargas, or heavenly realms, anyway. So, um, in that lecture, in the deepest ideas of yoga lecture, we started with the Katha Upanishad, because I think it's the one Upanishad that summarizes everything we're talking about today, symbolically. So I'll tell you that now. It's the first, today is our first story, okay? So, in the story of this talk, I will embed smaller stories. This is the first story. This is the story of Nachiketa and the Katha Upanishad. Now, it's important, you know, we teach in stories. The same way Jesus taught in parables, the reason these traditions survived is because they are story traditions. Right now, as we're talking, there is an Indian mother telling it to her child, you know, Um, and that child knows not the symbolism of the story, but the story is interesting, so they remember it. And then when they become 20, suddenly they realize the symbolism. They realize what the story was saying. So I'll tell you the story first, then I'll break the story down for you. So in the Katha Upanishad, it tells the story of a young boy named Nachiketa. Welcome, everybody. And I will answer that question, Danish, about the Upanishads. 
So um, now, actually now, Danish, Danish asked me, how did the rishis discover the Upanishads? So remember, the Vedas are revealed scriptures. They're shruttis. They just came to us from these beings. The Upanishads are different. You know, we discovered the Upanishadic truths by studying ourselves, by going inward. And this story now will tell you how we did that. So in the Katha Upanishad, there is a young boy named Nachiketa. Uh, Casey, it's good to see you again. I've missed you, my Gnostic brother. <laughs> so in the Katha Upanishad, Nachiketa is a son and his father is like little Richard. He's like a famous preacher. He's a big deal. He's like the Elvis of Vedic society. You know, so he's like, you know, everywhere he goes, he waves his hand and people are cheering. He's like a patriarch of Vedic society. And he performs these elaborate ceremonies. So he's kind of the symbol for Purva Mimamsa, a ritualist, a traditional Orthodox Vedic guy, right? His son is pretty skeptical of that. One day, the father is about to sacrifice some scraggly cows. And the son says, Dad, Surely you can do better than these cows. I mean, if you really had reverence for these gods, why are you sacrificing something so cheap? It seems like you're more interested in the pomp and appearance than you are in the actual nature of what you're doing. Do you see? This is a critique of exoteric religion. Now, remember, the Vedas are like a social social project. Uh, the Vedas are entrenched in a hierarchy in which the priests preside over these elite ceremonies and the rest of the community depends on these priests for crops and good weather and, and etc. Nachiketa questions that. He questions this exoteric religion. So all true spirituality begins with questioning the dogmas that were forced upon you when you were born. You know, so all true seeking begins with rejecting. It begins with questioning. And you know, usually if you ask your uh, orthodox, uh, exoteric religious leaders about stuff in the Bible or the Quran or the Vedas or whatever, they won't be able to answer you. Because they don't know. They're just maintaining a, a tradition, you know. Uh, the rabbi cannot tell you uh, why these things exist. And he probably won't even dis discuss Kabbalah with you because only Kohans can practice Kabbalah, by the way. So you see, most exoteric religion fails to answer your questions when you ask them. So Nachiketa asked the question. His father was made very uncomfortable by the question. And he said, fine, you being so insolent, what would you have me sacrifice? Nachiketa said, something you truly value, dad. And Nachiketa um, uh, is surprised to hear his father say, okay, then I sacrifice you. You go, you jump in the fire. Nachiketa, as a dutiful son, says, uh, yes, Pitri, I will jump in the fire. So Nachiketa, dutifully, with typical Indian melodrama, jumps into the fire and self-immolates. Upon dying, he is transported to Death's house. Death is Yama, his name is Yama, and his name is Yama Raja, which means King Death. So he's transported to King Death's house, and in the house, um, Death is not home. Yamaraja just isn't there that day. So this boy has to wait three days and three nights on the uh, threshold of death, you know. And when death does come home after these three days and three nights, he's horrified to find his guest so poorly treated, you know. 
Um, and you know, if you know anything about Indians, you know hospitality is more important to us than anything. What will neighbors think is more important to us than even our familial relationships. <laughs> so Yamaraj, uh, horrified by his lack of hospitality, brought Nakchiketa into the house, gave him food, gave him... Yes, there is a reason it's three days and three nights, and I'll tell you why. Gave him food, gave him um, uh, refreshments, and he said, my boy, I'm so sorry. Because you were so patient, I will give you three wishes. Anything. Uh, actually, I think it's like two. What do you wish? You know? So there's exoteric and esoteric religion. So now Nachiketa is leaving behind exoteric religion. How does he leave exoteric religion? First by questioning it, and then by stepping into a fire. So mark these symbols well. Questioning exoteric religion and stepping into the fire. Him stepping into the fire is the moment in which he moves from exoteric state control programs, commonly called religions, to the esoteric spiritual program called uh, a philosophy or, or esoteric practice or whatever. So now in the God of Death's house, he's given two wishes. Watch this very carefully. Notice what he asks for. His first request is to learn a specific ceremony, a specific Vedic ceremony. Now, one thing you need to, you need to know about the Vedas is these ceremonies sometimes are days long. They require intense intellectual prowess. You got to be really smart to be able to do this. Honestly, like you need to memorize a lot of stuff. Uh, and not only that, you need to know a lot of math and a lot of astronomy. And you got to be able to, to deal with very subtle and complex and intricate things like how to place the fire on the kusha grass and all of that. So he asks how to perform a ceremony. The god of death teaches him and he gets it on the first try. First try. He learns how to do the ceremony. He memorizes it all. This demonstrates that Nachiketa had an extraordinary intellect. Like he was a really smart guy. The god of death was impressed. He was so impressed with Nachiketa's um, uh, uh, intellectual prowess that he named the ceremony after Nachiketa. So he said, Here, henceforth, this ceremony will be called the Nachiketa. And whenever people practice it, they will remember you. So Nachiketa's like, cool, 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 whatever. Then the god of death says, what's your second wish? And he says, oh, I hadn't really thought about it, but you know, I want my dad to forgive me. My second wish is just this. Please make my dad feel better. So when I go back, he'll accept me as a son again. Okay, the first wish demonstrated Nachiketa's intellectual prowess. The second wish demonstrates his large open-heartedness. What a selfless person. He could have asked for anything, uh, but he asked first a religious question, how to perform a ceremony, then a social question, how to make his father feel better. As a dutiful son, as a loving son, he impressed the god of death with his, like, compassion. So impressed, so moved, the god of death gave him a third wish. And the third wish was, and this is the clincher, Nachiketa says, eh, I don't really want anything, but I am curious, what is the secret of life? And at this point, the god of death says, what? And Nachiketa says, what is the secret of life? And the god of death begins to sweat bullets. This is something he's not sure he should reveal to mortals. You know, it, it, it will threaten the very fabric of society for a person to know this. So, what does the god of death do? He tempts Nachiketa to choose something else. He says, oh, that's, that's good, my boy, but I have, I have a menu here. There are other things you can wish for. Don't you want, immort uh, don't you want to like, have sons? 
that will have sons that will bear your name into eternity? Nachiketa says, nah. And then he goes, don't you want celestial dancing girls that can pleasure you for all eternity, whose beauty is exquisite and ever new? He goes, nah. It's like, don't you want power um, over all three worlds, the earth plane, astral, and heavenly plane? You would be the king of all three realms, Buloka, Buvarloka, Svargaloka. He goes, nah. And the god of death says, why ever not? Why wouldn't you want all of these things? Nachiketa's response, mark this well, is beautiful. He says, All these things that you offer to me, Yamaraj, are good. Notice he doesn't moralize or reject them. He doesn't reject pleasure as bad. In Hinduism, we see karma as a very legitimate thing to want. Kama means sexual self-expression or the desire for pleasure. That's perfectly fine. You should desire pleasure. And to live a meaningful life, you should experience pleasure. You know, the more Vedic performance you do, the more good good uh, works you do, you will gain something known as punya or merit, what the Islamic philosophers call pahala, which basically means brownie points with God. And the more punya or merit you acquire, the more pleasure will come your way. The more beautiful your lovers, the more exquisite your delights. Uh, you'll be born in a kingdom with good musicians. I don't know. So, Nachiketa doesn't say pleasure is bad. Nor does Hinduism reject or repress, repress pleasure. He says it's good. Next, Artha. Material accomplishment or power. He says this is good too. It's good to want wealth. It's good to establish yourself on earth um, and in other planes. You know, power is good. You should pursue it. You should have it. It's good. Then he says, while these things are good, Yamaraj, ultimately, they wear out the senses. So this is important. He's making a point here that the Buddha would make later. Anityam, anityam, sarva anityam. Changing, changing, all is changing. Impermanent, impermanent, all is impermanent. While power and pleasure are good, ultimately, they won't always be good. I'm going to tire of these pleasures. And watch this in your own life. What pleasured you yesterday does not pleasure you today. The more you chase your pleasures, the more elusive your satisfaction becomes. The more you drink from your salty ocean to satisfy your thirst, the thirstier you become. You know, how transient is pleasure? Even the most exquisite orgasm comes and goes away, leaves you hornier than ever before. The most exquisite chocolate cake diminishes in pleasure with every bite. You can try this. You know, the next time you're hungry, go and get your favorite pizza and notice how every slice is a little less good than the slice that came before. Anybody who's tried heroin knows this acutely. They call it chasing the dragon. No high will ever be as good as your first high. Nachiketa realized this and he's like, dude, pleasure's great, power's great. But the intoxication of pleasure and power won't do it for me forever. I want something unchanging. So see, this is the Upanishadic question. What is unchanging? And the God of Death teaches it. Okay. So, the, uh, Danish asks the question, how did we discover these truths? Danish, sorry. Uh, Chandra means moon, so I love that Danish Chandra is here. Danish of the moon. Now, how did we discover these truths? Oh, everyone on TikTok just fell into the abyss. 
Whoops. Now, how did we discover these truths? The story of Nachiketa tells you. Yes, sun and the moon, which I love. The story of Nachiketa is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for how to learn the king of death secret. So first of all, step one is to question everything you're told. <laughs> Reject everything that has been forced upon you as dogma. Do not accept anything unless it's true for you. Question your religious leaders. Deny them and reject them when they cannot provide you the answers that make your life meaningfully better. Secondly, you must step into the fire. What is the fire? Spiritual practice, austerity, what we call in our culture, tapasya. Tapas literally means heat or glowing. So here's the next book I'm going to give you. It's by George Furstein or Gorg Furstein. I'm not sure he's German. Uh, and he's a brilliant scholar. He's an Indic philosopher who um, does a lot of really good work explaining uh, yoga to a Western audience in a very authentic way. So I recommend George, Fu Fu let me spell it right, Fuerstein's book, The Deeper Dimensions of Yoga. The Deeper Dimensions of Yoga. It's a book about yoga and about the various schools of thought in yoga. And in this book, George Furstein says, etymologically, he's also an etymologist. So he's very good at finding roots of words. He says, yoga, the word yoga as, as a spiritual practice, a word connoting a practice, was at first the word tapas. So the word yoga and tapas get used interchangeably, like you can see in the Chandogya Upanishad, one of the many Upanishads. So tapas means heating or glowing, and really it means austerity or spiritual practice. So here's the thing, gang, spiritual practice is hard. You know, fasting is hard. Standing on your head is hard. Meditating is hard. All of this, uh, sorry, remove the word meditating. I didn't say meditating. Forget I said that. Standing on your head is hard. Uh, practicing asana, practicing proper diet. In the Buddhist system, samyak vach, right speech, telling no lies, you know, practicing non-violence. All this shit's hard to do. So it is like stepping in the fire, but it will purify you. So what happens? When Nachiketa steps into the fire, he gets purified and purified for what? For meditation. So he goes to the god of death's house, but the god of death isn't home. This is clearly, clearly a metaphor for meditation, no? So think about it. What is meditation really? If not simulating death. What do you know about dead bodies? They don't move. What do you know about meditation? You don't move. What do you know about dead bodies? You don't breathe. What do you know about yogic meditation? You try not to breathe. <laughs> um, thirdly, uh, what do you know about dead bodies? They generally don't express themselves, implying a lack of mental activity. They're not very chatty, these corpses. You know, unless you're in Victorian England and you're at a seance and your grandmother is just, you know. Okay, but generally speaking, corpses aren't very chatty, right? Uh, so your mind should be quiet too. That's meditation. Now, meditation, uh, according to archaeological evidence, was known to the early Indians at least since 4000 BCE India. We have something known as the Pashupati seal. This is a lovely Google, but it's called the Pashupati, uh, Pashu, Pash, Pashupati seal. So actually, Pashu means beast. Pati means like the lord or father of wild beasts. And you know whose name that is? The Lord of Wild Beast? That's Shiva. It's one of Shiva's names. 
the Lord of Wild Animals. So the Pashupati seal is an image of what they call the Proto Shiva, a very early form of Shiva, and he's kind of like seated in a in, in a, a cross-legged position. And he's got like his crescent moon, which looks like horns, a raging erection, which we will talk about in a little bit, uh, why the erection was there. And the Pashupati seal showed a man meditating. So that's important. Meditation was already known to the Indians as early as 4000 BCE. But in the Nachiketa story, you're seeing what meditation is. It's the question, what is death? And the following scientific experiment to figure that out. So if you wanted to do science, what do you do? You re replicate the conditions uh, and test the variables. You know, so if you wanted to test death, the best way to do it is just replicate the variables. So the person sits still, they quiet their breath and they quiet their mind. But notice this. If I ask you to stop thinking right now, I try it. You know, stop breathing, stop moving, stop thinking. It's damn hard. You know, you immediately start to think a thought. You immediately fidget. You're uncomfortable in your chair. The breath is wild and erratic and you couldn't... No, no, not, not quite, Danish. The secret of life is not meditation. Meditation is the means. So let's work with the story uh, bit by bit. And it's sequential. Remember, I'm, I, we're outlining the journey now. First, you reject all authority um, and truths. Uh, that aren't your own truths. Then you step into the fire of purification, which uh, prepares you for meditation. Then you meditate. If you're successfully able to meditate, then you will meet the God of death. And then when you meet the God of death, you will be tested. Much like Jesus was tested in the desert, Satan was like, don't you want to be super powerful, bro? Don't you want to turn rock to bread? Uh, my previous incarnation was as a musician, and I used to make a joke like, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to turn my rock into bread so I can pay rent. If the devil came up to me like, Nish, do you want to turn rock into bread? I am Robert Johnsoning that faster than you can say the blues. So, um, you know, Jesus was offered this stuff. He was offered uh, temptations much like the God of death offered the yogi temptations. So here's what will happen. If you manage to strike out on your own, if you manage to practice severe austerities that can tune you for meditative experience, you will get power. They're called siddhis or perfections or accomplishments. When you get these powers, they will tempt you to re-engage with the world. Now you can go and satisfy the pleasures that you might have been leaving behind. So you will be tempted. You will acquire power. You will have energy. You'll have more energy than you know what to do with. You know, you will never get tired. You won't need to sleep. Um, you can memorize entire books. And you know what? That will make you a really good dinner party guest. You might even start to look like a guru to others. And then you're really in danger, right? Then you're like, ah, I'm the leader of men. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the shit. You know? So when these powers start coming, there are temptations away from the path. If you manage to stay the course, if you manage to continue focusing on your quest for the secret of life, it will ultimately be revealed to you. So I'm going to give it to you now. Uh, it's not a secret because it's there. It's a secret because it might mean nothing to you. After I tell you this, you might just not get it. And you know, the reason you won't get it, hopefully, hopefully you won't get it. Actually, in fact, I'm kind of banking on the fact that you won't get it. If you think you do get it and you still feel desire and fear, something's wrong. You don't quite get it yet. Um, what I'm about to tell you is the secret of life. But as the Buddha pointed out, 
<laughs> Destiny, I won't answer that question because uh, don't. This is the drunken monkey niche, the body, the mind, the personality of niche. All just illusory appearances. Don't ask if Nish gets it. Nish certainly doesn't. You know, Nish is a fool. He has nothing to offer you. Um, but if you get it, you will be free from desire, free from fear, and you will have your siddhis, but they will not impress you. Now, the Buddha was so careful to say that this isn't a concept. If you only get it on the level of a concept, if you only know it in the mind, it's useless. It won't actually help you in life. The Upanishads are a little bit kinder. They say actually even knowing it in the mind is is sort of good. It's a blessing to know it. It's a blessing to talk about it. But the true blessing is to live it. So in the Buddha's case, someone we will meet in about 30 minutes. Don't worry. We will fast forward. I know we're still kind of like in 7000 BCE India. But these are important uh, foundations to lay. And then we can go through the Buddha and, and Jainism quite quickly actually. Thanks to these foundations. So... Uh, Danish says, growing in an Indian household with all these stories, I never looked deeply into a metaphor. Yes, I will give you readings, Danish. Don't worry. Many readings will come today. So far, you have two, right? You have The Secret of the Vedas by Aurobindo, Rig Veda by Penguin Classics, uh, Upanishads by Penguin Classics. If you're interested in reading the Upanishads, I recommend Swami Nikkilananda uh, and his translations. They're great. Swami Nikkalananda is from the Ramakrishna mission. His translations are beautiful. Um, And so the Buddha was saying, thank you, Rahul. Buddha was, (laughs) Buddha was saying, uh, I should have had my black Sabbath t-shirt today. Buddha was saying, um, these are concepts and they don't help you. You know, um, they might help you sleep better tonight. You might feel happy that you learn them, but you'll wake up tomorrow the same person with the same problems. So the Buddha didn't want to define it. Uh, He just called it nirvana, which means the end, the blowing out, actually cessation, cessation of mind, body, personality. Uh, And he's like, you figure it out for yourself. The Buddha's last words, you know, on his deathbed, he said, be your own guru, goddammit. His words were literally be a lamp unto thyself. Figure it out. Reason it out for yourself. Practice on your own. So there's no reason I should tell you this the secret. In fact, I should just teach you how to jump in the fire. I should teach you austerity. And then when you practice those, that austerity, after three years, I will teach you meditation. And then through meditation, we practice and you will discover it for yourself. So me telling you this now is superfluous, you know? And most of all, you ought to not take anybody's word for it. But I'll tell you anyway. The Upanishads tell you anyway. It's no secret. And here it is. Um, You're going to be rather disappointed when you hear this, maybe. Uh, I built it up quite a bit. So get ready on your drums. Go on the snare. We're about to do ba-dum. You know, and here it is. The secret is... Oh, here it comes. Bam. Atman equals Brahman. (laughs) That's really it. That's the secret. Atman means self. It, don't, don't think it's a fancy word, by the way. Don't think Atman is like some like, oh, soul, or like soul is somewhere inside you. I've never contacted my soul. No, don't worry about it. Atman just means yourself, your, your central individuality, your feeling of being a person. Now, what that self is turns out to be very different from what you thought it was. So you might have thought me is my personality. You know, you might have thought, oh, it's my body. It's my mind. Uh, soon I'll give you another Upanishad to show you why it's not. Um, so the Atman means yourself. It's deeper than mind, deeper than body, deeper than personality. You'll see why in a bit. Now, Atman is yourself. What is Brahman? Brahman is a word that gets used or, uh, 
Yes, Amanda. Yes, Atman awareness. You can kind of think of it as the same thing. So that's a difficult word, actually, because we have two kinds of senses in which we say awareness. We mean chit, pure consciousness, and we also mean uh, 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 reflected consciousness or chidabashya. So when we say awareness, it's technical. So we have to be careful there, yeah? Uh, but yeah, Atman basically means self. For now, let's just call it self, capital S. What is Brahman? So Brahman is a word that gets used all over the Upanishad, and it's the word. It's like the secret word. And uh, it's the same as the word Tao, the Tao. You know, in the Tao Te Ching? We will talk about that. That will appear later. But the first line in the Tao Te Ching, you know what it is? Lao Tzu says the first line is, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. <laughs> so the idea is it's something that you can't really define. It's the one thing that can never be made an object. What does the word literally mean? Brahman is not a god. It's not Brahma, by the way. It's, it's distinct from the god Brahma. So if you have this idea in your mind of a god named Brahma, Brahman is not that. Brahman means the vast one. The Sanskrit root Bri means to grow. Uh, so Brahman is just the expansive one, the vast one, the spacious one, if you will. Now, Brahman is considered the ultimate, the absolute, God beyond all gods, the one God, the Father, Yeheshua, yod heh vav -He, whatever you want to call it, this is God, capital G, right? So this is the ultimate cause of the universe. Everybody can think of this. Everybody has in their heart some notion of, of God. <laughs> no, Destiny, please take notes. There's no one way to enjoy this, but it's spelt Brahman from the Sanskrit root, Bri, meaning to grow. Brahman literally means vastness, the vast one. Shiva means the same thing, as we will soon discover in the Tantra part of today's talk. Uh, and also, please uh, be reminded, you can leave at any time, okay? Don't let me hold you hostage here. I'm going to be lecturing for a bit because I hope to be raising some money for India tonight and I'm going to give it my all and I will run myself ragged uh, pouring this ocean into your cup as much as I can before my voice gives out and I die here. Um, and I, I intend to. I intend to self-immolate and leave. This will be my Mahasamadhi. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm really kidding. I wish. <laughs> So please, don't let me hold you hostage. If you need to pop out, pop out. If you want to come back later, I'll likely still be going at least till midnight, at least. So at least for another three and a half hours, I'll be here. And feel free to drop out, drop in, okay? So, Brihad, uh, Bri, oh yes, Mia. So if you're interested, so remember, tonight is really about celebrating the spiritual heritage of India. Also, my best friend in the whole world and roommate, Madeline Chan, just arrived. Madeline, quit law school. Harvard has nothing to teach you. All right, leave. Leave Harvard right now. <laughs> Don't be a miserable corporate lawyer. <laughs> I'm not leaving. My firm just sent me free succulents, so I can't leave. But I'm here to support your lecture and India. <laughs> succulents? Secret of life. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So Mia, great question. So I will, for the next three and a half hours, continue. I'll take you through Tantra, through yoga, through Buddhism, Jainism, through modern yoga, Krishnamacharya, all of that. Yes, it's, it's, it's true, Mia. Madeline is my lawyer. I'm making fun of her, but I, I do depend on Madeline when uh, inevitably the IRS comes for me. <laughs> Thanks, Mia. So yes, um, please feel free. Don't let me hold you hostage. If you need to leave, leave. If you need to come back, I'll be here. Same link. Um, and uh, if you feel at any point tonight contributing to India, first and foremost, I invite you to just do it in your heart with your thoughts, you know? So vibrations are a big thing for our culture. 
like we said with the Tibetans chanting, Oh Mane Padme Hum, to send vibrations. So just send that out. You know, think of the groups who might need it. Um, that's good enough. Then if you feel like donating monetarily, you can of course send a Venmo to Yoga World Heart. <laughs> um, or you can give to giveindia.org. Um, or uh, Feeding India. That's another one that I like. Yoga Gives Back. Although I think GiveIndia.org is doing some really excellent direct work with respirators right now, as well as Feeding India. So you might look at those two. Or if you don't know where to send it, just send it to Yoga World Heart and we'll distribute. Because um, day by day it changes, you know. And we kind of like adjudicate between the various uh, 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 things. Unfortunately, I, I don't think there's a cash app. Um, but we'll figure it out, Christina. Whatever you can do, do you know, and yes, we will chant actually in a little bit um, and add to it. Yes, it would matter. Everything matters, Destiny. As we said, we're all enmeshed in one quantum web of vibration. How we feel has far-reaching effects for how everyone else feels everywhere else. So here's the central secret, right? Nachiketa denies exoteric religion. Step one, turn away from all that you have been told. Uh, remember how Yoda says to Luke Skywalker in episode 5, you must unlearn all that you have learned. So the first step is to realize that dogma, belief isn't truth, and to have the courage to set out on your own quest for truth. That's the hero's journey, right? You must leave home to a degree. So step one in Nachiketa's story, deny everything, you know, seek for yourself. Step two, Purify yourself either through ethical codes or through some set of esoteric austerity practices. I will be giving you several today. It's, it's called yoga and I'll be giving you a lot of yoga today. Uh, things you can practice on your own. So do that. After you practice, after, <laughs> after you do, someone just said, I just unlearned what you said. Yes, good. I hope that you will. Because <laughs> these are just concepts, remember. They, they, they're not, you know, I, let me do an aside. Once there's, there was a text, it's called Panchadesi. Vidyaranya is a famous non-dualist. And non-dualists love to debate. Like I said, debate is central to Indian philosophy. Um, when Malin and I were in college, we had a very uh, robust debating career. So she'll enjoy this, this reference. So debate is central to Indian philosophy. And when we make statements, we expect to be challenged because it's those challenges that help us develop our philosophy. So Vidyaranya, this great saint, is asked a question. If you're saying the mind, body, and personality are unreal, then all the knowledge that the mind, body, and personality has is also unreal, and even the liberation of that individual is unreal. You see, the, the, the rebuttal is against all of this knowledge, against the idea of enlightenment itself. You know what Vidyaranya says? Who can deny this? You're right. <laughs> so the idea is all of these concepts are like taking a thorn, Ramakrishna said. When you are poked by the thorn of ignorance, you must take the splinter of knowledge and get rid of the splinter of ignorance. What do you do with the splinter of knowledge having taken out the splinter of ignorance? Do you put it on a, a, a pedestal and pray to it every day? No, it's done its job. You throw that away too. So when these concepts have freed you from all concepts, I hope to God you will discard them. <laughs> so yes, um, first you reject all exoteric forms of religion. You step into the fires of purification. Then you practice meditation. And Caleb asked, why three days and three nights? 
Um, it's an interesting question, and hopefully the Mandukya Upanishad will show you, Caleb. Uh, but you might think three times three is nine, and there are nine states of consciousness. Broadly speaking, there's waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, but then there's waking and waking, which hopefully some of you are in now, very alert and excited. You're awake while you're awake. There's daydreaming, which is dreaming, and there's coffee. Amanda's got it. Um, cheers. Here's my tea. Um, there's dreaming in waking, which is kind of like daydreaming, and there's deep sleep in waking, which is like in a, being in a trance state or, or blanking out, you know? So you can see in waking, there are three states. In dreaming, there are three states. There's dreaming and dreaming, which most of us feel, but then there's also waking and dreaming, which some of you know is lucid dreaming, and there's deep sleep and dreaming when you don't remember any of your dreams. So in dreaming, there are three states, and then in deep sleep, there are three states too. I don't even want to get into this because it's pretty mysterious and it will mean nothing to you having not had the experience, but... um Basically, every one of these states has three other states. So three by three makes nine. Maybe that's the reference. He spent three days and three nights in God of Death's house, meaning he meditated, having mastered all nine flavors of conscious experience. At that point, he got powers. Of course you would, right? If you know how to lucid dream, um, if you if you know how to uh, uh, be awake while awake, you would be incredibly effective. If nothing else, your productivity will shoot through the roof. A lot of Silicon Valley dudes come to yoga, come to Buddhism, because they're really learning how to code better. And that's all right. <laughs> anyway, so um, you will be tempted by the god of death with various powers, siddhis. Uh, suddenly, all the things you wanted in your life, um, you're now able to achieve. So will you just go and get them? Yeah, nine grahas, nine planets. There's a lot of nine in there. Nine realms in Norse mythology. Nine is the end of the number series, you know, so it might mean an Enneagram. Mikey talks about uh, uh, the Enneads. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for crowdsourcing that. Yes, yeah, so Caleb, <laughs> our community has come together to answer the question, why three days and three nights? Yes. So then he gets the secret. And the secret is just this. Atman equals Brahman, meaning the one God, that you consider to be the ultimate cause of all things is no other than your very own self. Does that mean you, the ego? God, no, as you'll soon see. It's you in a different sense of the word you. And now we're going to turn to another two Upanishads to show you what I mean. So that first Upanishad, the Katha Upanishad, describes to you in, in a skeleton overview what we're going to be talking about for the rest of these nights. So you can use this as a kind of blueprint. Everything, everything that we speak about, we can plug into this model, you know. Um, and I, when I tell you something, I'll call it a fire. I will call it a meditation or I will call it an insight. These are the three things. The fire is purification. Meditation is the practice. Insight is what you get when you meditate, you know. Okay, so we're going to leave the Katha Upanishad behind. Now we're going to go to the next Upanishad, the, the Taitriya Upanishad. So what is the goal of understanding this? Atman equals Brahman? Uh, that you are God? Well, the repercussions are quite severe. Um, not severe, but beautiful. Uh, most of us live um, in a state of restlessness. That is, we want things in the world. We desire things. And because we desire things, we feel restless. We chase after those things. Um, oh, the insight? Oh, yes. 
Insight, meditation, and fire. Or insight, meditation, and austerity. Austerity pre- uh, prepares you for meditation and meditation prepares you from insight, for insight. What's important is insight. So if you can have meditation without austerity, awesome. By all means, do that. Very few of us can. And if you can have insight without meditation, by all means, that's what matters. Nobody cares if you meditate. Nobody cares if you practice yoga. Those are all just means to an end. The end, of course, being the realization, according to the Katha Upanishad, the realization that you and God are the one and the same being. So what name do we give this? We give it Sat Chid Ananda. And this is an interesting name. Sat means it, it, it's existence. It, it's not, it doesn't exist, by the way. It's existence itself. It's the one thing through which other things exist. So it's incorrect in our philosophy, uh, in our language even, to say a table exists. No, the better statement is existence is tabling. Do you see? There's a difference, you know, a table exists or existence is tabling. So this is existence itself out of which everything else depends on for their existence. So think about your definition of God, right? God in most cultures is the primal cause, the, 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 the head honcho, the one thing without which nothing else could be. God is the creator. So God is existence itself. So that's the first definition, existence. Next is consciousness. Okay, the West would not understand this until... No, the Brahman is not the Holy Ghost, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. Oh, well, when we get into the Christian, Trinity, Gnostics comparison, first of all, Casey will be excited. But second of all, it gets really interesting and very technical. So for now, uh, Dinesh, the Brahman is not the Holy Ghost, not at all. And I'll tell you why. Brahman is the Father. Let's just say Brahman is the Father, yes? Not the Holy Ghost. The Trinity is important, by the way, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, three in one. It's very important that we maintain the distinctions between all three because that will show us its unity. Okay, so the next thing, Sat means existence itself. Consciousness means, uh, Chid means conscious. Oh, sorry, I just texted you, Dinesh, my bad. I meant to text that to everyone. Consciousness. Chid means consciousness itself. Hello, Heather's teacher. Heather's live in Buddha. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> so Chid means consciousness itself. Look at what this philosophy has done. It said that God is consciousness. You know, God isn't a being in the sky. God isn't a thing. God is consciousness itself, awareness itself. Um, and then the last one, this one might be most interesting to you. Uh, this one might um, might excite you. Ananda. Ananda means bliss. And I don't mean like a flavor of it of, of bliss. I don't mean like an emotion. You know, you think there are different kinds of, of emotions like joy, pleasure, um, excitement, uh, different kinds of pleasurable emotions, right? The same way that all existence depends on this sat and all conscious experience depends on this chid, so too does all all bliss, all feelings of joy depend on this primordial feeling of joy. Do you see? This is an important point. This is joy itself, goodness itself. It's not what is good, it's that by which goodness can be experienced. Shankaracharya, one great teacher who you'll meet today, says this, every pleasurable 
exciting, worthy feeling you can have is but a spray from the ocean of Ananda. And for this spray, men live and die. <laughs> you know, so for just one spray from this ocean, you live your whole life in restlessness. If only you knew the ocean. And there's another quote. Ah, look, they sit by the river. No, the, the quote is, they are dying of thirst and yet, look, they sit by the river. <laughs> so the idea is if you can taste this, you are ever happy, you know? And, and ugh, I don't even want to say you are ever happy because it's not that. Your house could burn down. Your most beloved one could die. And you would still feel grief um, because grief is a part of being in the body and being in the mind, but you won't experience it as suffering. I'm sure you've heard, right? Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. It's kind of a Buddhist statement. Uh, but if you feel this ananda, I promise you, your most horrible experiences, torture, uh, grief, loss, will no longer be felt as suffering. It will be felt as meaning, you know? Yes, so all these emotions. No, destiny, there is nothing outside of bliss. That's why I need to stress this point. There is nothing outside of existence. Existence itself is the, the base out of which everything exists. There is nothing outside of consciousness. Consciousness itself gives you every other form of consciousness. There is nothing outside of bliss. So yes, good destiny. Be very careful. Do not call bliss one emotion in a spectrum of emotions. No, it's not that. It's not a flavor of happiness. It's not a kind of joy. Because if you think this, right? If you think that this is a kind of thing, you will chase it and it will be threatened by everything that is not it. So you'll be like, oh, I'm blissful. What happens when sorrow comes? Then you'll say, oh, sorrow is opposite. I'm not blissful anymore. No, if this happens, you have confused ananda with some other mundane feeling of happiness. You know, happiness will always be opposed by sorrow. Where happiness is, sorrow cannot be. And where sorrow is, happiness cannot be. And Natalia says, unpleasurable events? Yes. Yes. Hell yes. A million times yes. Ah, if only. And some of you can feel it now. Do you sense it? Do you glimpse this? It does not depend on anything that's happening to you. Your house could burn down. I cannot stress this enough. And you could watch everything you love in this world come to dust. And it will not touch your ananda. I promise you, because ananda is not a type of emotion to be threatened by contrary emotions. It is an all-encompassing intensity that feels so legit, so awesome, um, that it is self-sufficient. So what we call ananda is the uncaused one, unconditioned one. Uh, it's not dependent on anything and it cannot be removed by anything. This is all very important. So... Why do you want to know Atman equals Brahman? Because if you knew that, if you but knew yourself to be the all, gone will be all your restless craving. Nothing can complete you since everything is in you. Gone will be all your fear. Nothing can threaten you since everything is in you. So think of this. You only desire something if you consider it to be apart from you and therefore you need to bring it towards you. You only fear something when you consider it to be apart from you and therefore you need to run from it. Of uh, Desire and aversion define your restless experience of this body and this mind. But if you know yourself to be the one in which all things exist, never will you desire, never will you fear, um, and you will just rest. That's the secret, you know. Not Rhonda Bryan's law of attraction. Okay, there's some value to that, but this is the secret. Yes. Okay, 
So let's elaborate a little bit. The next Upanishad, and don't worry, if you're not getting it yet, good, good. That's what meditation is for. You know, that's what austerity is for. Once you get it though, that's, that's all you need. You're done. <laughs> um, and the practice of meditation austerity is just to remember this truth. Because, okay, also note this, right? It's not that you become God. It's not Atman becomes Brahman. No, no, no. Atman equals Brahman. Self equals God. Meaning, you always were God. You always will be God. And you are now God. The only thing separating you from this insight is attachment to the body and mind. You know? So yoga is not about becoming better. It's not even about healing. You know? It's about realizing that you are not the body that needs to be healed. You're not the mind that needs to grow. You're the one in which the mind and body are vibrating. Yes. Actually, there's a nice uh, conversation we had about free will. It's a separate lecture. I, I refer you to that. It's, it's a very in-depth. We spent two hours on the question of free will. We won't cover it here. It's too technical. Um, and I want to continue to move on. So let's look at the next Upanishad, the Taitriya Upanishad. So the Taitriya Upanishad is a story of a boy and his father. His father is a sage, and the boy wants to learn about Atman or Brahman or God. So the boy says, how do I find it? And the father says, study the body, you know, Annomayo Kosha, the body. And he studies it and he realizes the body is changing. So notice this, your body is changing, is it not? Every moment the body is changing. Even from the standpoint of materialist science, the body is changing. The body you're in now is not the body you were in when you were four and certainly won't be the body that you have when you're 85. <laughs> Some of you are yogis. I always make the joke that you will stay looking like Ryan for a while. You know, you're doing your headstands. Your circulation is great. You won't see wrinkles for a bit. A lot of you are hatha yogis. But eventually you will. I'm sorry. Eventually you might see a little gray hair. Uh, even if you're like an everyday ashtanga yoga practitioner, you know. So the body changes. How can the body be the unchanging thing? It changes, no? Then he came back to the father and he said, I don't think the body is God. Or he says something like, I found God, um, but, uh, but it must be beyond the body. And then he says, yes, yes. Now go and study it in the energy. So then the boy goes a little deeper. From the body, he starts studying the etheric body or the subtle body known as the pranumayokosha, your energy body. This is your moods, your... Um, your uh, it's, it's not so much thoughts. I don't even want to say emotions. They are like... Uh, energetic state. Sometimes you feel alert and excited. Sometimes you feel kind of dull and dissipated. During the course of this conversation, some ideas will excite you. Your prana will increase. Some ideas will be like so convoluted and confusing. You'll be, what is this strange drunken monkey thought talking about? And you'll think about like tomorrow and, 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 and you'll, you'll kind of get, you know, a little tired. But notice through the course of tonight, no matter how long you're staying, you, you will fluctuate in your energy. So how can that be the unchanging thing? Now go deeper. The father says, go deeper. Deeper than your moods, there is your mind. The mannomayokosha, the realm of thoughts and emotions. If you thought the body changed, if you thought your energy levels changed, look at the mind. It changes even more. You know the Katy Perry song? She goes, you change your clothes like a girl. You change your mind like a girl changes clothes. She makes that rather sexist statement in the song. Because you're hot and you're cold. You're yes and you're no. That's the mind, right? It just flits between those two poles. You're in and you're out. You're up and you're down. You're wrong when it's right. You're black when it's white. We fight, we break up. 
we kiss, we make up. Actually, Katy Perry can do the rest of this lecture for me because she encapsulated the Buddha's first teaching perfectly. Yes, the mind is polarity. It's dualistic. You're just going between these thoughts. So how can the mind be the unchanging thing, you tell me? It changes, no? You go a little deeper. The intellect, the this is technical, but the intellect is in yoga or, or in this South Asian philosophical tradition. The thing which by Nish Perry, Joe Perry, one of my favorite guitar players from Aerosmith, so cool on stage, just leaning back with his Le- Gibson Les Paul. Anyway, um, uh, sorry, I was thinking of Joe Perry, a bit of a man crush. I'm like, yeah, no, um. The mind is changing, so how can you be the mind? Now you go to the intellect. So in South Asian philosophy, the intellect um, is your ability to make sense of the data that your mind receives from the sense organ. So this is yogic anatomy. Um, You don't perceive the world with your sense organs. You perceive it with your intellect or with your mind. So what happens is something in the world outside comes to your eyes, but your eyes don't see. Don't make the mistake. Your eyes are not responsible for seeing. Your eyes are one part in a change of causality, right? So the eyes must transmit the data to the retina. If you didn't have the retina, it doesn't matter. You can have 10,000 eyes, you won't see a thing. So the retina is the actual organ of perception. This is called an indriya, organ of perception. That carries data to the mind. And the buddhi or the intellect is what assigns a label and a meaning to that perception. You know, so even that changes. And if you go a little deeper, even, I don't really want to get into it, but the Ananda Maya Kosha, the bliss body or the causal body, even that changes, you know. So essentially what the father is teaching the son is God is the one thing that doesn't change. Therefore, it cannot be the body, nor can it be the energy. And by the way, uh, Danish energy is Holy Ghost, right? Nor can it be uh, energy capital E, so prana as, as, a, as a field, that's the Holy Ghost, or, or the word of God, the vibration, if you will. So that cannot be God. So if the body isn't God, if the energy isn't God, um, if the um, mind isn't God, if the intellect isn't God, what is God? So now you know something. God isn't a being out there. It's not a body. You can't go and meet God and give him a high five. He's not a body. She's not a body. It's not a body. Nor is it even an energy. Some people are like, God is energy. No, no, no. The Upanishadic term for God is that which doesn't change, that which is eternal, but the body's not eternal. The, 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 um, uh, the energy is not eternal. So how can God be energy? Energy is always changing and it's not the unchanging thing. God is no, not even a thought. It's not even a concept or a philosophical idea in the mind or the intellect since those things change. God is not even pure emptiness because that fluctuates. And the Buddhists might have a problem with that. We'll get into it when we start talking the Buddha. So what is God? God is you. You in the sense of your awareness. Here's the most important thing about this teaching. The only way you can perceive change. So follow this closely. In fact, this argument alone is enough to give you an insight. So it's worth following carefully. Uh, And if you don't get it, if this argument doesn't make sense, meditation. If meditation is hard for you, austerity. If austerity is hard for you, stop buying into so many beliefs. (laughs) You see, so the method is there. It's there for you. So notice this, follow this closely. In order to experience change, you must be apart from that change to perceive it. In other words, you don't notice that the world is moving, right? Because you're in it. But if you went out of the earth, you would see it moving. In other words, if you were a particle of water in a river, you wouldn't know you were moving. 
If you were on a train in uniform motion, according to Mr. Newton, the laws of physics work the same on the train as it does on the platform. So which is moving now, you tell me? The platform or the train? From the point of view of Newtonian mechanics, it doesn't matter. This is the basis of relativity. You could just as well say the platform is moving and the train is stationary as you can say the train is moving and the platform is stationary. So why is it that you say the train is moving? Because you're on the platform. On the platform, apart from the change, you say the train is moving. Why do you say the river is flowing? Because you're on the bank. From the bank of the river, the flow of the river makes sense. So the only way to perceive change is to be not that change. This is important. So if your body is changing, and if you notice your body is changing, you are not the body. Elegant. Elegant philosophy. So why are you worried if the body dies? Why are you scared? Why are you scared of torture and pain? Why are you scared of sickness? You are not the body. What does it have to do with you? Of course, it's hard to appreciate this point. You can be like, yes, Nish, I'm not the body. I'm not the body. But someone pinches you and then you're reminded very much that you are the body. <laughs> so it's more than a concept, of course. But yeah, so you can't be the body. The body changes. Are you energy? God, no. Energy changes. The fact that you notice energy. Um, yes, Caleb, thank you. <laughs> Uh, uh, Dennis, you're confusing. Oh, Dennis, if you could uh, message the audience as opposed to directly messaging me, that would be helpful. So just use use the chat, say everyone, because your questions are very good. And uh, you know, our philosophy depends on questions. So the more questions you ask, the better for our chat. You know, because these are questions everybody asks. And yes, Destiny, exactly. These are concepts that should turn into experiences. These stories should be understood. So you're not... So you're not the body, right? You, you're, you're not even in the body because you're not the body. You're just apart from the body. In order to notice the body changing, you are not the body. This is so important. Grok this. In order to notice change, you must be apart from the change. Since your body is changing and since you notice it, you are not the body. Now, Dinesh, you're going to see why you're conflating awareness with the mind in a little bit. Uh, when I explain the next Upanishad, awareness does not change. You're going to see why. Follow this. So the body changes, not the body. God is not energy because energy changes. God is not the mind because the mind changes. You know? So what doesn't change? Anything that you can be aware of changes. So the objects of awareness change. The thing that doesn't change is the fact that you are aware. Dig that. And this is so elusive because you're going to be like, I don't get it. Good, because this is not an object. You cannot define what it is I'm talking about. You can only show what it's not. So it's not the body. It's not the mind. It's not the energy. Nor is it any ideas in the mind like blue boy in the banks of the Yamuna, Shiva in Kailash. No, it's not that. It's, it's not any philosophy. It's not even what I'm saying now. It's the fact that you are able to be aware of my saying it. It's eerie. And, Dinesh, it's not your mind. And I'm going to show you why. So let's go to the next Upanishad. So this is the last of our Upanishadic tour, okay? And then we're just going to go onwards. Because now we have everything we need for the rest of our, 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 our history. It all gets founded upon this, these stones, if you will. So what is awareness? Now, this is a central mistake in this teaching. Conflating awareness with the waking mind consciousness. 
be very careful. When I say you are God, it's so dangerous if you're like, oh yeah, Nish is God. No, I am aware of Nish, am I not? Nish is a construct. It's a conglomerate of thoughts that my parents gave me, that some of you give me. (laughs) Uh, But importantly, Nish as a personality is in my awareness as an object. And I notice Nish changes. And Nish has been changing a lot, I've noticed, this drunken monkey. Can't decide what he wants to do. One moment he's playing guitar, another moment he's teaching philosophy. What on earth is this drunken monkey doing? Nobody knows. But because I know that Nish is changing, I know I'm not Nish. That's what we're talking about. That awareness is of the quality chid. Chida basha is the quality reflected in your mind. So here's something very important. Uh, Dinesh, yes, we have a lot of work to do. These are all great questions. Um, yes, Douglas, we will talk about the realizations. Don't worry. So Dinesh is asking really great questions. And Dinesh is asking, doesn't the body produce awareness since the body produces the brain and the brain produces the mind? Not so. This is called materialism. In the school of materialism, um, welcome, welcome. In the school of materialism, the body comes first, matter comes first, then the mind comes as a result of the brain. So awareness emerges from the body. This is materialism. And we did an entire like hour and a half lecture two weeks ago or three weeks ago as to why this idea is baloney. It doesn't work. Um, and the, the key is the hard problem of matter and the hard problem of consciousness. Do you support post-analyzed matter? <laughs> okay, welcome. So uh, I'm not going to um, discuss that, you know, whether the brain comes from the body and whether the mind comes from the body. I won't discuss that. What I do want to discuss, though, very importantly, is um, this argument. So follow it. Just don't worry about, like, concepts you've heard in the past. Some scientist somewhere on TV told you the body created the brain and the brain created awareness. Why take that on faith? Stop taking things on faith. Um, And iPhone, you know, Swami Vivekananda used to say, God and truth are my only politics. So I'm going to stand by that. I'm going to give you tools now, hopefully, to feel meaningful as an embodied being and what you choose to do with that is up to you. So how you express yourself politically um, will be empowered by the philosophies we're talking about today. You know. <laughs> okay, so um, this is so important, okay? Chit, chit versus chida basha. I won't get into why hard problem of matter or hard problem of consciousness exists, but at least I want you to turn away from accepting things on faith. That means all statements, whether they be religious or from the Church of Science. The Church of Science tells you, you have a body and that body gives you a brain and that brain gives you conscious. How do you know? Has any scientist been able to show you a thought? No. The best they can do is neurosynaptic firing. What does the word glycine mean to you? mean to you? What does the word neuron or synapse or firing of neurons mean to you? Nothing. So do not um, work with that. Instead, work with your immediate perception of, of, of reality now and follow this argument. You know the body is changing and you know you cannot perceive change unless you're separate from that change. So you cannot be the body infallible logic, right? Oh, why do, do, I, do I feel pain? All of that. These are good questions to ask, but this is not an Advaita Vedanta class. 
So we won't really go. I have to, I, you know, I'm an Advaitin. And so I really want to get into this because I believe that this philosophy can answer all these questions. And indeed, it has been doing that for thousands of years. But I must restrain myself and just leave it at this. The Taitriya Upanishad gives you yogic anatomy and it shows you that God is not a body, nor is it an energy, nor is it a thought, nor is it an intellectual construct. It's the awareness in which all of that comes and goes. Okay, yes, you are luring me into my favorite discussion. <laughs> yes, Satchit Ananda is the unchanging thing. Satchit Ananda. And once you discover that, you know it to be none other than you. So I'm going to give you one more Upanishad. It's very important and it tells you what Om means. So that word Om, it's chanted all over uh, uh, the world. It's chanted in studios. You'll see it on corny, cheesy t-shirts. Um, you know, you'll see it as a corny, corny title in, in a yoga studio. <clears throat> no, you'll just see it all over the place, right? Uh, and, and so what does it mean? What is Om? Why do we chanting that, that phrase, om, 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 this, om, that. What do we mean? So the Mandukya Upanishad explains om. In the 8th century, a very powerful mystic, one of my favorites, his name is Gaudapada. Gaudapada. Uh, <laughs> every time I say, you are not the body, you'll end up on the... Yes, yes. If you take a shot, every time you say, you are not the mind, you are not the body. Advaita Vedanta is all about a process known as neti neti, which means not this, not that. You come to what you are by realizing what you're not. So our project as a philosophical... We're Gnostics, right? So Casey understands this. Advaita Vedantins are Gnostics. We philosophize. And what we do is we find out what we're not. And it's like when you're doing multiple choice. You know the answer is D because you know it's not A, B, or C. Uh, but you arrive at D by, uh, by elimination, if you will. So yes. Now, Gaudapada, in the 8th century, composes a text known as the Mandukya Karika. Karika means something like commentary or verses or stanzas. Uh, welcome. Welcome, Amy Lin. You're most welcome here. So Mandukya is an Upanishad. The Mandukya Karika is Gaurapada's, um, what we say, commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad. So if you're interested, you can check that out for the teaching I'm about to give you now. It's a great teaching. And I think a lot of you are here now because you heard this teaching on my TikTok. Um, and it's the, the best I have to give you. You know, it's the, and remember, I'm just the messenger, right? So none of these teachings are mine. They're all there in the text. But this, I believe to be the best. I, will, I would have shot my load after I give you this next piece, honestly. Um, and here it is. Here it is. There are three states of consciousness that you experience. You experience waking, what we call jagrat, which is this now. Swami Sarva Priyananda makes a very nice joke. He says, usually when we talk philosophy, most of you aren't in waking. <laughs> but on the off chance that some of you are awake, this is jagrat, waking, right? The second one is Swapna, dreaming. The third one is Shushupti, deep sleep. Notice they're all categorically different from another. Now, Gaurapada even goes so far as to say it's not even three, it's actually two. Waking and dreaming are practically the same. And think about it. Your memories in your waking life, do they not feel incredibly dreamlike? You know, your memory of a dream Right, Amanda? Your memory of last night's dream and your memory of what happened to you last year, so wispy, so immaterial, 
this is a dream. Do you not feel how dreamlike this moment is? It's so insubstantial. Before you can grasp the moment, it goes away. So Gaudapada is so radical. He says, actually, there's only two. Waking slash dreaming and deep sleep. Basically, the existence of a self and a no-self. Mandukya Upanishad is a little more liberal. It says, dreaming, waking, and deep sleep. Okay, notice this. When you are in a dream, you are unaware of your waking life. You know, yes, Madeline, take care. Good to see you. (laughs) Yes, so while you are, thank you for donating. While you are in uh, waking, you take yourself very seriously. Oh, I'm Nish and I have my IRS thing to deal with this month. I have these problems. I got to pay my taxes. I got to do all of this. And uh, oh no, I got to, I got to renew my visa. All all that stuff is is Nish's waking life, right? Um, But then Nish goes to sleep and gone is the visa concern. Gone is the IRS tax concern. Gone is the delights and triumphs of the waking. Yeah, we we raised $6,000 for India. Pat on the back, Nish. Good. You know, like all that nonsense of waking goes away when I dream. I'm not even aware that India is going through a tough time right now. No, I'm in dream. So everything you know about your waking life secedes when you go into the dream. Yes. And by the way, uh, someone asked if you want, it's a Venmo. Uh, we don't, unfortunately, we don't use the cash app. I, we should have thought of that. But yes, it's a Venmo. And remember, it's not about just fiscally donating. If you can just feel good now, that's good enough. Just feel great. You know, that's all you need to do. And all we're doing is sitting here to smile with Ryan. You know, look at him. He's so sweet. He feels so happy. Um, and then that's all we want to do. Okay. So uh, when you go to dream, you forget about waking completely. You take your dream self very seriously. No longer is it niche with the IRS stuff. It's, I don't know, Joe Perry, what, what have you. It's like a dream, niche Perry, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question, Destiny. It's an interesting question. We'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit, about India socially and these ideas. So yeah, there is a relationship, of course, Amy. Thank you for helping. We are raising together, you know. Uh, there is a relationship between dream and waking. I think that's where Gaurapada also collapses them. So dream does kind of mimic waking and the waking does kind of mimic dream. You know, some of you, I had this experience. Nish, the, the boy came home from school, went to sleep and dreamt a whole day. Now, the dream wasn't so far-fetched. So when he woke up, he wasn't sure which was the school day and which was the dream school day. They both seemed very similar. Uh, and of course, the dream affected the school, but maybe the opposite is also true. Maybe today was affected by what you dreamt. I don't know. So Gaurapada actually collapses them and just says, uh, look, you're in your dream self, right? Um, and you take your dream life very seriously. It might be a nightmare. You might, hello, Amy. Good to see you. It's always a joy. You might be terrified by all the stuff going on in your dream, but then you wake I think up. You just said hello, Eddie. Hi. You wake up and you feel a great sense of ease and peace because you realize, oh, it was just a dream. I was never in the dream. The dream was in me. I'm chilling. Chilling like a villain. I never lost my partner. She never left me. She's right here in bed. We're chilling. And then you wake her up and you're like, babe, do you still love me? And she's like, I'm trying to sleep, you doll. Yes, I do. And you're like, it was a dream. (laughs) So you really took it seriously in your dream. Then you woke up and the dream was gone. You took this, you're taking this now quite seriously. You go to the dream, it's all gone. 
you know? So Gaurapada is saying, waking and dreaming are very different. You have a waking self and you have a dreaming self. Now, here's the third thing. You also experience a deep sleep state. So we define a deep sleep state by the absence of waking and the absence of dreaming. This is a very important point because in deep sleep, you are a no self. But you as an awareness are not absent. Do you realize this? Because if your absence, sorry, if the absence of a self meant the absence of awareness, then you would be surprised every time you woke up in the morning. You'd be like, where? You know, because there would have been a discontinuity in your awareness. So this is the point, Dinesh. If we conflate awareness with the waking mind, how is it that you are able to know you slept deeply and dreamlessly? In the absence of a waking self, in the absence of a dreaming self, something was there, no? Something was there that is enabling the waking Nish to say, I slept like a log. I slept beautifully. Who was that? It wasn't Nish. Nish was not there, nor was there. And if you say, oh, it's your mind, how do you know? Stop taking things on faith. Deal with this argument as it is right now, which is, do you not realize that in the absence of waking, in the absence of dreaming, in the absence of all selves, something was there? Yes, so Amy, don't take that on faith. Some scientists told you that. uh, and, and, And you're just taking it on faith. You're just like, yeah, I read it somewhere. No, no, no. Interact with your immediate perception here and now. Don't believe religious leaders. Don't believe scientists. Who is the professor to tell you what your quality of your awareness is? Only you are the authority of your life, you know? So in this argument, it says, uh, absent from all our concepts of God or, or, or brainwaves, it seems to be the case that when Amy isn't there and when Dream AB isn't there, something is there. Something is there to be aware. Now we say, that is it. Tatvamasi. That thou art. Aham Brahmasmi. When I say I am awareness, I'm not talking about Nish, nor am I talking about Dream Nish, nor am I even talking about causal body no Nish. I'm talking about the awareness in which all of those three things existed. Do you see? Okay, so we're done. We did the Upanishads, okay? We're done. Uh, Let's move on. Um, And so here's the point I wanted to make. I'm sure some of you will remember the conversation we had about the Vedic pastoral rites. It feels like forever ago now, since we went down this Upanishadic rabbit hole. Let's go back there. So the people who were more interested in the rituals went off and they're called Purva Mimamsa. I will, uh, uh, Dinesh, we will do that eventually. We'll kind of break down some mantras. Oh, whoops. Okay, so Purva Mimamsa means to reverentially read the ritual part of the Vedas. Then there's something else called Uttara Mimamsa, which means higher reading. Uttara means like north or higher. Actually, it uh, doesn't mean north. Dakshina means south. Vama means north. But it kind of means like upper, Uttara. Now, uh, it, it means like Gnostic reading. You know, like a deep reading, esoteric reading, if you will. There's a phrase for this in the Quran. I forgot. There's a way to read the Quran as an exoteric text and also an esoteric text. I think Rumi, the great Sufi mystic, said, the Quran is like a pair of breasts. It's different from the child, for the child and for the lover. The lover and the child uh, appreciate the breast differently. (laughs) One is more intimate with it. One understands it more. So Rumi's rather lewd way of saying there are different ways to read the same text. Uh, and, And Sufis are very interested in this. 
which is reading the Quran esoterically, not exoterically. So Uttara Mimamsa, you can compare it to that. It's and, and not even that, it's like looking at the Upanishads more than the Vedas on a philosophical level. So um, this gives us what we call Vedanta. Okay. Vedanta basically means, Anta means the end of, Vedas mean the Vedas. So Vedanta means the summary of, or the end, or the big point of the Vedas. It's the badamchs of the Vedas. So you can think of Vedanta as the ghee. It is the clarified butter. Once you've churned and churned and churned your ocean of the Rig Veda, Yajur, Sama, Tarva Veda, what do you get? Uh, Kaz said, like when you read and have insight from that reading. Uh, yeah, you could think of that. Oh, Savannah, these are all uh, South Indian, philo- sorry, not South, South Asian philosophy. So we're talking about yoga, Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Charvaka, anything that you consider to be Indian, we're talking about that today, you know. And then we'll talk about Nepal and Britain and all of that in a bit. So what is the Vedas? The butter. What is Vedanta? The ghee. The clarified butter. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Vedanta is probably the most orthodox part of Hinduism. Good night, Kalo. Thank you for being here. Vedanta is probably the most orthodox part of Hinduism next to Purva Mimamsa. Purva Mimamsa is definitely more orthodox. Vedanta is orthodox. Now to confuse you further. So thus far in your arsenal, yeah, you have two terms. Purva Mimamsa, which means ritualist, Vedic ritualist, and you have... Uh, Uttara Mimamsa, reverential reading or Vedanta. In Vedanta, there are three kinds. All right, so I'll break it down. Three kinds of Vedanta. My favorite, the one we talk about a lot, is Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta, Advaita. Vaita, Dvaita means two. Advaita means not two. So it means the not two philosophy. And that's what we've been discussing for the past hour. Only Satchit Ananda exists. Everything else is a mere appearance within Satchit Ananda. And there are arguments to prove to you that because a thing changes, thereby it is unreal. So Advaita Vedanta is interested in this shloga or slokan. Slogan? Sloka? Verse. Slogan. Slogan. Yes, it, sloka becomes slogan. Wow, I had an Indo-European language like brain fart right there. I was like, oh, mixed up all the Indo-European languages. No, slogan is this. Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Only Brahman is real. The world is false. False as an, a, a thing that's, yes, not to Advaita, not to philosophy. False in the sense that it exists apart from Brahman. So notice, an Advaita Vedantist doesn't believe in God as a separate existence or as a creator deity. You know, yes, in Maya, meaning in this realm, God is Brahman reflected in the all. You are Brahman reflected in the mind and body. There is only one sun, but if we had 10 cups, there would be 10 mini suns in each cup, right? So do you realize there are many of us here, what? There is 41 particip- 40 participants apart from this one. There are 40 suns. But how many suns are there really? Only one, right? We are all just 40 reflections of the same sun. Yes. So uh, if you're interested in Advaita Vedanta, there are a few sources for it. Um, So I'm going to give you some books now. Let's go. It's time for the book references. Um, Gaurapada's Mandukya Karaka is a great one. But Shankaracharya is the main head honcho. 
he emerged in the like 8th century AD. We're skipping around the timeline a little bit. He emerged in the 8th century AD, and he was the one that formulated Advaita Vedanta most articulately. So he commented on about 10 Upanishads, um, and he gave us the Advaita Vedanta readings. Obviously, that's the school I'm from, so when I teach you the Upanishads, I teach you the Shankaracharya versions. There are other ways to read the Upanishads, you know. So you might conclude that the mind and body don't, they aren't illusory. They're real. They're changing, but they're real. And you might conclude that you aren't awareness. I don't know. There are other ways, other conclusions. I think I kind of, yeah. But you can still do it, okay? So Shankaracharya formulated Advaita Vedanta. And just so you know, we have a very friendly kind of competition with, with the other Vedanta schools. We love each other. We're like, they're like the embarrassing cousins to us. Actually, no, we're the embarrassing cousins to them because we're so eccentric and we don't care about caste or castlessness. Cast, you know, we don't care about cast or class. Someone got really angry today because I blew out some incense on TikTok. They were like, I'm the daughter of a pundit and a scholar. How dare you blow out Agrabati? You must wave it. And I'm like, sister, beware of superstition. They're just like, this is not superstition. This is tradition. I was like, all right, granted. What an Advaita Vedantin sees as superstition is definitely tradition for other forms of Hinduism. Let's respectfully disagree. And they were like, no, here's why, um, you know, this violated the offering. It's so classless of you to do that. Don't you know better? You're Indian. Have you ever been to India? And I'm like, is my breath any less God than the incense? Than the one who is holding the incense? If your God is all pervasive, what offering is a bad offering? You know, and then she got super angry. So you'll notice that we're like the embarrassing cousin because we're always breaking rules. We're telling Brahmins that they should eat with Shudras, like disobeying castes. So we're kind of like, oh, <laughs> we're the most radical, antinomian and progressive of the schools. You know, and, and, and I think that's why Vivekananda brought it to the West and it was like fire in the West uh, in a feudalistic Victorian transatlantic community. How refreshing to hear that the royal family is no more God than you the pauper are God. All is made of one same substance. Nothing exists apart from that substance with which to dilute this substance. So how can there be more concentrated God and less concentrated God? What's the diluting agent? It's not there. In order to have concentrated orange juice and not concentrated orange juice, you need water. But if no water exists apart from the orange juice to begin with, no one is more God than any other person. Nothing is more God than any other person. And to prove it, the Tantrikas in the 10th century AD would eat feces, menses, semen, phlegm, and one more, saliva, I believe. Basically, they would take the things that Vedic Brahmin society thought the most repugnant and they would say, God is here too. I'll show you. And if you think hygiene is an issue, come on. At this level of realization, your metabolism is like, you can digest anything. Relax. So the modern day version of this practice is, are you a vegan, a raw foods vegan? Eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> this is Tantra. This is Tantra. Of course, if these ideas disturb you, they should. Tantra was very disturbing. Some parts of Tantra were very disturbing. Uh, but anyway, Advaita Vedanta says God is everywhere the same and you are it. So you and the world, it's just awareness. It's appearing to you as this world of many things. Uh, we all look like 40 different people, um, but that's just an appearance. Once you realize only awareness is, you'll be able to see the sun and that doesn't diminish your ability to appreciate the reflection. 
you know? In fact, you can appreciate the reflection a little more if you weren't trying to seduce it or belittle it. Do you realize that? This notion of separateness gives us two things. The desire to draw you towards me or the desire to push you away from me. Either I'm trying to seduce you or I'm trying to like repel you. But Advaita Vedanta ends these two things. Why should I seduce anyone when we're all part of the same awareness? Why should I fear anyone or push anyone away with repugnance um, when we're all the same awareness? You know. So this is the castlessness of Advaita Vedanta um, and it's very radical. Uh, so that's Advaita Vedanta. Then another philosopher appears. So Shankaracharya appears in the 8th century and writes about Advaita Vedanta. Um, in the, by the way, Advaita Vedanta, the, the central text from Shankaracharya are Atma Bodha. I recommend Swami Nikkilananda's translation. It's a great translation. Swami Nikkilananda's Atma Bodha. Another one that's really awesome is Viveka Chudaimini, which means the jewel of discrimination. So these are the two like textbook Advaita Vedanta texts. Um, they're pretty boring. You might fall asleep. They're very technical, uh, but they're awesome. Then the arguments you hear from me, like the seer and the seen argument, if you liked that, that's from Drig. Yeah, it's kind of sad that the idea of castlessness is so radical. Yeah. Drig Drishya Viveka. That's by probably Vidyaranya. It's anonymously written. But this is great. Drig Drishya Viveka appears in the 15th centuries. We call this Prakaranas. I don't worry about these terms so much, but a Prakarana basically means a preparatory text for Advaita Vedanta. You know, so Drig Drishya Viveka is one such text. One of my favorites is Pancha Desi by Vidyaranya also. Then, um... There is Vedanta Sara, which means essence of Vedanta. These are all great technical texts. So if you were all monks right now, and if we were at the ashram, we would be learning these texts first. So you would first learn Vedanta Sara. It's like the most boring of them, actually, Vedanta Sara, but the most technical. So I would first ground you in Vedanta. You must know what Brahman means, what existence means. What do I mean when I say real? What do I mean when I say changing like I must define the rules of the game before you can play it it's like math you can't do math unless you're aware of the axioms Euclidean axioms you know so like that Vedanta Sara Drigdrishya Viveka these all prepare you so there's your reading list for Advaita Vedanta however these are such technical texts that I I think if you want to get into Advaita Vedanta study Swami Vivekananda probably the greatest saint who ever lived every Indian thinks that uh, most of us actually uh, but he's got great text Jnana Yoga is a great one to start with I recommend his autobiography by Swami Yes, exactly. Nikkilananda. Um, exactly that, Garvit. Exactly that. God is everywhere the same. So God is no more in something than in something else. Importantly, you must end the way in which you lose the wor uh, view the world. So as long as you see the world as a racial, racial place, you will feel oppressed or you will feel like the oppressor. Once you get rid of that lens and you see it all as one awareness, you will effortlessly express that wholesomeness and it will uh, permeate through all of your actions. That's how you live a life as a radical non-dualist, you know? Um, and that's when you get true compassion. So now if you help people, you're helping them condescendingly. You're helping them as the other. Help them as them. You know, that's how Advaita Vedanta can be applied today. As the same way it was being applied back then. You know, find out that we are all one. And then you can appreciate differences. You just won't be threatened by them. Uh, you know, so yes. 
end, think, think of this. If you end fear and if you end desire, what harm can you do to anybody? You know, what slaves are you going to go and take? You know, what Holocaust are you going to start? You won't. You know, there's nothing to fear, nothing to desire. So you won't really, you won't do anything. <laughs> and you can just kind of be. And if you can just kind of be and chill, um, then we have a very real way of approaching the problems in our world. You'll be much more effective at cleaning up society if you can remain in your non-dual awareness. It's a very politically powerful uh, tool. Swami Vivekananda came here to teach it. He came here to say, anybody who tells you you are a sinner is a sinner because you only see in others what is there in you. So can you imagine how demented people have to be to tell you that you're demented, that you're broken, that you are born in guilt? I mean, what are you looking at? It's like um, the religious fundamentalist sees in the Disney cartoon sexuality because it only shows him his own repressed sexuality. Ramakrishna gave an example. In the twilight, you look at a log. The lover sees the log as her beloved. The thief sees the log as a cop. And the boy sees the, the baby boy sees the log as a ghost. What you see in the dim appearance of a log depends on who you are. You know? So if you go around seeing sin in everybody, you might want to look at that. <laughs> so we don't judge, right? And in Advaita Vedanta, it was very important. Uh, it's an interesting question, Nivedita. Very interesting question. And Advaita Vedanta says, yes, doesn't exist. Nothing exists. Um, it only seems to exist perceptually. Once you learn Advaita Vedanta, the body and mind might continue to be in the world doing good things. Shankaracharya, after all, continued to write dualistic hymns and he com continued to go all around the India teaching. Shankaracharya, as a non-dualist, set up ashrams um, and in each ashram, he initiated people into Shakti worship. Why? Nothing's real, right? True. But until you can realize that, you might as well pretend like gods are real. I mean, it gives you something to work with, right? <laughs> so, yes, we must distinguish between relative truths and absolute truths. So after Shankaracharya, notice this is a very lofty philosophy. Some of you are just like, what, what is this? How do I work with this? How do I practice this? We're going to move on because I could talk about this all day. Uh, but after Shankaracharya, he was the first. You know, he commented on the Bhagavad Gita. He commented on the Upanishads. After Shankaracharya, you get a teacher known as Ramanuja. Oh, sorry, Nivedita texted you. Ramanuja Acharya. Ramanuja thought a philosophy known as Vishisht Advaita. So Advaita means non-dual. Vishisht Advaita means qualified non-duality. So this is the idea that there is only one thing, but that one thing has very real differences. So there are legit 40 different aspects of the one now. They're all real. KC is as real as Nish. Uh, but they're all just parts of a whole. But the parts are real. Advaita rejects that the parts are real. Do you know why? How can you divide space? How can you compartmentalize awareness into parts? Ridiculous. Yeah, okay, sorry. I will restrain myself. Yet, Vishisht Advaita says you can do this. You can have sparks of the divine. Even if it's just one divine, each spark is distinct. The philosophy of yoga... Uh, comes from the philosophy of Sankhya. So we're going to, from Vishish Advaita now, from Ramanujacharya, we're going to fast forward. Actually, no, we're going to go back. We're going we're gonna to think about Sankhya. So Purva Mimamsa is the first school of philosophy I gave you. Just to recap, it means ritualist. 
Then I gave you Vedanta, which means philosopher. Now I'll give you Sankhya. Sankhya is a kind of philosophy that's different from Vedanta and different from Mimamsa. Sankhya says there are two things. So Sankhya is dualistic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Abby. Yes, I know. Don't worry. We're recording it. It'll be available on Patreon. Uh, but we will take a break and do some questions and answers, you know, before we get to um, 20th century or, or whatever. So in Sankhya, there aren't gods. There isn't even one god. There are just two things. One is Purusha and the other one is Prakriti. Purusha means spirit. Prakriti means flux or creatrix or nature. Sankhya started around 6th century BC, I want to say. Uh, 6th century before Christ, that is. And it was started by a guy named Kapila. Kapila was a university professor. Um, and as a university professor, he was very interested in metaphysics. Obviously, he was like responding to the Vedas and responding to Purva Mimamsa. But in the 6th century, he wrote a text known as the Sankhya Sutra or the Aphorisms of Sankhya. And the Sankhya Sutra, you can re read it. There's a lot of good translations. I think, no, not Malinson. Good translations out there. But in Sankhya, the only thing you need to know is that there is Purusha, meaning spirit, and that there is Prakriti. Purusha and Prakriti are always categorically different from one another. So this might excite you. Sankhya doesn't say that God, Purusha, created Prakriti, the world. Because God is apart from the world such that God or Purusha has no desires in the world. Why would a being that is apart from nature create nature or manage nature or influence nature? You know what's crazy about this? Kapila and Sankhya are very materialistic when it comes to explaining things in nature. They really do say that everything in nature can be explained with regards to other things in nature. So they would be comfortable with the Big Bang. God didn't cause a Big Bang, no. But they don't reject God either. They say God is spirit, Purusha, it's pure awareness, and that awareness exists apart from nature. Now, the only reason you feel yourself to be an individual is because Purusha and Prakriti have come together in some mysterious way. They don't really describe how that happens, but it's enough to say that it happens. Yes, that which happens of itself. Anyway, so of itself, Purusha and Prakriti align. They don't touch. They never touch. They're always... Uh, opposed to one another, but they align in such a way that Purusha takes on the shape of Prakriti. So you are Purusha. Much like Advaita Vedanta says, you are awareness, mistaking yourself to be the body and the mind. So too Sankhya makes the same claim. Purusha forgets herself in this Prakriti. She didn't create the Prakriti. Prakriti created itself. Uh, and in Sankhya, we get the phrase gunas, Gunas means flavors or, or uh, it means qualities, really. So we are getting pretty technical here. No, cast, not like Shiva Shakti. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and you will see why. It, it's actually the opposite of Shiva Shakti. It's the exact opposite of Shiva Shakti. Because Shiva Shakti is like too... No, no, don't worry. Sorry, guys. I know I reacted quite strongly there. But it's because it's such an important nuance. Um, and it makes the world of difference. You know? 
Yeah, sorry, I'm a little I'm a little technical with the phrases like Shiva, Shakti, Atman, Brahman, Purusha, Prakriti, because each phrase references a very specific stream of thought. So if we mix the phrases, um, it can be dangerous. We might mix the ideas. And if we mix the ideas, we lose the diversity, the beauty of all these different schools of thought. All able to coexist with one another, even though they all differ metaphysically on how the world is. <laughs> That's the beauty of Hinduism. They're all called Hinduism, yet they all couldn't agree uh, less. <laughs> uh, couldn't disagree more. Mm. So, it's like being at the Christmas dinner. Everyone has different political views. But at the end of the day, we still love each other. <laughs> so, because we're all brought together by one thing, which is the quest for meaning. Okay, so Sankhya is this. Purusha and Prakriti. And after I describe Sankhya, we'll do a little more stories. So Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha is different from Prakriti. But somehow it's confused itself as Prakriti. So you do some mystical technique to realize that you are not the mind, you are not the body. You never were the mind, you never were the body. Now, Advaita Vedanta says Prakriti doesn't exist. Maya, it doesn't exist. It's just illusion. It only appears to exist. And there are very specific technical arguments as to why that is the case. We won't do it. In Sankhya, it doesn't make that claim. It says, no, it does exist. It's just, you're not it. Stop mistaking yourself to be it. So the goal of Advaita Vedanta and Sankhya is very similar. Uh, albeit one difference. Both of them are interested in detaching yourself from the mind, body, and world. Except the Advaita Vedanta takes one more step, which is to ask, What's the relationship of the world to me? So I know that I am not of the world, but what is the world in relation to me? Sankhya doesn't go that far. Sankhya is satisfied to have extricated itself from the world. Um, yeah, of course, you can pick and choose. Absolutely, you can mix it in your own. But the only way you can mix it is if I isolate it for you. <laughs> so I shouldn't mix it. You can. <laughs> yes, I have to make sure I give you each stream as clearly as I can. That's, that's my work. <laughs> Okay, so Sankhya says Purusha and Prakriti are different. Advaita Vedanta says Atman and Maya are different. Sankhya says Purusha and Prakriti both exist. Advaita Vedanta says only Atman slash Brahman exists. Maya exists as, a, as an appearance inside Brahman. So they have a lot in common, but also a lot that's different. That's enough for Sankhya. That's enough to say about that. Uh, but I, the reason I introduced Sankhya to you is because it did come before the Buddha, probably. Kapila probably did precede the Buddha. And after Sankhya, yoga appeared. So yoga is very related to Sankhya. So please distinguish between yoga, lowercase y, which means spiritual practice or austerity. So remember Nachiketa. He jumped into the fire. That fire is what we call yoga, spiritual practice. But to confuse you further, we also have a big Y yoga, which is one of the, one of the six schools of Hinduism. So here are the six schools of Hinduism, yes? You have Purva Mimamsa, which we talked about, ritualist. You have Vedanta, of which there are three variants. I've only spoken of two so far. Then there's Sankhya. Now you have yoga. Yeah, so yoga comes from Sankhya, and the difference between yoga and Sankhya is this. Sankhya says God didn't create the world. Purusha, you, God, you are God. Didn't, you didn't create the world, the world just creates itself. Yoga says no. Purusha, which is one thing in Sankhya, creates the world um, by setting into motion the three gunas, rajas, tamas, and sattva. 
You know, so the three qualities of nature and quantum mechanics speaks of quarks in eerily a very similar way as Sankhya speaks of these gunas. Flavors of reality, if you will. They're like the three primary colors out of which reality is made. You know, so in yoga, the idea is that Purusha stimulates, for some, I don't really know why, but it, it, they don't really even know why either, but Purusha stimulates Sankhya. Yes, Christina, take care. Thank you for being here and supporting India. And uh, Purusha stimulates Sankhya. <laughs> what? Purusha stimulates Prakriti and creates this flux. Purusha is the creator. So yoga has a creator deity and yoga says you are each Purushas. So now you get an S after Purusha. That's the difference. Yoga is Vishisht Advaita. So if you'll remember, Vishisht Advaita means qualified non-duality. Qualified non-duality means there is one thing, but that one thing expresses itself in little parts that are all parts of the whole. So according to Sankhya, and indeed, accord, sorry, according to yoga, and indeed, according to Judaism, you are all sparks of the divine. You are each soul's. You are very real beings, um, but you're all just a part. And the goal is to merge back into the whole. But when you do, you don't lose your partness. You just kind of like hang out with all the other parts in the whole. If you think it's weird, I think it's weird too. But that's, that is it, it, the best description, I think, of Vishish Advaita as you see it in yoga. So if you're interested in Sankhya, you would read the Sankhya aphorisms of Kapila. Or you would read Plato. <laughs> Plato is very much a Sankhyan, right? Because in Plato's worldview, there is this world, Purusha, Prakriti, but then there is a world of forms, a world of ideals, you know, a world of archetypical things. There is all these shitty horses that you see here, but then there is horse, capital H, uh, of which these are merely reflections. These horses, lower H, are reflections. So Plato is a Sankhyan. He has this dualistic world. And according to Plato, they have nothing to do with one another. They're like reflections of one another, just like Sankhya says, yes? Okay, and they kind of emerge in the same time. Okay, we're done with Sankhya. This is how yoga is different from Sankhya. So if you're interested in yoga, you would read the Yoga Sutra by Patanjali. Patanjali was a sage, um, and I'm going to tell you a little story now about Patanjali. So it's story time. There is a myth. There is a myth that this world, before it was created, um, Vishnu, the god Vishnu, was asleep in an ocean of milk. So Vishnu was sleeping on a serpent. The serpent, by the way, is a metaphor for a meditative seat. The serpent is stiram meaning it's firm enough to hold Vishnu, but it's also sukham. It's soft enough so he can sit comfortably. This is how you should sit in meditation, firmly, majestically, but also comfortably, no? So this serpent is known as Adisesha. And on Adisesha, Vishnu is sleeping, dreaming the world into existence. So this world is Vishnu's dream, so to speak. Now, Vishnu suddenly becomes hot and heavy. Uh, and, and Adi Shesha starts to buckle under the weight of Vishnu. When Vishnu wakes up, the serpent says, Oh, why did you become so hot? Everyone just did a posture check when you see yeah. <laughs> Are you stiram? Are you stable? Are you sukham? Are you comfortable? Yes. Posture is very important for philosophy. If you find you're struggling to understand certain ideas, just fix your posture. You might see that it, it, it greatly improves your uh, cognition. 
Uh, Buddha would say, sit with majesty, sit with the dignity of a mountain. You are all gathered here today to learn the secrets of the universe. Sit like you intend to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Adi Sesha, the serpent, asked Vishnu, what were you dreaming about? Vishnu said, man, do I have a story for you? While I was dreaming, I saw Shiva. Shiva was dancing. He was dancing a dance. And that dance uh, was the dance of awakening. Adi Sesha said, can I see it? And Vishnu said, yes. In order to see it, you must do something for me. You must incarnate as Patanjali. Uh, and when you see the dance, you must teach people grammar. The first thing Adi Sesha was supposed to do was teach grammar, by the way. Because apparently Sanskrit was going to the dogs. Like people weren't observing the rules of Sanskrit. People were mixing up words. Language was becoming a, a mess. So Patanjali, his first texts aren't about yoga. They're about grammar. He teaches you logic for, uh, and, and, and how to speak. You know, then you have to teach people yoga. That's what Vishnu told Adi Shesha. So Adi Shesha turns into Patanjali, incarnates as Patanjali. Patanjali practices meditation sees Shiva dancing, inspired by Shiva's dance, known as the Tandava, he thereby creates yoga. So his text is the Yoga Sutra, or the aphorisms of yoga, later a text known as the Patanjala Yoga Shastra appears. It's attributed to Vyasa, the sage Vyasa, who is probably a pen name for Patanjali. So it's Patanjali commenting on Patanjali. <laughs> Anyway, we learn more about yoga from the Patanjala Yoga Shastra than we do from the Yoga Sutra. The Yoga Sutra is very abbreviated. If you're interested in studying about yoga and Sankhya, especially the relationship between these two philosophies, I recommend Swami Vivekananda's book. Vivekananda writes a book known as Raja Yoga. So earlier I gave you Jnana Yoga by Swami Vivekananda. Now I'm giving you Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda. Soon you will have all three books. The Red Raja Yoga, the Blue Jnana Yoga, and the Green Karma Yoga. Collect them all. You know, get your Pokeballs. <laughs> so, this is uh, Raja Yoga. Um, and Swami Vivekananda will take it from here. I've done the work. Uh, no more needs to be said about Yoga. No more needs to be said about Sankhya. Because now I want to talk about Shiva. So, uh, this is going to excite me the most because I'm also a Shaivite. I, my name is Selva Lingam. Lingam means the phallic Shiva. <laughs> and uh, so, my name is a little bit of a penis joke. And I'll tell you why. So, we're going to talk about Shiva now. So, remember how I told you in Vedic India, there, there weren't, um, what do you say, gods like Shiva and Vishnu really. Indra and Agni were the main gods. And there weren't really even distinctions between uh, how these gods looked. Now, the philosopher Devduk Patanaik, so I'm going to give you another book now. It's called Shiva to Shankara by Devduk Patanaik. And I'm going to cite him for a little while. So he does great work into mythology and researching. So Devduk Patanaik said, it's very likely that Shiva is not a Vedic god. Shiva is most likely a Dravidian god. So now we have these two terms, right? Aryan means noble one. It isn't a race as much as it's a cultural term for people of India. But there's also another word, Dravidian. It means southern Indian or Indians in the south. 
Um, another word for these people are the Aranyakas, which mean people of the forest. Aranyaka means like forest. So, while the Vedas are happening in the north, where it's like Pakistan, in the south, maybe like around Tamil, what is now Tamil Nadu, there is a group of ascetics who are practicing their own spirituality in the forest. Now notice this, in the north, they are nomads. In the south, they are agricultural settlements. You know? <laughs> yes, Annie, thank you very much. So this is an important point, yes? In the south, um, they are agricultural, they are settled. In the north, they are pastoral. So when they start to, when these two cultures start to merge, there is naturally a little bit of tension. So now I'm going to tell you a story about Shiva. Uh, if you want to learn the stories about gods like Vishnu and Shiva and Sarasvati and Parvati, the place to look is the Puranas. So I told you about the Vedas, yes? I told you about the Upanishads. The Vedas are like the ritual culture of India. The Upanishads are the philosophical culture of India. And the Puranas are the folk stories of India. So if you've heard any folk stories of gods and goddesses, they come from the Puranas. Puranas are for the people. Vedas are for the priests. Upanishads are for intellectual Gnostics and philosophers. Puranas are for everyone. For you and me, for children. Uh, because the Puranas contain allegory for the Upanishads. Okay, so we're going to switch modes now. I've been very, like, heady so far. I've been giving you some very uh, technical philosophy. Now I'm going to step away from that and just give you some storytelling, yeah? Um, and we're going to work out what those stories mean, what the allegory of those stories are. Uh, the laundry has arrived. How wonderful. Okay, so... Um, here are the stories. Shiva is very likely, according to Devdut Patanaik, an outsider god from the south that makes a painful interjection into polite, patriarchal, priestly Vedic society. Now you're going to learn about Tantra. Now you're really going to understand Tantra and how Tantra is opposed to the Vedas and also how it incorporates the Vedas. So here's our introduction to Tantra. It's not one of the six orthodox schools of Hinduism. It's known as heterodox, meaning outside of the orthodoxy. And you're going to realize why in a little bit. Okay, story time. There is a patriarch of Vedic culture, much like Nachiketa's father. His name is Daksha. Oh, and if you're interested in where this story is from, it's from the Shiva Purana. There's also the Linga Purana. And there is the Skanda Purana. The next few stories are going to come from these Puranas, roughly. Okay, so Daksha is the patriarch of Vedic society. And if some of you were here for Shivaratri, so this will be a little, uh, little bit of a reminiscence. So, and tonight is Shivaratri, by the way. It's a new moon. Every new moon night is Shivaratri. You were there at Mahashivaratri, which was the great new moon of the month Maga, usually around February and March. So now here you are at a mini Shivaratri. You know, the new moon in Taurus. So let's tell some stories of Shiva. Shiva um, is my Ishta Devata, my uh, patron deity, and, and it's my family deity, so do forgive me if I, if I wax a little lyrical here. 
You know, there's a lot of emotion when it comes to talking about Shiva. And hopefully you'll see why in a little bit, because he's a little bit of a bad boy, a little bit of a rock star. He's a weirdo outsider that thrives on upsetting polite society, not because he's like a, a, a rebel without a cause, just because he's indifferent. He's a mystic. He doesn't care for your orthodox ideas. He doesn't trust scientists when they tell him uh, brains produce consciousness. He doesn't... Te- trust religious leaders when they tell him uh, God exists, you should pray to him. No, he meditates. Shiva is known for meditating. Why? Because Shiva is a symbol for Southern spiritual practice, which is all about meditation. Even today, that remains true. Southern Buddhism is much more interested in meditation than Northern Buddhism. You know, So the South is very into meditation. So this story, Daksha is a Vedic patriarch. Uh, and, and all the gods love him because he's so good at pro, I don't know how to say the word, propitiating, uh, paying homage to gods, right? He's so good at performing Vedic rituals and he's so rich and powerful uh, that all the gods enjoy his ceremonies. So one day, all the gods are gathered there, you know, Varuna, Vayu, Indra, Agni, Vishnu, all of that. And he shows up and he's like, hello, Hello, it's me, Daksha. And all the gods get up from their seats and they're clapping and they're blowing a trumpet and there's a fanfare. Yay, Daksha. Jay, Jay, Daksha Ji. And they're throwing flowers. Daksha notices there's one fellow who didn't stand up. Of course, it's our Shiva. It's not that he doesn't like Daksha. He's not sitting down to spite Daksha. No, He's so absorbed in his meditation that he is indifferent to Daksha. Do you see? Shiva is just meditating. He cares not for social niceties. He cares not for proper behavior or how to be. He just wants to meditate. You know? And Daksha notices this. So, this is the moment where northern ritualistic Vedic society exoteric religion comes into direct conflict with southern meditative esoteric religion. Devdut Patanaik calls this yagna versus yoga tapasya. Me too. <laughs> so she, uh, I'm talking to Amy. Yes, me too. So Shiva and D- Daksha, the patriarch of Vedic society, are at odds now. Uh, Shiva's meditating. Daksha wants to do ritual. So Daksha says, this guy is not a god but neither is he a demon either. He's just indifferent. So he's somewhere in between God and demon. He's a weirdo. He's an outsider. Daksha says, I will never perform a ceremony for Shiva. Nobody should be worshipping Shiva. Good. Just the way he likes it. Thank you very much. Shiva's not interested in praise. He's not interested in your worship. He only wants you to meditate and figure shit out for yourself. That's Shiva. Um, Shiva also loved to shesh. Do you mean like gang- ganja? That's actually wrongly attributed to Shiva. And you'll, you'll see why. The ganja is a very poor attribution to Shiva because Shiva is so blissful that he doesn't need external substances, mind you, like cannabis. Ugh, what paltry pleasures. What cheap delight. Shiva is above all of your worldly pleasures. Thank you very much. Uh, he's, he's in the Himalayas. Where is the drug dealer in the Himalayas, you tell me? How can he buy some bang? Where is he going to get alcohol? There's no inn up there, mind you. Uh, there's no one that can give you a hand job, mind you. Shiva is always alone. Vishnu and his incarnations are often surrounded by women. Do you notice that? Rama, surrounded by women. Krishna, surrounded by women. Rama's, Rama and Krishna hang out in battlefields, in uh, rivers, 
in forests, in cities where there are plenty of people and plenty of pleasures. Shiva doesn't hang out there. He hangs out in cremation grounds. If he's hanging out with anybody, he's hanging out with dead people. Ghosts. <laughs> uh, so he's often seen as the king of the ghosts and the king of the goblins. He hangs out alone in the icy Himalayas. So you can see Shiva is about asceticism. Uh, oh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, Jace, in a little bit. Shiva and Shakti. You know, the Shiva I'm talking about now is the original Shiva, the ascetic Shiva. Uh, it, it's a poor, it's a poor association, Garvit. It's because a lot of sadhus enjoy bang. You know, so if you go to the Ganga and you see the, it's a funny Ganja Ganga. <laughs> if you go to the Ganga and you see the, uh, the, 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 uh, Shiva, the, the sadhus, they like to smoke. So they often are smoking a lot. And, and there's, there's a, like a relationship, right, between psychedelics and like the stuff that we're talking about. So yeah, if you do some acid, you'll probably meet Shiva. You will. Because the energy is very much like that. But Shiva is beyond all of that. You know, Shiva is, uh, we call him Svatantriya, which means effortlessly blissful uh, and effortlessly free. His name is Pashupati, Lord of Wild Beasts. He's known as Maheshvara, king of all the gods. Um, and here's the important thing. As you will read in Devduk Patanayak's book, the important thing about Shiva is he withdraws from the world. He's a hermit. He's an ascetic. He's, a, he's into isolation. So he doesn't want to smoke ganja because he doesn't want to engage in the senses, nor does he want to contribute to Vedic ceremonies. He's more inclined to just sit and meditate and be absorbed in that. Meditative absorption. So this is the Vedic Shiva. He's known as Rudra, right? Uh, yes, exactly. Isn't that interesting, Danish? I'm glad you caught that. The Pashupati symbol comes... Uh, no, 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 Amanda. Shiva and Pan cannot be more different. Do you know why? Pan, Priapus. I'm going to give you a few kind of gods, right? Pan, Priapus, Dionysus. These are all seen as mysterious gods with big erections. So we even have a word in, in English, priapetic, which means like, okay, one thing you're going to notice about these gods is that they are virile and fertile. So Pan likes sports. He like engages with the world. He's a very earthy being. He plays his flute. He's very into stuff. Uh, Priapus and Dionysus are always like shagging people, right? Shiva is fertile. Sorry. Whoa. Shiva is phallic. Shiva is virile, but Shiva is not fertile. You will read in the Shiva Purana, Skanda Purana, and Linga Purana, nothing can cause Shiva to part from his seed. He's very possessive of his self-sufficiency. He does not want to become dependent on anything, and nor does he want to give up his like energy to anything. So to ejaculate is seen as a submission to the world. So Shiva never comes. That's one thing you will learn from the Shiva Skanda uh, 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 Purana. You know, interesting question, Sahat. Anyway, so, Dinesh, you're right. And we think the Pashupati seal refers to the tribal shamanic folk religion that existed alongside the Vedas. So now you're thinking Vedic mainstream society. You can also think there was kind of a side thing going on, which later becomes Tantra, as you will see in a little bit. Uh, right, exactly, exactly. Right, Amen, uh, Amy? So Shiva never wanted adulation, nor would he give adulation. Uh, I remember once uh, my grandmother on my mother's side. So my father's side, they're all Southern Indians. My mother's side is, is more like Hindu, you know, whereas we are Shaivites. 
And uh, she asked me, what's your Ishta Devata, Nish? And I said, Shiva. And she looked at me with fear and she said, you chose a hard one. <laughs> it's like being sorted by the sorting hat into Slytherin. <laughs> Uh, because this got generally seen as very ascetic. Yes, Shiva is Ganesha's father. And we're going to see how that happens. Ganesha is immaculately conceived, by the way. Anyway, um, so Shiva doesn't get up, right? So here's where the story gets interesting. Daksha says, to hell with Shiva. I hate this guy. He, he insulted me. Ew, let's not worship him. Shiva doesn't care. So Daksha has a daughter. Daksha's daughter's name is Sati. Guess who Sati falls in love with? You're a young teenager. The only person you're going to have a crush on is the guy your dad hates. You know, you want to shack up with a Rolling Stone. You want a biker. You want someone who's going to piss your dad off. Uh, so Sati runs away uh, to find Shiva. And Shiva falls in love with Sati, which is, you, you can't even imagine. Like, Shiva is so like self, you know, possessed. He's so self-sufficient. So we're getting into Tantra now. So if you're interested in Parvati, Shakti, we're getting there. We're getting there. Don't worry. Just work with this Shiva first, okay? I know for some of you, you're like already really into Tantra. So this idea of Shiva as an ascetic is a little, um, uh, what do you call it? Offensive to you for now, but trust me on this. In the Skanda Purana, Shiva Purana, Linga Purana, when you read it for yourself, you will find that this is the depiction of Shiva. Remember I told you about Rasa? Daksha is interested in keeping Rasa flowing. Shiva is interested in meditating and extricating himself from the circle of rasa. He's kind of leaving the world. That's why he's seen as the destroyer. That's why he's seen as the outsider, the weirdo, because his goals are hard to understand. His motivations are hard to understand. He's mysterious, enigmatic, um, and frankly, quite scary. So some of his names are King of the Goblins, King of the Ghosts, the Destroyer. You know, not quite a god, not quite a demon. The outsider, Rudra, which is his Vedic name, literally means howler, the one who screams. And now I'm going to tell you why. So Sati runs away from home to go and marry Shiva. What do Sati and Shiva do? They meditate. That's their game. They just like to sit and meditate. Sati's the perfect wife for Shiva because she loves meditating. So they both sit there just meditating. And you know, one day, the sage Narada and some Indians in the room, you know, Narayana, Narayana. Do you know that? If you watched any Indian uh, movies as a child about the gods, that, that phrase is burnt in your mind. Because <laughs> the sage Narada just moves through all the realms singing, Narayana, Narayana. He's just like, he just does that. Uh, but he's like the messenger of the gods. He's kind of like Hermes. So Narada is just going and he approaches Shiva and Sati and he says, um, Oh, hey, are you guys going to the party? Sati's like, what party? And Narada says, crap. Never mind, never mind. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving now. And Sati's like, no, you come back and you tell me, Narada, what party? Sati says, damn. Okay, so Daksha is throwing a party. It's a super big party. All the gods are invited. Uh, but I guess you guys aren't since you don't know about the party. And Shiva opens one eye. He's meditating, of course. And he's like, he goes back to meditating. Sati's like, no, I, got, I have to go to the party. It's my father. I'm his daughter. I would be ashamed not to be at the party. Shiva, come with me. Let's go to the party. And Shiva says, Sati, take my word for it. Don't go to the party. You don't want to have anything to do with Daksha and those gods. Like, they don't like us there, babe. Don't go. 
Sati's like, no, listen, Mahesh Farah, I'm sure it's been a mistake. The invitation must have been lost. There's probably a seat for you. I mean, of course, you're Maheshwara, the resplendent one, the supreme yogi. He's also known as Yogeshwara, the king of the yogis. Maheshwara, the great lord. All his names imply the greatness of Shiva. He says, you should go and, and they, will, they will honor you. Trust me, babe, they will honor you. Shiva says, I, I will not. I'm content. I'm going to sit and meditate. But he says, well, if you want to go, you can. I really wish you wouldn't, but if it's your will to go, go without me, you know. Uh, and bring me back a laddu or something. <laughs> I'm kidding. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have said that. So Sati goes. She goes to the party, uh, and at the party, she realizes no seat was placed for Shiva. Sati feels indignation, the kind that only a slighted Indian woman can feel. The melodrama of an Indian woman compels her to self-immolate. She gets so upset, she jumps into... So you notice Nachiketa jumps into the fire? Sati jumps into the fire too. Uh, it's actually the origin story of a rather primitive tradition they had in India where like women would often follow their husbands as part of a dutiful wife. They would follow their husbands into death. Of course, this sounds scary to us. Remember, Indians didn't really believe they were their body. They were happy to give the body up. So it might be pretty progressive from another point of view. You know, it's true love, right? Even death of the body can't do us apart. Uh, and if you listen to the Death Cab for Cutie song, I will follow you into the dark. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Sati jumping into the fire um, in protest. Shiva hears about this. Something, yeah, Romeo and Julia got nothing on this. Something very important happens now, by the way. Shiva, for the first time in his eternal, timeless existence, feels grief. He feels anger and he doesn't know what to do about it i mean he sat meditating as an ascetic for his whole life but he fell in love and it's through love that he experienced grief and despair and desolation and so driven mad by grief and rage he starts to dance dancing is the only way he knows how to like deal with his rage and he pulls out a matted lock of his hair and he throws it on the floor so, a matted lock, the name for it in Sanskrit is Badra. From his matted lock, a demon appeared. His name is Veera Badra. If you've done any Hatha Yoga, you know Veera Badrasana, you call it warrior pose. Actually, it's a pose in honor of this demon, Veera Badra. So, Veera Badra appears, the demon king, and Shiva says, Go, bring me their heads. You've seen Game of Thrones, the Red Wedding, and got nothing on this. In the Purana, you will read a rather gory story. Virabhadra, at the head of an army of demons and goblins, riding rabid dogs, swept down into the party and killed everyone. Tore everyone, limb from limb. The demons destroyed the fire, burnt down the palace, grabbed Daksha by the head, dragged him in front of his wife, and decapitated him. Kind of a horrifying story, right? Um, and the dogs of war, Shiva's rabid dogs, Shiva's goblin armies, are just running amok. The world is, uh, is torn asunder, so the gods are freaking out now, right? Brahma and Vishnu are like, clock, 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 what do we do, what do we do? So um, they send Narada to Shiva. Narada's kind of the go-between of the gods. Narada says, Maheshwara, your rage, your rage is understandable. 
You know, your anger is understandable. Your grief is understandable. But please, stop this carnage. You, you cannot bring Sati back by murdering everyone. Shiva sobers up. Notice he's like super self-controlled, but also paradoxically, he sometimes just totally loses it. Which is an interesting thing about Shiva. Yeah, he just kind of... Uh, yeah, I bet they really regret didn't sending that, didn't send that invitation. So, you know, he's like, okay, you're right. You're right, Narada. He allows himself to be consoled, and he says, I am not Daksha. One almost remembers Aragorn in, in, in Lord of the Rings. I am Isildur's head, or not Isildur himself. <laughs> anyway, so he goes, uh, I am not Daksha. I won't do this. I won't do this. And so what does Shiva do? He goes back and brings everyone back to life, except... Instead of Daksha's actual head, he puts the head of a goat there. <laughs> Just it's kind of like our tantrikas always make fun of Vedic society. Some stories say he puts the head of an ass. <laughs> so he puts the head of an ass back on Daksha and revives him and says, Daksha's wife, here you go. Enjoy. <laughs> See your husband for what he is, an ass. But he brought everyone back to life. Except Sati. He can bring Sati back to life. Her body was lying there, burnt, immolated. And you know what he said? I will respect her decision to leave. I will respect her immolation. And in honor of her protest, I won't bring her back. You know? So for those of you doing seances, have some respect for your dead. Leave them alone. <laughs> no, it's just, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, she's like, he's like, yeah, I, it's okay. But I'm so sad. You know? So he picks up Sati's body holds it over his shoulder, and just walks. He forest gumps it. He just like walks and walks and walks in grief. Um, and because he's in such grief, he's generating this, this tapas, this heat that's destroying the world. Shiva walks a path of desolation. Green Day writes the song, I walk a lonely road. He's walking. He's sad. And, and, and you know, it's just um, the gods are freaking out again because now Shiva's not fulfilling his role as uh, the trinity. You know, so what does Vishnu do? Vishnu sends his weapon, his discus, and starts to chop up Sati's body. It's kind of a confusing metaphor, but every time a body part of Sati falls off, it becomes a holy place. This is called a Shakti Pita. Uh, it's very sacred in Tantra, these holy spots. So each of Sati's bodies, body parts becomes a Shakti Pita, a pilgrimage site. And when the body is completely dissolved, Shiva is done with his grief. He goes back and meditates. Now the story goes, Sati reincarnates as Parvati. Parvati is the daughter of King Himalaya. So you know the mountain, the Himalayas? Shiva meditates there. There's also a character named Himalaya. He's the mountain. He's the mountain king. And Parvati is the daughter of the mountain. So I'm just telling you stories. The metaphors are pretty obvious for those of you who have been meditating. I won't get in them too much. Uh, just enjoy the story, you know. So uh, Parvati is born to Himalaya. And of course, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's beautiful destiny. Very, very similar. Yeah, he just carries the body like the dolphin or orca. Aw. Yeah, Shakti Vata. Shakti Pita, actually. This is Shakti Pita. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a place. But yeah, Shaktipata, you can even think of it as that. In Sanskrit, if words sound alike, it's probably because they have something to do with one another. You know, um, It's not an accidental language. It was very carefully controlled. After all, who, who formulated Sanskrit? Adisesha himself, Vishnu's serpent in the form of Patanjali, you know? 
Uh, he taught Sanskrit. Coming, coming, Dinesh. Don't worry. I've got a lot to cover, brother. It, it will happen. It will happen. Trust. Trust the process. <laughs> These things cannot be gotten to so quickly. We'll miss the point. Um, so we must circulate, you know, and, and hopefully it will snap into focus. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. We'll try our best. So um, Shiva then, Parvati is the wife, sorry, is the, is the daughter of Himalaya. And naturally, as the incarnation of Shiva's ex-wife. I know, I know, Dinesh, I know. I'm doing my best. Got a lot to cover here. We'll get there. And I hope to be finished in about like 30-ish minutes so we can do questions and stuff. Tall order. <laughs> so um, Parvati is like born a devotee of Shiva. So all, he, all she does is worship Shiva, you know, meditate. And through her meditation, she contacts Shiva. And they're having like this Jedi kind of telepathic, like, you know, you can imagine Luke in episode five. He's like, Leia, Leia, hear me. And Leia's in the Millennium Falcon. And she's like, Luke, I know where he is. And, 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 and uh, Lando is like, no, we can't go back. And, you know, whatever. So similarly, Parvati is calling out to Shiva with, with her mind. Shiva hears her and she's like, he's like, oh, you are Sati. You're looking for a husband. Oh, I'm in love with you anyway. I'll come and marry you. <laughs> so this is kind of a cute story. All the sages, the Sapta Rishis, the seven great sages, go to Himalaya's house to tell the king and his queen that Parvati has found a suitor. The suitor's name is Shiva. So this is a beautiful story of the wedding of Shiva. Um, the day arrives. Everyone's so excited for this wedding. The sages have sung praises to Parvati's mother about Shiva and on the day of the wedding all the gods come and the mother is getting so excited it's like is that Shiva and, and, and Narada's like no 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 that's the sun god Shiva is even more pretty than that and she goes is that Shiva and he goes no 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 no, no. that's the moon god Shiva is even more pretty than that um, and the mom goes is that Shiva and Narada's like no 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 relax that's Vishnu Shiva is even more cute than that <laughs> you know so the mom is getting excited about all the gods that are coming in but Narada this Hermes figure is saying no it's not that it's not this it's not this finally Shiva arrives he arrives covered in ash his hair is matted he's riding a, an ugly bull whereas everyone else came in in chariots he's riding a bull whereas everyone came in with like a, a retinue of beautiful angels shiva comes in with his ghost and his goblins and his skeletons and the mom faints <laughs> the mom's like this is your husband <laughs> so according to the story the uh shiva scares everybody when he arrives but eventually they give him a bath and everyone falls in love with him because truly he is more beautiful than all the gods. It's just like that era. It's like the, the Jesus story, you know? Yeah, Nandi is beautiful, but but you can see all these all these beings are like, oh, it's a cow. It's just a bull. It's it's not, it's it, this bull doesn't match the golden chariot. So Shiva is understated at best, uh, but kind of eccentric. <laughs> yes, Roxanne. The wedding of Shiva, the wedding of Roxanne. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> came in in the bull. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, no, no, the gods came. Everyone came to the wedding. So then they saw Shiva for what he is. It's kind of like Jesus, you know. Um, you might miss the Christ if you saw him at Whole Foods because he's probably going to look like a homeless man to you, you know. 
There's a homeless guy in Westwood. His name is Andrew. Um, we do headstands quite often together. Uh, you might see us if you're driving by the Chevron. Talk to him. If you're ever in Chevron, uh, across the in and out in Westwood, uh, and you meet a man named Andrew, he's a sage. He's a realized master, I believe. He's really, really awesome. And his brother wrote the book, Tantra Illuminated. Shiva was a catfish. <laughs> no, Parvati was in love with him. Parvati's mom fainted. Parvati's mom was like, oh, I can't even imagine um, my daughter marrying this goblin king, this lord of wild animals. Another name for Shiva is lord of the crooked things. You know, because he wears a crescent moon and he's all about like antinomianism. Anyway, if you were able to see Jesus for what he was, and most of us would miss him, you know, we would realize that he was a king appearing as a beggar. Similarly, Shiva is the greatest god appearing as a demon, you know? Uh, so that's kind of beautiful. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. <laughs> so um, that's a beautiful idea that there's more to it than meets the eye. So this is where you're starting to come into Tantra. So notice the metaphor of Shiva is very important because Shiva is all about redirecting, inverting, Yogis love headstands. Why? Because it's an inversion where you might have spent semen or sexual energy, rasa, engaging with the world. You now redirect that flow up the spine to awaken chakras. So in Tantra, we start to get language like chakras, language like Ida or Pingala and um, all these kind of mystical phrases come from the Shiva Parvati thing. So now I'll explain Tantra very briefly. Um, there is an eight, it's going to be a nine part series. Episode nine is this Thursday, but I do have a nine part series on Kashmiri Shaivism and Tantra because it really is very complex. There's a lot to it and also a lot of misconceptions. Hint, hint, Tantra has nothing to do about with sex. Sorry. There's just nothing in the literature as to how to have better orgasms. Uh, the word Tantra has literally nothing to do with sex at all. It has a lot more to do with death than it does to do with sex. So uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about Tantra. and uh, In that nine-part series, we talk about what Tantra is and isn't and why it's very difficult to start Tantric practice because it's an initiatory tradition. You need initiation, diksha. Um, but right now, all I want to say is this. You have Vedic religion, but then you have shamanic religion, right? So you have the Vedas, then you have these folk practices that Shiva is characterizing. Oh, and if you want to get, someone is asking where to get the uh, the nine-part Tantra series, it's on my Patreon. Uh, and and th there are about eight videos, but you can also come and catch episode nine on Thursday live. And that will sum it up, and then it will be available, uh, it will just be recorded on, on, on Patreon. Okay, so I'm not really going to get into what Tantra is or isn't, but suffice to say this, Tantra comes a little bit from the intersection between the Vedas and the folk religions. So Tantra is like when tribal shamanism meets the Brahmin elite who are sick of their Vedas. Can, can you dig that? It's like in the UK when there were these fancy rich art school boys who were getting into American blues. So American blues is a folk tradition. It's an oral tradition. Whereas these kids are in art school like Clapton and, 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 and Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd. So it's kind of like emerging. You know, it's emerging of, of urbanized, um, rich, upper class people, uh, intellectuals, artists, and the tribal shamanism of these ascetics, these forest ascetics. 
So Tantra, above all, is a death cult. It's interested in understanding what death is. It's very metal, by the way, because Tantrikas hang out in graveyards, practicing yoga on dead corpses to try to figure out death. Um, so the reason Tantra is difficult to talk about is because there are many different kinds of Tantra. Tantra emerged as a practice somewhere around the 5th century AD, probably earlier, and it emerged within Shaivism. Shaivism is the religion devoted to Shiva. So Tantra first emerged as a ritual tradition honoring the god Shiva. But the rituals of Tantra are different from the rituals of Veda in one very important detail. And the detail is iconography. Remember how I told you the Vedas didn't have any idols for their gods? It was just a pit of fire. Tantra is the one that innovated that. So if you look at all these pictures behind me, all these images of deities, it was Tantra that gave us that. It was Tantra that created the images. So if you go to any Hindu temple now, uh, you're going to see Tantric iconography. Tantric iconography is what we call Hindu gods. It's, it's from Tantra. That was their innovation. It's called Murthy. So first Tantra gives us, uh, Vedas do mention Shiva. His, his name is Rudra in the Vedas. Uh, but probably because he was painfully in, in interjected from meeting in the South. Okay, so in the Vedas, there's a Veda known as the Atharva Veda. It's the fourth of the Vedas, the newest Veda. And unlike the Rig Veda that seems rather alien, the Atharva Veda, when you read it, you'll relate to it more. Because in it, there's a bunch of black magic. <laughs> there's a bunch of spells like how to win a lover, how to hex your enemies, you know? There's some of these like folk magic things in the Atharva Veda. So the Atharva Veda is like the book of witches, if you will, Indian witches. So Tantra came because of Shaivism. Okay, I know this is a lot um, because we are covering like swaths of history now, rather um, uh, uh, with, with grand sweeping statements. Uh, um, but suffice to say this, Shiva is probably a Southern God, you know, thanks to... Um, Dave Dukpatanayak's research. This is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a mythological speculation. But in the Vedas, you will see that he's an outsider god. In the Puranas, you will see that even more. He's called Rudra, howler, because of the grief he felt when he lost his wife, but also to reference how crazy and wild and weird he is. So in the Shiva Purana, Linga Purana, Skanda Purana, you'll see how Shiva is an outsider. In the same way that these shamanic practices were outside Vedic religion. But... Vedic practitioners were becoming jaded like Nachiketa was with the exoteric religion they were born into and they started to hang out with these tribalists. And uh, that produced Tantra. So Shaivism comes first and from Shaivism comes Tantra. So Tantra is intricately linked with Shiva. You cannot understand Tantra outside of Shiva. And hopefully now you know why. So from Shiva comes Tantra and there are three kinds of Tantra. I'm going to go very briefly here. There is the traditional dualistic form of Tantra that is still sort of practiced to this day. It's called the Dakshina Marg. Dakshina means south. Marg means path. So Dakshina Marg means the southern path of Tantra. It's a reference to the right-hand Tantra. So this is a dualistic Tantra. It sees Shiva as a separate deity, um, and it's mostly concerned with rituals. Its primary practice is uh, what we call puja, ritual. 
offering flowers, incense, chanting mantras, uh, uh, doing essentially ceremonial magic, you know, in order to uh, get closer to Shiva, to the deity known as Shiva. From Dakshina Mark, we get different flavors of Tantra. The one that you're probably most familiar with is Kaula. Kaula Tantra is started by a woman. And it's the most progressive philosophy of India. So the mythology of Tantra Marga, uh, as Kaula lineage expresses it, is as follows. There was a sage. His name was Gyanitranatha. And he goes to a place known as Mangala. Ah, sorry. Known as Udiana. Udiana is in northwestern India. It's also the birthplace of Padma Sambhava. So just remember this name, Udiana. Uh, because it's going to become important for Tibetan Buddhism in a little bit. Wow, we are really covering quite a bit here. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me. This is this is the difficult part. Uh, we're, we're just about to get through the, the most challenging and intricate part, which is Tantra. Um, now, Dakshina Marga produces a brand of philosophers like Gyanitranatha who go to Udhyana, Udhyana is like a sacred place in India, and according to myth, or according to legend, this man, Gyanitranatha, goes to a graveyard in Udhyana. So the story of Tantra starts with a graveyard, okay? So he goes to a graveyard, and in the graveyard, he meets the goddess Mangala. We actually think this might be a person. Mangala might have been um, a woman, a, a woman practitioner or a woman sage, like a witch, you know? And he goes there and he's enlightened by her. Some people think Mangala is Parvati or Shakti. I haven't even started talking about Shakti, but I'm alluding to it. So Shiva's wife, Parvati. We're going to ask, how is Parvati related to Shiva? What does she have to do with Tantra? Okay, follow this closely. Mangala is the name of a goddess. Yes, of course, Jess. It will be available for you. Um, also with the questions and answers. Uh, now, Mangala which her name literally means success, right? Mangala teaches Gyanitranatha Tantra. We have a text now called the Chumma Sanketa Prakash. A great philosopher, uh, Christopher Harish Wallace, whose brother is the guy I hang out with outside the Chevron. So if you, if you see me doing headstands with a homeless guy at Chevron, know that he's the brother of a very famous tantric scholar, and they're both equally brilliant. One of them is in Portugal right now, leading a kula, um, an Oxford-decorated scholar. The other is a sadhu, practicing headstands in Chevron, you know? So do not be so quick to judge the homeless. They're not all crazy. Some of them are Shiva-level crazy, <laughs> which is enlightened, you know? They're... Okay. So... Uh, Christopher Harish Wallace uh, writes a beautiful book, Tantra Illuminated. Ryan has it, so Ryan loves that book. Um, I'm not sure where in Portugal, actually, but he is there. You might check out, check him out on Instagram. He's quite active there. His, his account is called Harish Wallace. He's doing a lot of great work right now to raise money for India, too. Um, and I love him. I love Christopher Wallace. Great scholar. He is a Sanskrit scholar. Sanskritist, he studied Sanskrit, and he studied with Alexis Sanderson, which is one of the foremost scholars of Tantra in uh, Oxford. Um, and he's, Christopher Wallace is like a new type of scholar who isn't just studying from an academic scholarly point of view. He's also a practitioner. So that's quite interesting. And if you want to study Tantra, get that book, Tantra Illuminated. It's really great. And uh, 
Christopher Wallace is also now working to translate a never-before-translated task, task, uh, text <laughs> called the Chumma Sanketa Prakasha. Uh, or, and, and in, that, in that text, right, it describes a very beautiful story. So I'm going to tell it to you now because it sounds a lot like what might have happened to Gyanetranatha in that cemetery. The central character of the Chuma Sanketa Prakasha is a man named Nishkriyananda, which of course delights me a lot. <laughs> so Nishkriyananda is standing in the cemetery with his guru. His guru is called the Siddha Natha meaning the Lord of Perfection. So Siddhanatha and his disciple, Nishkriyananda, are in the cemetery. The Chumma Sanketa Prakasha describes Nishkriyananda's awakening, his enlightenment, and it describes it like this. This is how the story goes. I looked at my master, says Nishkriyananda. The wordless one, meaning his master didn't teach him through words. The wordless one looked up. I followed his gaze. And then the sky opened up and from it emerged the wild woman. Isn't that interesting? The wild woman, her hair was all over the place. Her tongue was, uh, was lolling. She, she was garlanded in skulls and she was laughing hysterically. With her intense eyes, she pointed to the book in my guru's hand. Now, remember, in Sanskrit texts, the, the books are like two boards of wood and a few leaves bound by five um, strings. She explained the significance of the two boards and then she broke it. So this is called the breaking of the boards. It's very important in Tantra and it refers to an intense, almost orgiastic experience of revelation. And your mind breaks. Language breaks. It's like a Zen koan. And they're like, ah, you know, and you're enlightened. And stably you learn to become stable in that state. You, bec you become embodied in that state. So this is what happened to Gyanetranatha. He initiates two female disciples. So Tantra is very associated to female spirituality. And that's where you get a profileration of female deities. So like uh, you get a deity known as Parapara, which later turns into the modern day Saraswati. So Lakshmi, Saraswati, all of these deities, while they are mentioned in like the Vishnu Purana, Lakshmi is the wife of Vishnu, Saraswati is the wife of Brahma. Yeah, it's not until this time that you start to see iconography about them. Like the cult of the goddess, Atbot Acha Mosam Hebaya. Now, the, sorry, just replying, sir. Now, the, the, nay, nay. Now, the goddess, um, uh, what do you call it? The goddess cult begins in India around this time, like 5th century AD. So I want to point you to a, a kind of art movement known as the Ardha Nareshvar. So this might be a nice Google. The Ardha Nareshvar refers to a kind of sculpture and painting that emerged in India around the 1st century AD. And it depicts Shiva, but cut in half. Shiva in a kind of, not really hermaphroditic, but kind of dualistic way where half is the male Shiva and the other half has like a breast and a sari. One half has a cow, the other half has a tiger or a lion. Now you're starting to see a relationship between Shiva and Parvati, his wife. Now we get the word Shakti. So Kaz, now we're coming to Shiva Shakti. Yes, Dinesh, thank you so much. Thank you for all the great questions. I'm glad I got to hit Tantra right before you left. You know, that was important for me, just to hit Tantra there. 
My, my. We are going strong. Thank you for sticking around, everybody. I'm very, very impressed. <laughs> um, but yes, there is more breath left. And I will power forward. We're, we're going to get to the Buddha soon. Yes, we're going <laughs> to... So many questions are coming in. They will be answered, I hope, uh, by the end of this lecture. Uh, ideally. So, Shiva Shakti is different... Thank you, Amy. Shiva Shakti is very different from Purusha Prakriti, Kaz. Because Purusha Prakriti pits Purusha against Prakriti. They're seen as two different things that are diametrically opposed. But as you can see from the Ardha Nareshvar, the statuary and the art, Shiva and Shakti are not two different things. They're one and the same thing. How should we understand this? Don't worry, we're getting there. So now you're getting goddess worship, right? There's a lot of this talk of Shakti, whose name means power. You're getting Lakshmi and Sarasvati and Parapara and most importantly, Kali. We're starting to get excited about Kali. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. It's not me, just a messenger. Don't shoot the messenger, but don't praise the drunken monkey either. <laughs> yes, Tara is another name for Kali. So you're getting these kinds of like, oh, yes, Amanda, don't worry. We'll be available. Recap, you can watch it tomorrow or tonight if I manage to not pass out. I won't. Now, uh, or rather Nish won't, God willing. Now, uh, you get all these goddesses, Kali, and they're all wild and ecstatic. You know, they're all these laughing, hysterical goddesses in graveyards, teaching spirituality radically by breaking the boards. Now, Kaula, Kaula lineage tantra is unabashedly non-dualistic. So this is why I had to introduce you to non-duality a little earlier. It's unabashedly non-dualistic in that it believes only Shiva is. So mark this carefully. Like only Brahman is, so too Shiva and Brahman are like interchangeable at this point, but they prefer Shiva since, you know, by convention, since it emerged from Shaivism, they just plugged in Shiva. So what did I tell you Brahman means? Vast, the vast one. Let's look at the word Shiva. What does that mean? So it comes from two Sanskrit words. Uh, Sanskrit for she is the same as in Shavasana or Shava. So Shava means corpse. Um, and that root she is the same as in Shava. And it literally means like to lie down or the ground. Uh, Anand Merota said something interesting. I was attending one of his satsangs and he said something interesting. I don't know how etymologically correct this is, but it might be a folk interpretation. He says, she doesn't just mean ground. It also means shh, silent, the silent ground. And va means vastness, much like the English vast. Shiva therefore means the silent ground of all being non-conceptual. It's not the body. It's not the energy. It's not the mind. It's not the intellect. It's not a concept. It's not linguistic. It is just the awareness, the void out of which all awareness emerges. Nice destiny is just embodying her Shiva nature uh, because that's what you are. You are Shiva, Shivoham. Now, this starts to emerge around the fifth century, this idea, this Kaula idea that Shiva is the vast ground of being. There's no iconography for this. This is just awareness. But, and this is important, in Advaita Vedanta, this world is seen as maya, meaning it's seen as illusion. And there's some very sophisticated arguments as to why this world doesn't exist. 
they're premised upon it changing. And as Fabricio points out, if somebody changes all the time, we call them fake, right? That's a bit of a hint. We have this intuition that if something changes, it's therefore must not be real. So in Advaita Vedanta, they, they dismiss the world as an illusion. Only Brahman exists. Maya is not another thing. It's not a separate thing. It's not even a part of Brahman. It just is, and it disappears. And it never really was, never really will be. It's just an intellectual error. Now, this is beautiful what Kashmiri, sorry, Tantra does. Tantra says, Shiva and Shakti, Alia Vishjana, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that phrase, Kaz. Can you point me to the text? It, it might be a Pali phrase. I'm not sure. Um, but there's actually a school in, 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 in uh, Mahayana Buddhism. It's called the Yoga Acharya School. Yes. Uh, and in the Yoga Acharya School, they're super non-dualist. Yes. Okay, so a lot of books are coming at you tonight. Uh, for Tantra, Christopher Wallace's Tantra Illuminated. Uh, but before you do Tantra Illuminated, I think you should do George Furstein again. So earlier I recommended George Furstein's Deeper Dimensions of Yoga. Now I'm going to recommend Tantra Paths of Ecstasy. So in Tantra Paths of Ecstasy, um, he kind of describes Tantra for you in the very wide world uh, of Tantra. And you'll see how Kundalini comes. Kundalini is a bit, bit ridiculous, but you'll see how it comes out from all of this. Uh, you'll see. You'll see the link between Yogi Bhajan and all of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so Shiva, uh, in the 5th century-ish, you start to get this language where Shiva and Shakti are two aspects of one thing. This world, as you see it, is an aspect of Shiva. It's as much real as Shiva is real, but it's still just one thing. So if you look around the world and you're like, there's Roxanne and, and there's Shannon and, and here's me and we're all three different things, you're unenlightened. You are a bound soul. But if I'm able to look at Roxanne and Shannon and, and this Zoom screen and, and my like ring light and I realize that they are none other than another aspect of me and we're engaged in a kind of weirdly schizophrenic, masturbatory, self-titillation, flirtationship, then I'm enlightened. So that's how Tantra phrases it. Shiva and Shakti are in love with one another, but they are two aspects of one another, and creation is the dynamic interplay between subject and object, awareness and the things within awareness. Do you see? The central insight here is that there is invariable concomitance. And that's a kind of fancy philosophical way of saying there is an unbreakable link between the subject and the object. Where there is a subject, there must be an object, no? Without an object, how is the subject to know itself as a subject? Meaning, how are you to do nethi nethi? How are you to do not this and not that if there was no this or no that for you to reason away from? Do you see that? It's such a beautiful move. But the idea is that there is nothing that can be proven to exist apart from awareness. And awareness cannot be proven to exist apart from the objects of awareness that create a kind of pivot for awareness to be aware of itself. So Tantra gives you a beautiful intoxicating worldview, which is why reject Maya as unreal? Shankaracharya was very likely a Tantrika. Um, but he recommended world renunciation. Tantra also recommends that. 
but it doesn't recommend leaving the world behind to go to the mountains and closing your eyes and sitting in what the yogis call nirvikalpa samadhi. It recommends something else called sahaja samadhi, which is enlightened while eyes open, you know. Um, and the only way to do that is to realize that this world is an extension of you. So the way the tantric worldview works is this. Shiva, um, in a desire to experience himself. Okay, notice how this language is so foreign and alien with regards to Brahman. Brahman has no desires. We call Brahman nirguna Brahman, meaning Brahman without properties. How can a thing without properties have desires? And why would it desire um, if the world is unreal anyway? So knowing the world to be unreal, what desires do you have? So Tantra kind of changes the script and it says, no, no, no. This being, this Brahman, which is really you, they call it Shiva now, does have a desire. And that desire is known as Icha Shakti, the power of desire. What does it desire? So just think about this. If you were unlimited awareness, you know, if you were the Ein Sof hour of the Hebrews, limitless light, limitless awareness, it's not a question of if you will create a world. It's a question of when, as Christopher Wallace puts it beautifully. Because sooner or later, a desire will arise in you to experience yourself as awareness. And the only only way to do that is to create a seeming duality. So within Shiva, Shakti appears. Shakti is, is, is just Shiva seen from a different angle, and she is this world. So now Maya, what the, what the Advaitins called Maya, these people are calling Shakti. They're calling the vibratory world of existence. Now, mind you, the language of Tantra was incomprehensible to a Western audience until quantum mechanics started talking string theory. You know, so the language of Tantra was so exotic. What do you mean vibratory universe? What do you mean it's all one vibration uh, at different degrees of frequency? This is the very progressive language that Tantra was using. And you can read about it in texts like the Spanda Karika, which means the doctrine of vibration, by the way. You know, Spanda Karika, the doctrine of vibration. Um, and there's like cool works on this. But now... This world is seen as the doctrine uh, in the doctrine of vibration describes this world as an infinitely rich, exciting, vibratory realm. So someone asked about the Holy Ghost earlier. Um, I think it was Denish and then he disappeared. That's sad. But Denish, if you're watching the recording, this is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the Aum, the Pranava Shabda, the primordial sound, the word of God that was with God, that was God, as the Gospel of John talks about. That's the Holy Ghost. Uh, it's an ocean of energy. That's what Shakti is. She's an ocean of energy. So is energy different from consciousness? No. Energy is another aspect of consciousness. So remember in Spider-Man, at the end of the movie, Peter Parker learns, with great power comes great responsibility. Tantrikas would say, Say no, with great power comes an equally great consciousness. <laughs> and with great consciousness comes great power. You cannot have consciousness without power. You cannot have power without consciousness. Shiva is consciousness. Shakti is power, is the world. Shiva is subject. Shakti is the object. You, some of the art theorists in the room might be interested in the women and the male gaze and all that. I don't know. You can go down that route if you want. A lot of the tantric philosophers were art critics you know, and, 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 and drama critics and all that. So eventually, now in the 6th century, we get a beautiful text known as the Vignana 
Bhairava Tantra. There is a beautiful translation by Lauren Roche, PhD, um, called the Radiant Sutra. Ryan has this one too. Now, the Radiant Sutra is a translation of the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, which means the terrifying wisdom of Shiva Tantra. <laughs> so, let's break down the word Tantra. Tan means to expand. Thra means device. So a tantra is a device that expands. Expands what? Maybe expands your mind. I don't know. Uh, now, tantra is a reference to a text. When you call something a tantra, you mean that it's a text in the tradition of Shiva Shakti. Most tantras are written as a dialogue between Shiva and Shakti with the full understanding that Shiva is not different from Shakti. They are two aspects of each other. And Shakti asks Shiva questions like, how is one to recognize their Shiva nature? How do people escape the wheel of birth and death? How do we make meaning of life? So essentially, a tantra is like an Upanishad. You know, an Upanishad is any text in which a teacher and a student are debating, whether it's father and son, whether it's God of death and Nachiketa, there's usually two people debating. Saint Anselm writes a tantra, um... When, no, sorry, St. Anselm writes an Upanishad when he writes the three dialogues. That's essentially an Upanishad. What makes it an Upanishad? It's a dialogue. Yeah? So, a Tantra is like that. It's, it's kind of like an Upanishad, uh, except instead of a teacher and a student, the teacher is Shiva and the student is Shakti, but Shakti is feigning ignorance. Why? She pretends not to know stuff. She's like playing dumb. Uh, partly because, yes, Roxanne, take care. <laughs> Good night to you. She's playing dumb for our sake. Yes, Ryan, of course. Good night to you. <laughs> this is like an endurance test. <laughs> no, please sleep. Don't, don't. Go to sleep. I, I, will, I will keep going. Don't worry. <laughs> and it will all be available as a recording. Uh, and actually, in, in a few minutes, let's take a break and ask some questions. Let's do some sharing and some questions. So we'll close here. Vijnana Bhairava Tantra is a tantra and it describes some very weird practices like spinning around in circles and then falling down. Like these practices that seem so simple and seem so obvious. So one of the strategies of tantra, um, as opposed to the Vedic orthodoxy that's obsessed with rituals, as opposed to the ascetic traditions, Patreon, all these recordings will be available on Patreon, as opposed to the ascetic traditions, <laughs> beautiful Ryan, um, Tantra says you can achieve uh, enlightenment by being in the world, but not of it. Uh, there are everyday opportunities for enlightenment because everything that happens to you happens in your awareness. So everything that you experience points you to the experiencer. And you can experience this with a taste of, of, of chocolate on your mouth. That's where we get these weird Western notions of Tantra and sex. Because Tantra isn't an anything-goes philosophy, really. It says that anything is conducive to spiritual liberation if approached with a certain meditative maturity. So you cannot practice Tantra if you're not a master meditator. I'm sorry, it just won't work for you. You'll get too caught up in the pleasure, you know? The point is to see the awareness in which that pleasure vibrates. So that's from the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. So let's end Tantra here. If you are interested in studying Tantra, it's an incredibly exciting world with mudras, hand gestures, 
with mantra, sacred invocations to do magic spells, um, sometimes for liberation, as in the case of Kaulat Lineage Tantra, sometimes for black magic, as in the case of Left Hand Path Tantra, or the more folk witchy stuff. That definitely exists. Uh, it's a world of gods and goddesses and mandalas, beautiful images that you can look at that can give you revelatory insights upon meditating. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you, Sam. See you soon. Um, so that's Tantra. And if you're interested, here are a few books to study. So start with George Furstein's Tantra Illuminated. That, oh, sorry, George Furstein's Tantra's Paths to Ecstasy. That will kind of orient you. Then you move on to Christopher Wallace's Tantra Illuminated. That will deepen your understanding even more. Tantra reaches its heyday during the time of Abhinava Gupta in the 10th century city Srinagar in Kashmir. That's why it's sometimes called Kashmiri Shaivism. I'm sure you've heard that word. Um, uh, and uh, his main text is Tantra Loka. It's not really available in English translations, but that is, um, that is the central text through which we get the language of Tantra. Uh, but you might be interested to check out World of Tantra by B. Bhattacharya. So if you're interested in Tantra, the World of Tantra gives you a first-hand account of an Indian Tantrika, that is an Indian practicer of, practitioner of Tantra. So this book will show you the culture of Tantra, how Tantra is practiced, how weird it can be, but also how delightful it can be. Now, this is probably the best book recommendation I can give you today. So if you take nothing else from, from this lecture in terms of a reading list, take this. The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna is probably the greatest sage India has ever produced. He's seen as an avatara, meaning an incarnation of God herself. Um, and he started his spiritual journey as a tantrika. His guru was a female tantrika. So the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna is super tantric. You know, uh, throughout that book, he makes very tantric statements like uh, Brahma cannot be separated from his Shakti. He's like conflating Advaita Vedanta and Tantra. Instead of saying Shiva Shakti, he's saying Brahma Shakti, Brahman Shakti. You know, it's, it's great. Uh, and Tantra is seen as the householder's path, the path for the everyday man and woman. So from Tantra, we get Hatha Yoga. And a lot of you might have come to yoga because of postures. So in part two, we're going to talk, uh, what, Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna? Oh, it's by a man named M very mysterious. His name is M, full stop, and it's written in Bengali. But you can get an English one, and the English one is really great. I am checking the chat, I just can't respond to it too much. Now, the, the English uh, version is by Swami Nikkilananda. And this is a nice name for you to remember, Swami Nikkilananda. Uh, he's a great South Asian writer with a lot of resources on Advaita Vedanta, uh, and also, you know, other things. Okay, so now you know, and let's just make this overview. From Hinduism, which is the practice derived from the Vedas, you get Vedanta. Vedanta has three forms. You have Advaita Vedanta of Shankaracharya and Gaurapada and Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. That's the Advaita Vedanta lineage. You have Vishisht Advaita, qualified non-duality, which is very much like yoga and Sankhya. And then you have uh, Dvaita Vedanta. Uh, which is duality, and I haven't spoken about that yet since it's the latest one. 
Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later. So Vedanta, that's the first school of Hinduism. The second school of Hinduism is uh, Purva Mimamsa. Sorry, Purva Mimamsa is like more orthodox than Vedanta, so I should say that first. Purva Mimamsa, then you have Vedanta. Um, then you have other schools like Sankhya. From Sankhya, you get yoga. You also have Vaisheshika, which is a school about physics and atoms. And then you get Nyaya, which is a school about logic. I haven't really spoken much about that. But all these are considered Hinduism. These are the six orthodox schools of Hinduism. Outside of that, you have what you call the heterodoxy, which consists of Charvaka, which is materialism. The Charvakans reject all supernatural things. They're like the Western material, the Christopher Dawkins. Sorry, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens of India, way before it was cool to be a pretentious atheist. You know, they were doing that. Then you get Jainism, Buddhism, and Tantra. Tantra is closest to Hinduism. You might even add it as like the seventh branch of the tree of Hinduism. So now we're going to take a break. Uh, we will do the Buddha and Buddhism in a separate class because, as you know, the 26th of May uh, is a full moon. And... The full moon of May is known as Buddha Purnima. It's celebrated by Buddhists as the uh, um, day of the Buddha's enlightenment, or at least it's a day to celebrate the Buddha. So in that class, I will give you a nice long lecture on the story of the Buddha. He's one of our greatest sages, by the way. And Swami Vivekananda said a beautiful thing. He said, um, the Buddha was the sanest man who ever lived. There were no cobwebs in that brain. <laughs> Which is a beautiful uh, statement. So the Buddha is probably one of our finest. Ramakrishna and the Buddha, Shankaracharya and Chaitanya, these are perhaps my top four, right? The Buddha is way up there. Ramakrishna, Chaitanya, um, and Shankara. And of course, Vivekananda. Okay, so I'm going to close there and open the floor for questions. In part two, if you're still around for that, we'll talk about modern yoga, which is how did yoga come to America? How is it that these studios showed up? What kind of yoga are you practicing? What's Kundalini yoga? Um, what's uh, Ashtanga yoga? What's uh, Vini yoga? What's Iyengar yoga? And how did it get here for crying out loud? Okay, that's coming up in part two. For now though, I do want to stop and I want to uh, get a feel for our room. So let's just take a pause here and open the floor to any questions, shares, comments, um, use the raised hand function so I can see you or, or yes. Okay. Douglas, please. Hello again, Nish. We met last week. <laughs> Thank you again for having me. I remember me. how to read without reading. <laughs> yeah. Too many texts, <laughs> um, but not a problem, right? Um, <laughs> so I, I had something I wanted to share and then I had a question for you. Um, when you speak about, you know, we are not the mind and we are not the body, um, your favorite thing to say, <laughs> um, I had a realization last night during a show that I was watching with my partner. Um, there's a, there's a video game and I can't remember the name of it right now, but in this video game, there's a man who was like the last one to survive after some sort of apocalyptic event. And he's trying to get to this place where he can upload his consciousness into what is essentially like paradise. And he, the whole video game is like working through all of these things to get to this place, to upload his mind to this paradise, to escape the horror of like what, what he's in. 
And the twist at the end of the game is that he successfully reaches the place. He successfully uploads his consciousness to this paradise, but he still exists. He still exists in his reality and in all of his suffering and his pain and in this room that he wanted to escape. But his consciousness does get replicated and uploaded to this paradise. So it also simultaneously exists. Ah, yeah, there it is, Soma. So it simultaneously, he is like uploaded into this paradise. And last night I was finishing uh, some of this show, this new show, Invincible. And in this show, there is a, a bad guy who one of his things is that he replicates himself. He creates a, um, what's it called? A duplicate, like a, um, not replicates himself. Like he does it through science. He clones himself. There we go. He creates a clone. And they go even further into this idea that the clone is a perfect replication of your body. And then he dumps his mind into it. It's a perfect replication of his mind, but it is not him. It is somebody else, you know, completely. And I feel like uh, my partner made me realize, because I'd been speaking about a lot of this with him. He was like, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like, you are not the mind and you are not the body. And I was like, yes, that's exactly it. Like, you can completely replicate your mind and your body into like this other being and it still won't be you. You won't be inside of it. It will be experiencing its own consciousness separately from you. And I just thought that that was a cool thing that might resonate with some people. I wanted to share that. Uh, my question for you is I've been ruminating a lot specifically on Advaita Vedanta. I know you speak on a lot of things, but that's what has been speaking to me the most. So I've been trying to do research on it and stuff. And uh, I think sometimes it can be hard because I only speak English. So I'm sure like a lot of the more interesting questions and answers are probably written in another language. And I don't know how to search for these things. I was curious uh, within Advaita Vedanta, like, you spoke last week with someone who was talking about horoscopes and you spoke kind of with the sort of like, um, you know, it's not, it's not that like we hate horoscopes or anything, but kind of unimpressed with the idea because it has to do with like your body and your mind. And that's not impressive. That's not you. Um, so where does the concept of like personal identity come into the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta. Like uh, I'm like a part of the LGBT community. Um, I've, you know, dealt with a lot of situations where you have to like figure out like what things are me and what things are like things I grew up learning of blah, blah. like the concept of personal identity is really important in a lot of just groups that exist. And I'm curious, like what is, where, like, is there any sort of like an insight or a teaching or an idea within Advaita Vedanta on like personal identity? Like, do you, is that something that you're supposed to completely release? Is that something that you would have already released if you were more enlightened? Like, what is what is the conceptualization there? This, the second one. It's something you would already have released as you approach closer and closer to the lofty heights of Advaita Vedanta philosophy. Mm. So you're very right. Um, Douglas, it's a, you hit the nail on the head. Advaita Vedanta is a difficult philosophy when it meets... Uh, identity politics or the DSM-5, right? Because basically the statement is this, only the statement I am is true. Anything you put after the I am is false. So if you consider identity, first of all, Advaita Vedanta gives you very powerful argumentation working with your immediate perceptual awareness to show you that you are not the body. Yes? So we've done that together. We did the, uh, uh, earlier we did Taitriya Upanishad, the changing versus the changeless. 
Then there's the Drig Drishya Viveka, which is the seer versus the seen. Anyway, all these arguments are designed first and foremost to show you that you are not this body. That's really important because then you will never make a statement, I am, and complete that with something about the body. Because you know it's not you. Then you go a little deeper and you realize you are not the mind or the subtle body. So all issues of identity pertain to thought constructs. Now, Nish is a thought construct. So if Nish wants an identity as a yoga teacher, what is that but a thought, right? A thought in my awareness. It's a thought that I negotiate with other thoughts in society. So Advaita Vedanta says you are not the body, nor are you the personality. So any I am statement that it involves an identification with the body and the mind will ultimately lead to suffering. If not now, then sooner or later. The reason it will lead to suffering is because nothing in the body or the mind is permanent. And it's not just that there's political oppression. You know, it's not just that buying into identity brings with it a set of political conundrums, it's that the body will die and the personality will change and anything that comes and goes is unlikely to give you any lasting satisfaction. So if you are engaged in a process of finding identity, but finding it in the body and the mind, you will, according to Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism, be categorically disappointed. So Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta actually can become rather uh, jarring for someone who's engaged in the process of formulating an identity because the Buddha is even more radical. So we say there is an identity, right? It's an identity more fulfilling than any other thing you might say. Like I am, and then insert a statement here, might be fulfilling for a time, but it's never going to be as fulfilling as just being awareness uh, without any attachment to body or mind. A nice word is asangoham, which means I am the unattached self. And Douglas, I will refer you to the unattached self a talk by Swami Sarva Priyananda. I know rather than reading, these might be good resources. Last week, Douglas, you asked for audio resources and then I didn't give it to you. I just slammed reading. <laughs> so this is an audio resource. It's a podcast and available on YouTube. Uh, and in this talk, Swami Sarva Priyananda discusses the mantra, Asango Ham, which means I am without attachment. So ideally, you are without attachment to any identity. Uh, knowing it to be just a thought coming and going within the mind and you are not the mind, you are the one who is aware of the mind. So you don't want to be attached to not being attached, nor do you want to be attached to an identity. You just want to be, you know, the Buddha goes much further, you know, because in Advaita Vedanta, we say you are not your body, nor are you your mind, nor are you any of the labels that you are giving yourself, but you are something. What you are is a self, capital S. That Atman or self is the same as Brahman, which is Sat Chid Ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss itself. It's beyond all politics. It's beyond all societal ideas. Uh, but it is something, right? So you've got something to grasp on. Now, the Buddha was like, this is a problem because now you're going to be attached to being unattached. So you're going to turn this Atman into a concept and that's going to be your new identity. Do you see how this is a problem? For a philosophy that's interested in taking you beyond identity, it still has a trap, which is to identify as the one without identity. <laughs> that's still an identity. Asangoham, the unattached one, is still an identity. So the Buddha was like, fuck that shit. We're going to go even more radical. And the ultimate insight of Buddhism is this, Anathman. Anathman means no self. So ultimately, when you master the Buddhist path, 
you will realize that within the five aggregates, the Buddhists call it pancha skanda, the five aggregates, rupa skanda, vedana skanda, there's like five things that make up your, your experience of life. In none of them is there you. It's called anathma. It's spelled like this. And you know, you can see why it's called anathman. Atman means self, right? In, in Advaita Vedanta, Atman means self. So anathman means no self. So the Buddha says, not only are you not in the body, not only are you not in the mind, you are not anywhere. So the Buddha is trying to take you even beyond the need for a self. Advaita Vedanta is trying to take you to your true self. Do you see that? Because they ask different questions. One of them asks the question, who am I? And the answer is not the body, not the mind, not any identities, not any political labels. You are just the one who is aware of all that. Let the body and mind have their political labels. You can operate on two levels at once. So if the mind must glom on to a statement like yoga teacher, let it. Just know that you are not the mind. You know, uh, ideally, once you really internalize this, the body and mind also will kind of give up their need to be attached or whatever. But the Buddha goes further and says, uh, how do we end suffering? So he's not asking, who am I? As the Advaita Vedantins asking, he's asking, how do we end suffering? And he's realizing his insight is that suffering will always exist as long as you try to identify with impermanence and everything is impermanent. Anityam, anityam, sarvam, anityam. So the somebody made a joke the other day, you know, we have a lot of conversations about politics and the intersection with spirituality. Spirituality is intensely political. As you can tell, right? These are intensely political statements. In India, they met the attacking of the caste system and identity like I'm a Brahmin, I'm a Kachatriya, I'm a Shudra. Non-duality, rubbish that notion. You are not any of those things. You are awareness. So it does rub up against politics, but Politics are more upset with spirituality and spirituality is kind of indifferent to politics. So uh, Vivekananda was often asked to speak on politics. It was a very politically charged time. The civil war had happened. America was trying to figure out its identity as a new nation. Walt Whitman, Emerson and Thoreau threw up their hands and stopped being the voice of America. So people were confused. And Vivekananda was always asked in talks, what do you think about this or civil rights? And he would often say, God and truth are my only politics. All else is trash. I love that phrase. So, but inevitably, we do always have these conversations and we should. And one day, someone made a really funny joke. My friend, she made a really funny joke. She said, we we're talking about like Black Lives Matter and, and, and how in America there's these like weird linguistic things where it's like, it's like just weird linguistic statements that are super politicized. Although they are obvious statements, they become political statements. So we were talking about that. And the joke was, you know, the Buddha might have said no lives matter. <laughs> really, that might be the Buddha's position. He's like, you aren't anything. You are anatman. But look at this. With that realization, the Buddha spent his entire life walking up and down India trying to free people. Yes, Amy. So the Buddha realized he wasn't a self, right? He was asked, uh, what are you? Uh, are you an angel? He wasn't asked, who are you? He was asked, what are you? Uh, are you an angel? He's like, no. Are you? He wouldn't have said angel, deva. Are you a deva? No. Are you a, a, a sage? He'd say, no. Then what are you? He'd say, I am Buddha. Aham buddhas, bu, bu, buddhas me. I am the awakened one. Awakened to what? Awakened to the fact that there is no I in that statement. I am the awakened one. So what did the Buddha do? He didn't just disappear. He didn't go to the mountains. He spent his entire life teaching other people to realize the emptiness of their eye. 
And only a realized being is capable of such compassion. Now, on the question of identity, transgenderism, um, it's it's explored. Like, for instance, Ramakrishna, as you will read in the Sri Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, often dressed as a woman in a way to overcome sexual desire. So he said, if you're trying to overcome lust, first of all, he says, why would you try to overcome lust? Just direct it towards God. That was his typical statement, like a true tantrika. Uh, but he used to dress as a woman. Um, and the reason he did that, the reason he cross-dressed is because he was trying to train himself out of the like male gaze and the male lust. And also in the Vaishnava tradition, they say everyone is a woman except for Krishna. So there's no gender politics. You are all categorically women. Sorry, even if you think you're men, you're not. Uh, you're all women and only God is the one man, you know? So there's a story of a, of a naked uh, female saint. She never wore any clothes uh, because Shiva is often seen as the naked one. So she was a Shaiva devotee. She never wore any clothes. And sometimes the orthodoxy would, would scold her and be like, have you no shame, woman, coming here to a special meditation spot, naked at a woman? And, and she would say, why should I be embarrassed? I see no men here. <laughs> she would often say that in front of all the men, you know. So yeah, there have been questions about gender. In Tantra, they mix the man and woman together, Shiva and Shakti, um, and they express the infiniteness between those two polarities. So any mixture of those two genders, uh, it's gender fluidity at its best because it's a vibratory world in which you are not any one body, any one mind, but a vibrating mesh of all the bodies and minds. So I think that's what I can give you, Douglas. Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism is a little more radical, wants to take you beyond all conceptions of self, whereas other forms of schools like Vaishnava is, is happy for you to conceptualize a self. I can say this though, you should sort out your identity politics thing first. You know, they say, if you want to be a spiritual practitioner, you better be able to conquer a kingdom before you come to us. If you don't have the willpower to be an emperor of the world, you won't have the willpower to meditate. You are about to storm the fortresses of yourself. Also, if you don't have incredible intellect and an open heart, if you haven't worked on yourself, then there wouldn't be very much to offer, would there? So the, the question is, you do need to sort some stuff out. You need to make sure your monetary stuff is okay. Your self-esteem is okay. You have to have a base level of psychological wellness in order to even start practicing spirituality, which seems like a catch-22 because the reason some of us practice spirituality is for psychological wellness. And here I am telling you that you need psychological wellness for the higher insights of spirituality. So just say it like this. We're all at different stages of our path and wherever we are is just fine because it's not a linear path. You know, all it takes is one insight and there's no saying when and how you will come upon that insight. So you might do it while articulating a self within the gender politics identity matrix of America. You might do it in the agendered, a-identity nebulous of a Buddhist monastery where the women and men both shave their heads and they're like agendered. You know, you however you find it is the way you find it. But generally we could say you practice spirituality first to heal only to realize there was never anyone that needed healing because there was never anyone home to begin with. You never left. You'll never get there. You are now as you are perfect, but not in any way in which you might have previously thought of you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I thought that was really beautiful. When you were talking about um, 
people who make not having an identity an identity it uh brings to mind people who make like the entire idea of ego death like their identity um there's some people you'll talk to who are just like ego death ego death you know what that is like i killed my ego (laughs) and that's their entire identity um but i hear what you're saying yeah and uh i feel like it even within your say what you're saying it's hard to know whether or not the right thing is to like reject your need or wants to change parts of your body and self or to like lean into that and like have no criticism of it you know what i mean and no attachment to it but i yes. thank you for all of your wisdom <laughs> and i'll to pass it no, on to thank someone you else for- Thank you for all of yours, because you're right. Tantra is about radical acceptance, which is accepting where you are in your path and remembering that everything is as much God as everything else, but not everything is as conducive to, uh, to revealing that. So appreciate that point. It's very subtle. Everything is as much God as everything else, but not everything is as conducive towards revealing that fact to you. You know, so some things can inhibit your spiritual progress so rejecting things demonizing things and also indulging in things and being attached to things are two sides of the same coin it's an over uh, identification with the thing as opposed to the awareness in which it sits so yeah you're right amy it is a really great insight um whether you should reject or lean into it and the answer is neither in the vig yes neither exactly amy you got it you nailed it you got there before i did one punch uh, but the punchline is neither. Um, neutrality is generally what we look for. It's, it's peace going beyond duality. And in the Vignana Bhairava Tantra, you will even see something like the Tantrika. Oh, I just saw Mia's Bitmoji. And that's the most appropriate Bitmoji I've ever seen for today's talk. <laughs> Seated on two books, reading a third. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but yeah, the Vignana Bhairava Tantra says something like, don't... Um, Throw yourself into sorrow. Don't cast yourself into despair. Nor should you abandon yourself to happiness. Um, In Star Wars, Yoda says to Luke, Adventure! (laughs) Excitement! (laughs) Jedi crave not these things. (laughs) You know? Um, But of course, it takes a lot of adventure and excitement until you're ready to finish with adventure and excitement. Ram Dass gives a nice metaphor. He says... Rather than making any moralistic statements about peanut butter, if you're really addicted to peanut butter, just eat the whole jar. Eat it until you cannot bear the sight of it. So one way to finish with your pleasures is to just be jaded with them. And the only way to be jaded with them is just to live them, you know? In in, in Nisha's drunken monkey case, he needed to have his rock star fantasy for a little while. You know, he needed to play guitar in a band and go up and down the Sunset Boulevard and try all the uh, substances and, and enjoy all that those like egoic fantasies only so that he could decide that they weren't worth it, you know. Um, but there would be no value in sacrificing those things if I didn't first enjoy them only to realize their hollowness. So Tantra is a path of engaging in the world. Be in the world. Do the things that your heart wants you to do because ultimately, no rush. You will eventually come here. Eventually, you will arrive at the point where you crave to go beyond the body and mind. And I promise you, we will be waiting. (laughs) All right. Yes. Yes. Why are we doing episode four? (laughs) Yes. Not talking about the prequels has put me in a different age group. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, Alicia. Good night to you. Uh, and yes, Amy, I definitely mean other lifetimes. Although Advaita Vedanta rejects reincarnation, um, but every other philosophical school in India recognizes reincarnation. When you come to the Buddha talk, you will see why. The Buddha says you don't reincarnate because you don't exist, right? Uh, but the body and mind reincarnate. Uh, or what he calls the Panchaskanda, they reincarnate. And in the text Pratitya Samudpada, he gives you a 12-step process as to how reincarnation happens. It's all very scientifically explained, and reincarnation is a scientific theory um, to kind of explain how it is that we, you know, when we learn, we don't feel like we're getting something new, we feel like we're remembering something we already knew. You know, to explain why it is that you feel like doing stuff. Eh, not quite souls. I mean, it depends. Some schools in Hinduism, yeah, they like to talk about Atman as a soul. Uh, but soul is a very Christian word. You know, in, in Indian philosophy, we don't really have the word soul. I, the closest thing is Atman. And Atman means self, which means the individual experiencer. Yeah, the feeling of familiar Amy. Good. Okay, Holly, please. Welcome. Hi, Nish. Thank you so much for all of your shares. I've been with you for a few months now. This is my first time sharing. And Welcome. I am doing a 250-hour yoga teacher training course. And it is a complete roller coaster. And the amount of information is super overwhelming. And I had to do an essay on yoga philosophy. And you have helped me out so much. I wish I could rewrite it now after listening to you. Um, I had a couple things. Um, uh, I wanted to say about Amy Lynn's comment about um, the perspective of the self um, and coping with chronic physical pain. Um, when my mother was giving birth to my sister, she was in so much pain. She had actually left her body and um, described it as riding on this wave of pain, but not actually experiencing it. And she believes is like the only thing that actually got her through it. So um, I, I, from what I've learned too, um, from what she experienced, which I couldn't imagine, um, you kind of get to a place where you do kind of leave your body and then uh, you're able to sort of identify with the higher self and let your body go through what it needs to go through and then come back to, which I think is beautiful. Um, and I've gotten there a couple times during meditation, you know, without all the pain involved. <laughs> um, but I did really want to bring up, uh, I've been talking to my friends and family about, um, you say a lot how, uh, the real us is with, um, aware of the dream state, deep sleep and our awake state or dream awake and deep sleep. And, um, I have been only dreaming Every night I could take a nap for five minutes and I wake up from a movie, a, a story. Um, I don't remember the last time I slept without dreaming. And honestly, it's, it's kind of exhausting. Um, so, and then I wanted to ask, cause you always see a drunken monkey. I actually really enjoy alcohol. So I've been trying to push that to the side. And I didn't know if that had anything to do with my not being able to deep sleep, but I've been trying to sort of um, get rid of alcohol, even though nothing has happened to me that I should be, like you said, jaded by it. Um, I never really got hurt. Nobody else around me got hurt. Nothing ever bad really happened, but I know that it's sort of encumbering on my practice and everything involved um, as far as becoming more realized and aware of being aware, um, which is a beautiful process, but um, alcohol definitely 
it, it holds me back a lot. And um, so I did still want to talk about why can't I just have deep sleep? I dream every night. It's exhausting. I don't, I don't ever sleep without waking up and ruminating for at least 10 minutes over what I just went through. <laughs> so I really wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And thank you so much. <laughs> Beautiful, Holly. First of all, welcome. Um, I'm so happy you're doing your 250-hour yoga teacher training. A YTT is a beautiful thing to do. Um, and it does put a lot on your plate uh, very quickly. So it's important to remember that you have a lot of time to work with this material. You know, you can digest it. Uh, Fabricio and Garvit in the chat are both referencing alcohol with relation to deep sleep. Um, one thing we say is that uh, we, we have a phrase, it's psychically tired. A lot of people, when they meditate, they fall asleep because they're psychically tired in that their energy body is working to digest a lot of very undigestible things. With regards to alcohol, um, you never really want to reject a diet or a practice. You want to allow that practice to naturally fall away from you. You know, so the discipline is not to stay away from alcohol. The discipline is actually to intensify your asana, pranayama, and meditation. So you're already in a 200-hour teacher program. Like, you're doing a lot of asana, which is awesome. Uh, involve the pranayama and meditation a little more. And then as you continue to practice, you will notice in you a kind of wholesomeness, a feeling of completion, and a natural, spontaneous intoxication that kind of edges out the alcohol. So it's not like you're giving up the alcohol. You're just realizing that there are pleasures that are a little bit more refined and beautiful and, and nourishing that make the alcohol redundant. It's like you're graduating to, to different kinds of pleasures, so to speak. Um, so that's the thing. Yes, it's true. There are certain things that might inhibit spiritual practice, like intoxication seems to be across the board, something that every spiritual, uh, most spiritual traditions advise against. So in the Quran, for instance, they talk against being intoxicated. You'll find that in the Quran. In the teaching of the Buddha, in the um, Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra, one of the Buddha's first teachings in the deer park, you will find the eightfold path, the Ashtanga Marga of the Buddhist. In there, there's, there's a, a recommendation as to right living or right conduct, and it says avoid intoxication. It also says don't be a tax collector, which is kind of funny. I don't know why that's a livelihood that's apparently not kosher, <laughs> but it's in the text. Uh, anyway, so it does say there, don't be intoxicated. And Indian society generally, one of the rituals of Tantra was to drink alcohol. Now, the reason Tantra says drink alcohol is because Indian society won't touch that stuff back in the day. Like Brahmin society, like the last thing they will do is drink alcohol. So Tantra is like, oh, you think God is everywhere? Then drink the damn alcohol. Show me. It's kind of the equivalent of a raw foods vegan, vegan eating the Big Mac to prove that they've accepted all things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, the tantric ritual about alcohol wasn't about intoxication. Um, it, it's more about confronting things that you don't want. So if you're attached to something like a certain kind of food or a certain kind of pleasurable experience or a certain kind of alcohol, it can be very difficult to push that away because the what you resist tend to persist. It's not the alcohol that you're working against. It's something deeper. It's something deeper that brings you towards contact with alcohol. And that cannot be treated superficially by 
abstaining from alcohol. It can be addressed only through deepening your meditation. So I would practice maybe some vipassana. You might try just following the breath and developing the ability to stay with the breath while remaining peripherally aware. You might check out John Yates's book. John Yates has a beautiful book called Mind Illuminated, which is kind of a good manual for anyone getting involved with meditation. He can help teach you the Buddhist style of meditation, which is very good. Um, and in time hall, you might discover that there's a kind of feeling, like a a completion, a kind of kind of passive contentment that causes you to no longer desire the things that you desire that you suspect might be holding you back. And then you'll notice you'll be sleeping deeply. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so perfect. Um because I have these meditations that completely, I mean, trump just any amount of alcohol or any type of alcohol that I could ever drink or any substance for that matter. Um, it's, it's kind of maintaining that, but then you realize during meditation, what really kind of crops up for you and kind of disrupts that sense of, um, like you said, passive contentment that you may feel and sort of getting to know yourself that way. Uh, yeah, for sure. That's beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you so much for the recommendations. I love that answer. You should see Fabricio also recommended a lovely book. Yes, Mindfulness in Plain English. That's a lovely one. Um, actually, Buddhist mindfulness comes from Buddhism. That word mindfulness, it comes from the Anapanasati, a Buddhist text. It's kind of a misleading word though because it, it does refer to a certain state of Samadhi and Sati. Samadhi is concentrated awareness, focusing on the breath. Sati is peripheral awareness. Mindfulness is the overall quality of consciousness achieved by doing both at the same time, avoiding distractions. So yeah, mindfulness is, is pretty good. Um, as, as beginner meditators should practice or get some grounding in that style, definitely. Um, Holly, I will tell you a story. Uh, a lovely story from Paramahansa Yogananda. You can see it in the, bio auto, uh, the biographical documentary Awake. It's just called Awake. And it's a documentary on Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda. And in it, there's an ac actor or mus musician. There's a musician. And he's coming to visit uh, Paramahansa Yogananda at his ashram, in his place of spiritual learning. And in the ashram, there are monastics, so people who have chosen to abandon all possessions, all name. Again, something about identity politics. A lot of monks give up their name even, <laughs> you know. Uh, and he goes and he hangs out with the monks, but he feels a little weird. He feels like he doesn't belong. The monks are so pure. They don't drink and they're uh, celibate and they're so pure. And he, on the other hand, is addicted to many patterns of behavior that he considers kind of immoral. Uh, yet he still is attached to them. So he goes to Paramahansa Yogananda, the great Indian saint, and he says, you know, in every religion that I've encountered so far, there's a long list of what you can't do. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. But in your religion, I haven't encountered such a list. Um, and Yogananda just smiles at him and he says, does this, does this mean that I can go down into the city and do all my things and still come up here and hang out with you guys? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, I'm confused about that. So Yogananda says, do you drink? And he says, yes. And he goes, do you smoke? And he says, yes. Do you have extramarital sex with uh, many partners? And he goes, yes. Or he says something, do you have promiscuous sex? And he goes, yes. And he says, okay. 
you do not have to stop doing those things. And he's like, what? I can continue to do all of that stuff and come and hang out with you? And he says, yes, yes, yes. And this is the clincher. But I cannot promise you that those things won't fall away from you. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just keep practicing. And the more you practice, the more any kind of extra need will go because you'll just encounter more and more the wholesomeness that is ever present within you. Maybe Holly needs a certain pattern of behavior, but the more you realize you aren't Holly, never were you Holly, never will you be Holly, you are the awareness in which the very vibrant and very beautiful, yet albeit illusory phenomena known as Holly arises and dissipates, then uh, you'll be free of the Holly karma, so to speak, you know, but the key is to practice. So we try our best not to moralize uh, and all the energy we would be spending moralizing, we devote that to practicing instead. Wow. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. It falls away. And if your practice is tried and true, then then it honestly just lowers your vibration. Yes. You know, so thank you so much, Nish. I really appreciate it. You are most, most welcome, Holly. Very good. Very good question. Very good discussion. Nam gyoho renge kyo. Yes. Very good discussion because um, when I notice here in the West and starting to be in, 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 in Asia too, I notice in India, it's starting to come. But this idea of like Catholic guilt. So a lot of people here when they were young, um, religion, that first experience. Yes, Amy, that first experience of religion is you're wrong. Now here's how to get better. And it's pervaded even our yoga. So the idea is you're broken. We'll heal you. No, um, yoga has never made such a claim. Yoga is not about healing or growing. As I've said numerous times before, yoga is about recognizing the completion and perfection you already are that you just forgot, you know? Um, so you never had a fall. You never left that state. But in the process of returning to that state, that is, and by that state, I mean the stable, um, unchanging, grounded experience of yourself as awareness. That's what I mean. In coming back to that place, there are certain practices that you need to do. Certain abstinences, dare I say it, um, sexual continence is an important one, at least in the mind. You know, so when Jesus said, he whosoever looks upon a woman commits adultery, he was very wise because he's pointing out, it's not about what you do, it's really about what's going on in your mind. Because meditation is about your mind, right? So you might be like a, a celibate monk, but in your mind, you're just fantasizing about all of it, like, okay, that's not going to work for you. The idea is to be pure in the mind. So yeah, that's going to mean questioning and perhaps... Yeah, it's more about intention, more about vibration, if you will. And there's certain things that, as Holly beautifully pointed out, are lower in vibratory frequency that are not conducive to being stable in higher vibratory states. That's just the simple fact of it. Nothing moralizing about it. It's just gravity. You know, it's not out to get you. It's just physics. It's a vibratory thing. Now, um, because there are lower vibratory experiences like lust, like greed, like and, and notice the thing about lower vibratory states is that they always reify separate self. You know, so the only reason you feel lust, greed, aversion is because you're truly identified with the body and mind and you see everything else as separate. So as long as you stay in that vibration, it will perpetuate a worldview in which you feel separate from everyone around you. That's why you do need to some degree to um, discipline yourself against such thoughts and you will need to re recalibrate your languaging. You must be careful with the use of the word I or the use of the word be, 
you know, to be, was, is. You must be careful before you give ontological allowance to anything. Be careful with how you use that word be, how you use that word I. Now, these are disciplines. Going to the mat every day is a discipline. And you have to do it every day. This is important. You cannot miss, please mark my words, you cannot miss a single day of practice. You cannot. You, you just, for the higher states of realization, to truly ground, welcome back, Amanda, to truly ground yourself in this understanding, you cannot drop a single day of practice. Does that mean you'll practice every day? God, no. You will always fall short of your ideals. Are you kidding? You're human. Part of this quest starts from recognizing, accepting, and having compassion for human frailty. So now we've got something interesting, right? We've got the ideal, the spiritual ideal, which is to practice every day, to be careful with our languaging, to only live in higher vibrational thoughts um, and guide ourselves by our ideals. The higher your ideal, and you should set very high ones, the higher your ideal, the more likely you are to fall short of it. So you have to skirt the line between discipline, holding yourself to your ideal, and most importantly, having compassion for the inevitable failure to do so. A thousand times you will fall, a thousand times you will get up. And importantly, during this whole process, avoid moralizing. Avoid being like, oh, that's bad. No, actually, it's good. It's good that you've recognized it. So celebrate the moment of awakening that comes right after noticing you've fallen into a pattern, noticing you've fallen into a, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, off the wagon, so to speak. And every time you notice that, it's a victory. The more often you notice it, and the more often you associate noticing with a feeling of joy and celebration, as, to opposed of, as opposed to a feeling of self-recremation, you know, like, oh, I fell off. No, say, ah, I discovered that I fell off. If you can create that positive association between falling off and noticing that you're falling off, sooner or later, the number of times you fall off become less and less. And after a while, you will gradually, stably be in this state. You won't miss a day of practice. It will be natural. Practice will do you. Though in the beginning, you must do the practice. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it is like remembering, right? You've always known, known it. Oh, Fabricio, no, we did not do the Ramayana, nor did we do the Mahabharata, the two greatest epics of India. <laughs> wow, quite a bit of stuff, huh? <laughs> it's, it's, it's ambitious, I know. I was like, I'm going to provide the buffet of all that India has to offer to raise some money for her. Um, and all I've done is held up two or three grains of sand. And then I look at the beach and I'm like, oh, whoops, we tried. <laughs> okay. Let's continue to, to go down this line of questions. Um, next up is Mads, I believe. Please. Hey. Um, I guess I'm going to refrain from asking the technical questions that I have until I've finished studying Drigtrisha Viveka. But I wanted to ask something i guess more topical to your lecture tonight about um i guess different traditions so one of these swamis who i've been listening to a lot was uh educated in the chinmayananda mission or by by someone who was 
and the Chiang Mai are on a mission, and they, uh, I don't know if this term is considered uh, maybe a little derisive, but uh, called Ramakrishna mission and uh, Vivekananda, um, Neovedanta. And I was just kind of wondering, I know you refer to Ramakrishna and to Vivekananda a lot. And I, I just kind of was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, the Chinmayanda Gita was my first Gita. So I remember being uh, a young boy and studying the my first commentary. I should say my first commentary of the Gita was Swami Chinmayanda's Gita. So I have much love for uh, that school. But yeah, that phrase, Neo Vedanta, what does it mean? Um, you know, it's funny because with Ramakrishna, it's so hard to... A lot of Western audiences dub Ramakrishna an Advaita Vedantin. Like they say, he is a Vedantist and particularly of the non-dual variety. But when you study the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, he's not really that. He's more of like a dualist bhakti practitioner guy. He's always telling people... Uh, it's the Kali Yuga. You know, he's always saying it's it's the time of darkness. You're not going to be able to live by the standards of um, 7th century BCE India Vedantist. Good to see you, Holly. Welcome. So it's like Ramakrishna is always advising people against classical Vedanta in a weird way, right? But he does say it's the highest revelation. But the way he says to get to that revelation is through dualistic worship, which is through uh, singing the songs of God, through praying, through dancing and singing. So he's kind of like more in the Chaitanya school when it comes to practice. Uh, but you might call him a jnani in heart, but a bhakti in, 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 in form. You know, Vivekananda is the opposite. He teaches jnana yoga. He teaches Advaita Vedanta, but he's like a bhakta. If you notice, you know, if you read about Vivekananda, he's like really deeply down inside. He He's a bhakta. You know, he worships Kali and, and, and Ramakrishna used to make fun of him. He say, oh, now he rejects Kali. Just you wait, he'll come around. And if you read his writings towards the later part of his year, years, uh, as you will read in Swami Nikilananda's uh, uh, autobiography, not autobiography, biography, he waxes lyrical on God. He's super dualist. And Someone even asked him, aren't you a non-dualist? He said, no, as long as I have a body, I'm a dualist. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but it's, it's hard to put Ramakrishna into a box because one must remember, either you think Ramakrishna is a madman. A lot of people think he's a madman. He's just the madman of Dakshineshwar. He's just a crazy guy in a temple who worships his own penis and puts his wife on the altar and worships her. You know, uh, he was he was known for this holy madness, a kind of eccentric. He cleaned a, 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 an untouchable's bathroom with his hair. You know, he's, he's kind of a, a eccentric fellow. So many people thought he was a madman. Some people thought he was just another sage. But legendarily, he's an avatar, and many pundits came and confirmed that he was in fact an incarnation of God. And that means that he represents the entirety of South Asian culture, and in fact, not all cultures. He practiced as a Muslim, and he deemed that faith true. He practiced as a Christian, and he deemed that faith just as good as any other. So he's kind of like a world teacher in that sense. So to call him a Vedantist is weird. He's a Muslim, and a Christian, and a Tantrika. Uh, to call him a bhakti practitioner is weird because he 
taught at Jnana. So I hope you can appreciate the point here, Mads, that it's it's hard to call Ramakrishna any one thing, especially when we consider the connotation of the word Neo-Vedanta. So Neo-Vedanta often gets used with reference to the teachers of Advaita Vedanta in the West, um, teaching a brand of philosophy known as the direct path or the direct method. Now, the direct method is the idea that you don't need to meditate or practice. You just need insight. All it takes is one insight. Um, but here's the fine print, people. To have that insight, you need to meditate. You need to practice. Uh, but Neo-Vedanta generally refers to these new non-dual ideas. There's a book called Non-Duality and Me. Or Eckhart Tolle, for instance, is what we might call Neo-Vedanta because he talks about Vedantic ideas without necessarily talking about the Vedas. It's just called non-duality. People like Rupert Spira... Rupert Spira is a Western non-dualist. Um, he calls himself a Sufi at heart, which is funny. Uh, but he also might be put into the non-dual Neo-Vedantist camp. So Mads, if I understand correctly the term Neo-Vedanta to mean the teachings of Vedanta as it pertains to the direct path or the way it's developed um, since Shankaracharya then it wouldn't be right to call Vivekananda or Ramakrishna that since they are, when they talk about Advaita Vedanta, pretty classical. So if you look at Vivekananda's Jnana Yoga, it's classic Shankaracharya, classic Drigdrishya Viveka, classic Panchadesi. Uh, if you look at Swami Sarvapriyananda, who talks right now on behalf of the Ramakrishna mission, um, it's like the most traditional Advaita Vedanta you can imagine. Of course, he's a very charming fella. So he's always kind of putting in some Harvard flair. Uh, but I would call it actually classicist. By no means Neo-Vedanta. What do you think about that, Matt? I don't know if that helped. Yes, that was very interesting. I've actually been uh, kind of avoiding Swami Sare Priyananda until Why? you suggested I listen to the Intro to Vedanta series. Yeah. Because of that sort of uh, warning that the other Swami who I'd been watching put out, I, I wasn't sure I'd be able to distinguish between the two at that point. And he had uh, basically mentioned defective prakriyas was like the exact term he used, but that's uh, very helpful. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, also, one thing it's important Mads is uh, there is a little bit of politicking between these various missions because when it comes to funding, it seems like uh, there are some political or or financial interests because it it seems strange that um, any one school of philosophy would you know call out another school of philosophy as being wrong. Uh, without like an argument or, or these schools do debate a lot and debate is definitely central to how these philosophies have developed over the year years but I also get the sense that there is some competition you know uh, perhaps I don't know that's just a hunch um, and ultimately only you can tell so only when you're watching something uh, can you tell and I don't think you should worry so much about something being neo-Vedanta because ultimately if the argument works it, the argument works the test of any spiritual school is whether or not it can meaningfully create a state of desirelessness fearlessness in you 
So if it's a Neo-Vedanta argument that you got from Eckhart Tolle, but you managed to stably maintain a state of non-duality, it did it for you. So remember Vidyaranya, you know, in his text, when he was asked, if the ego is unreal, then all the knowledge of the ego is also unreal, right? All your knowledge is false. All your philosophies are false. Vidyaranya smiles. He doesn't smile. It's in a text. I don't know that he's smiling, but one imagines him smiling. He says, who can deny this? You're right. All this knowledge is false um, because it can only point you to the truth. It is not the truth. So you can throw it away once it's done its work. Uh, with that being the case, Ramakrishna was very clear. He said, what does it matter what you practice? Practice and be free. That's it. And Vivekananda was radical. He said, um, either by psychic control, Raja Yoga, or by Jnana Yoga, philosophical inquiry, or by devotion, Bhakti Yoga, or by selfless service, or any combination of these, become free. <laughs> That's the whole of, of spiritual practice. That's funny. That's the exact prakriya that, uh, that the Swami I was watching pointed out. Yes. That's being not traditional, the four paths of yoga. It's true. That's the innovation because in the Jnana Yoga text, you have a hierarchy and the hierarchy is uh, Jnana Yoga is the highest. Insight above all. What if you can't understand these arguments? If your buddhi, your intellect is not purified enough to get the idea, then they say Raja Yoga. Meditate. So right below Jnana Yoga is Raja Yoga. But you come back and you say, Guru, I can't meditate. I, I, my mind is busy. Then they say, relax. Bhakti Yoga. Go and pray. Prayer will prepare you for meditation. Meditation will prepare you for insight. And then uh, if you say, but I don't believe in this stuff. It's so weird. I don't want to pray. They'll say, go and selflessly serve others. Maybe you'll start to appreciate God when you can see it in others. And then you can pray dualistically and then you can meditate. So you're right. Traditionally, Advaita Vedanta has uh, a hierarchy and it puts jnana at the top. Dualism comes back and says, you know, a ladder can be turned both ways, right? <laughs> So there's also the idea that jnana comes first and from jnana with the insight, that's how you get meditation. And from meditation, you get bhakti and from bhakti, you get service. So there's also the idea of an inverted ladder, the innovation of Ramakrishna. And yes, Vivekananda is that to instead of having this ladder and hierarchy to break the rungs off, scatter it on the floor and say, pick as many rungs as you want. Just get free. Do it now. I don't care how you do it. You know, <laughs> Uh, which is kind of a syncretic approach that maybe you're right, is unique to the Ramakrishna mission, which is a good point, Mads. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, that, that helped a lot. Yes. It's exactly kind of what I was curious about. So thank yes. you. Of course. Also, remember, Ramakrishna is a tantrika, so he's going to inevitably piss off the orthodoxy. You know, like I said, we're the embarrassing cousin. The Chinmayana mission tends to be a little more proper, you know, <laughs> so you can tell. Yes. Okay. Did you have another question, Mads, or are we good? Uh, I do, but not, not for now. Okay. I'll save that one. Good, good. Thank yes, you. Thank you. Thank you for that great question. Uh, Krishna P., welcome. Please. Hello. Hi. So, um, I actually, uh, it's actually really surprising. You came up on my for you page one day and, um, I'm currently going through, um, some understanding of it because my family's Brahmin. Um, I come from a Brahmin family. 
and uh, actually two sides. I have the Patels and then I have the Brahmins. So my mom and dad are actually, <laughs> we, they, I think that's like the, one of the biggest arguments we, uh, I think uh, they both always do uh, have. But um, my mom, she's always been into spirituality and we've been surrounded by astrologists. We've been surrounded by um, mostly like her side of the family has always seen the spirituality. So me growing up, seeing them also believe in the Hinduism and doing all the the pujas and everything and doing the rituals every like uh, every occasion that they get, like especially Navrati um, and all those uh, during those times. It's like, I always wondered, why do I not like to stay here and listen to this? What is it? Like, it's like, I did, I just did not like it. There was so many things, especially one of the biggest things that really upset me. I think I got into an argument in my family was um, us women. We go through uh, menstrual cycles every month, correct? So the one thing Brahmins are like, you cannot touch, you do not come around, you do not go around the temple, you do not do this and that. And I sat there and I was just like, you're going to tell me something that God has given me, that you believe in, that we've been created. So God has given me this body. You're telling me I can't go into something like, for example, Mataji, right? She's a woman. So I was like, she's a woman so she can't be there you're telling me like so I was just like I told my mom I was just like mom there's just something that I just don't I just don't believe it like what is it and then I would see her and she was just like well if you want to do meditation it has to be you have to wake up or during this time it has to be you have to do (laughs) yoga you have to do this and that and I was just like uh what and so I was in this whole path of de- in denial. I was like, no, there's no way because I do not sit for hours. I cannot just do it. And then the more and more, like September last of last year is probably when I started going more into it because I was just like, I want to understand more to me, more to my life, more to understanding why everyone says certain things to me that... Denver made sense. And I was like, why do I feel like there's just more to me than just this simple little life that I live in this Indian household being around strictness and stuff. (laughs) Mother who believes in spirituality, but also is very strict and everything. And then not only that, but uh, it was, it was all these confusing things. So when you tell me like it, it's, 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 you do what you want to do till you let it go. So you've come to that point. So I'm at this point. I was just arguing with them two days ago. I was just like, I cannot explain it about my past. I feel like I just woke up from a coma. That's all I can tell them. I'm like, I just woke up from a coma. I am now understanding like this, these little tedious things uh, going around and having sex, going around and going parties, going around and trying to be a part of society, trying to go around and being a part of the higher power, money, everything. And I was just like, no. Mm-mm. I can't do this. I there is something more to it. It has to be not about greed. It can't be about the society standards. It's about myself and <clears throat> trying to find the balance in all of it and being a human just to live that life and move on. So it's just like 
it kind of makes it a comforting thing to know, to hear that, okay, I am probably doing it the right way. I never had the full knowledge, but now it's making me seek more knowledge. And uh, that's all, like, that's what I want to just say is like, thank you, because I don't know how. It's just, I like, I just say, I, I, I tell my mom, I'm like, mom, weird timings, weird things happen. People just walk in. <laughs> answers are answered i can't explain more than that just <laughs> let me do it and i promise you i i'm gonna be fine and but she doesn't believe it and that's why i'm just like come speak to my mother because i don't understand how to explain to an indian parent who also is into spirituality but doesn't believe me you know yes yes you know welcome to the spiritual path krishna because uh, <laughs> remember in the katha upanishad nachiketha begins the spiritual path by rejecting the orthodoxy of his Brahmin father. So he realizes very early on that something is inauthentic about this. Much as you realized about that weird temple custom about not being able to go into the temple and all of that. Yeah, and Sadhguru, some some of the controversy around Sadhguru is his defense of certain Brahminical rules. And the Brahmin societies were very patriarchal and very elitist and very caste-oriented. And so... Um, some defender, defenders of that, like Sadhguru is a mystic, right? So Sadhguru is giving a mystic reason as to why these rules exist. Uh, but us Gyanis are sometimes often a little bit, uh, what do you call it? Uh, skeptical of mystics because what, we shouldn't take anything on faith, right? Uh, mystics, the best thing that they do is provide us a method to verify their mystical findings for ourselves. Otherwise, it's just a religious leader that we're accepting on faith. We don't like that. Gyanis are more about self-discovery. So Nachiketa, he has to start by rejecting um, everything that was offered to him by society, as you did. You have to ask why this rule. And when people can't tell you, or perhaps some of them give really good reasons, like I have deep respect uh, for every sage in India. You know, every Indian is, is, is powerful <clears throat> spiritual teacher, and I have respect for all these sages. And they might be able to give you great answers. You know, Sadhguru is an excellent resource. So you might hear answers, but they might not make sense to you. Some people are like, oh yeah, okay, I don't go to the temple. But you're like, no, this seems kind of weird. Tantra is all about flipping the script. Remember, mm -hmm. when that, remember I told you that story, not just of Nachiketa rejecting the orthodoxy of his time in order to go and find his own path, but remember also the story of Shiva destroying Daksha's party. Now, that story was pretty horrific, right? Uh, it was of like the demons and the, the goblins riding the dogs of war and tearing apart this party and everyone's being killed and Daksha's head gets cut off. So Daksha is the patriarch of Vedic society. Shiva's beheading of Daksha is a sign of Tantra radically overturning the rules. It's very rock and roll, isn't it? Tantra is like the punk rock of Indian spirituality. It's like, I stick it to the man, you know, I'll find my own way. Um, but here's the important thing, Krishna. We try not to make a big deal out of it. So mm -hmm. tantrikas, even though they're breaking the rules, they're actually like law-abiding citizens outside of their practice. Mm -hmm. So they learn to live a kind of double life. Tantra was very, like secrecy was very important for tantra. So they're not like often, often they're not like out and proud. I'm snubbing the orthodoxy. No, they're like Shiva. They're just indifferent. 
The orthodoxy has nothing on them because they have something far more authentic and real. So I'll leave you with one last thought, Krishna, in navigating this relationship. Like say you have parents who maybe they're orthodox Brahmins or, or maybe you have Christian parents or, or Islamic parents or um, whatever kind of parents, atheist, materialist parents. How do you navigate a relationship as a spiritual practitioner, genuinely interested in the esoteric path, um, uh, with your family who might not be interested in that or might be interested in it in a different way, you know? So it's very important in this to recognize um, that spirituality is a personal path. As much mm-hmm. as you want to share with others, uh, this is probably the best that we can do. So we have these sanghas, you know, so we can all come together and realize we're not mm-hmm. alone. And if you're in Rio, Fabricio will... will you know, take care of you, give you all the philosophy, you go to one of his classes, he'll, you know, it's like the idea that we're all family and wherever we go, someone's there to take care of us. Um, and, and all of us have had instances in which we've been snubbed by society because of our spiritual realizations. So this is our sangha, our society. But even in here, your experiences are highly idiosyncratic. You might recognize it in someone else, like, oh, I resonate with that. But still, it's just you. It's you in the privacy of your own meditation, experiencing your own realizations. Um, and so remember the Jack Cornfield quote, my parents hate it when I'm a Buddhist, mm-hmm. but they love it when I'm a Buddha. Mm-hmm. Do you know the difference? The parents like were really like hardcore Christians or whatever. So they hated when he was a Buddhist, meaning preaching the ideas or telling them what he thought was right and what was wrong and arguing with them. But when he was able to be a Buddha, just peaceful, letting them have their own way of seeing the world, but perfectly content in your own knowing, uh, that's, that's when they will love you. So one of the things I say is if you're on the spiritual path, one thing you might want to do is call up all those teachers in high school that used to piss you off and go and get tea with them. If you think you're so far on the path, do spend a weekend with your parents or guardian. Most of us are like, we don't get along with our parents or guardian. So go and spend some time with them. Go and find someone who has a different political idea than you. Someone who might think maybe all lives matter if you're like a Black Lives Matter. Someone who might think, uh, actually, immigrants should be in cages. I don't know. Go and find someone with like the craziest political idea that opposes you. Hang out with them and try to understand things from their point of view. Essentially, what I'm saying is you test your spiritual maturity by being in situations that trigger you and realizing that they no longer trigger you. The more they trigger you, don't be upset. It's just a sign that more work is necessary. Nish, you are so right about that because I am at this point because, okay, growing up, I used to be a very uh, bubbly person. I love to care for everybody, no matter what it was. I, did, it, I never wanted to see the bad in nobody. So I am at that point where the only people I really argue or am really upset with are my parents, I think, uh, because um, I think the idea that my mother being so spiritual, but then also like saying that she doesn't fully believe in like all of Hinduism because of like some of the beliefs are wrong and like she doesn't really like fully believing in Brahman. And then you have a father who's a complete atheist. He doesn't believe it, you know? So <laughs> it is, but then he does. I, it's hard to even explain, okay? Until I think January, um, my grandma passed away. So we had to do the puja and everything. So we, instead of having just a regular one, um, oh no, no, not yet. They will literally, my mother will not listen. She will argue. Um, but 
she, he, the, they had the spiritual priest come in. And in the beginning, I do not like pujas. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm like falling asleep. And I'm like, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I don't want to be here. But I'm like, I'm just going to listen. So I, he said something with ourselves. It was like, it's, it's like trying to find yourself and everything. So I just started listening and I was just like, hold on, wait. Is he actually talking about the real Hinduism, the way it was before everything happened, before someone tried to change up everything? And I'm just like listening intentively. And I spoke to him before my mother joined. And I asked him, I said, I don't have to do it strictly, right? And he was like, no, it's your own path. It's your own journey. And I said, thank you. That's what I was thinking. I was like, it's like if this is self, isn't it supposed to be our, our just an, our timing? And I, as I keep going and going, I tell her, I'm just like, everyone is just learning and healing. Everyone is learning and healing as everyone was just like, um, like during last year, I was like, I was part of the, I was very like into the whole black lives matter. I was very heavy into it, but then I stepped back and I was seeing it from every perspective. But that's the one thing I can say about me. It's like, I like to jump into everyone's shoes and see it from every perspective. If I get in a fight with a friend, if I get in a fight with my family, I see it from their perspective. I see where it is. And I that's where I am at. Now, I think more so I'm finding that peace and balance so I can be okay, that I can be content with myself and want to be able to move forward with everything and look for more, um, more of a positive path. So it's like, I move and I want to hear everyone's story. So yes, like you said, jump into a person's mind. Doesn't matter what they believe in and hear the craziest. I love doing that because I want to hear it. So I do, I will join them. I'll just like listen to their part just so I can hear what's going on. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, wow. It is so unique to see that a human that you are me, I am you. But we live these different lives and different thoughts. It's just the most unique thing. And I'm just like, wow. But then it's like we live in this society. And you're just like, oh, I hope one day you just realize too and have that patience because it's like one day, one day. So I think that's where I'm at this point. So I, I, I see where you're coming from. And it I kind of gives me a, a more of an insight into learning more now. Of course, yes, yes. And uh, I think there's a very beautiful point that destiny is making, uh, which is when the Buddha says to be a lamp unto thyself. And Advaita Vedanta makes the same claim, which Advaita Vedanta, it's important to remember that this is a phenomological approach. So that's kind of the name for it. Phenomological approach means argument based on immediate perception of now. So go with what is available to you in your immediate sense perception. So a lot of these arguments from Advaita Vedanta of that. And in Buddhism, the central practice is meditation. You meditate to have insights, but you are the ones to have the insights. So the question is really great, which is, what about physical reactions to scriptures or teachings? So when someone says something, what do you make of resonating with that? So when you feel like you're resonating with something, is that you just taking something on faith or is that something else? It's a great question, Destiny. Um, is that, am I, am I phrasing it right? Is that how you would phrase it? 
Uh, yeah. It's a really, really subtle question. I'm happy you asked it because what do we what do we make about resonating with something? So you'll notice, and we often talk about this in terms of reincarnation. When you hear something uh, that clicks, it sounds like you're remembering it. That you always knew it, and now you're just hearing it again, articulated perhaps in this life for the first time. But you always thought it, or somehow you feel like you're remembering it or picking it up off the shelf after having forgotten it. So what about this? Now, in this sense, when I say something that causes a corresponding resonance in you, or when you read something in a scripture, what's going on is um, you're picking up on an insight you've already had in a previous life. You know, that's, that's what we describe it as. Like, okay, it clicked, it resonated. Uh, that's one level of experience. Another one is inspiration. So it's okay to take things on faith if they inspire you to ultimately find out for yourself. But it's finding out for yourself that really matters. But that doesn't mean we, we ought to do away with faith because everything requires some level of faith. So see this, in the dualistic religions, you take on faith that God exists, like Krishna exists. So a good example of dualism is Vaishnava. And I'll interweave this here uh, because in Vedanta, there is a school known as Dvaita Vedanta. I know not that much about it, except to say that from Dvaita Vedanta, a dualistic Vedanta, there comes a character named Lord Chaitanya. So Chaitanya is a 15th century sage in Bengal who popularizes what is today known as the Hare Krishna movement. You know, so Chaitanya has a vision of Krishna in the forest. And he, of course, as a, as a monk, had his grounding in dualistic Vedanta. So when he sees this vision, um, he's not going to say, oh, I am Atman and this is just Maya. It's, a, it's an illusion. He's not going to say that. You know, Advaita will say that. He's not going to say, I am a part of the one and this vision is part of the one too. He's not going to say that. He's not a qualified non-dualist. Instead, he says, God is real. I see him right? He's a dualist. Now, notice this. Chaitanya had a first-hand experience of God. For him, he wasn't taking on faith that God exists. God actually appeared to him as Krishna, you know, and then he comes to the streets of Bengal and he starts to sing, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, because he's in love. He saw God, he's fallen in love, and what do you do when you're in love, right? You sing, you sing and dance like a fool. Uh, it's the basis of every Bollywood movie. You know, a character falls in love, he runs into the streets, he sings a song, and somehow everybody in Delhi knows the choreography and knows the words to his song. I don't know, but Chaitanya kind of does this Forrest Gump thing where he walks and everyone follows him, enamored by his song. So he preaches with no uncertain terms that faith is central. God exists. God is Krishna. God is a little blue boy. He is that. You must take that on faith. Um, and if you don't... Um, if you don't, uh, that's too bad. You're like ignorant or whatever. So if you read like the Sikh Shamrita, the Chaitanya Sikh Shamrita, it says a very beautiful thing at the beginning. It says, have faith for other spiritual traditions. Recognize that they are worshiping in their own way. But whenever you meet hedonist, whenever you meet Buddhist, whenever you meet non-dualist, do correct them out of compassion. <laughs> So it does have respect for other dualistic paths like Christianity or Islam, but it is a little against any Advaita Vedanta. They hate Brahman and this idea of a formless God, you know, because for them, that's heresy. That's blasphemy. You'll see it with Christianity. Christianity is a dualistic tradition that often sees Gnosticism as like 
blasphemous Satanism because it makes the claim that's kind of non-dual, you know? So, uh, Sri Chaitanya, or is often called Gauranga, the golden one, sang his dualistic song, it's Bhakti, it's called dualism the path of bhakti. This is the most faith-based path and it's typical of Vaishnavas. So a Vaishnava is a follower of Vishnu um, and they tend to just worship on faith. So they do puja believing that a god exists out there and the role of the individual or jiva is to be a perfect worshipper of uh, Bhagavan or God. So the jiva, jagrat, the world, sorry, uh, uh, and, and the god all exist. Jiva, Jagrat, and Bhagavan. This triangle, right? Jiva, Jagrat, Bhagavan. So visualize this triangle. A Vaishnava says it all exists. And they just pray. Now, notice this. The goal of Vaishnavism, as you will read in Chaitanya, is ultimately to realize God. So you have faith in God, but the goal is for you to see it eventually. Uh, And Ramakrishna himself used to have these visions of Kali and he would talk to Kali and he was very close with his God. And Vivekananda, his first question to Ramakrishna was, can you see God? And Vivekananda is like, you can see God as clearly as I'm seeing you now. You can talk to God as coherently as I'm talking to you now. And Vivekananda was very impressed by that. The idea that these people are saying believe in God, but so that you can see him yourself, see her yourself, see it yourself, see? So even in that orthodoxy, yeah, Holly, it's beautiful, right? Even in that orthodoxy, uh, and, and Vaishnavas, by the way, have a reputation of being rather bigoted, as you will see in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna does a lot of work to kind of get them to be less bigoted. Um, but you'll see very clearly that they are interested in realization. And Ramakrishna will say, one can see God through worship, one develops love eyes and a love body, and it's with the love eyes that one sees the object of the beloved. I don't know. So even Vaishnavism, that faith, asks for realization. Yes, Emily. Take care. Thank you for coming. Yes. Thank you for being with me. Now, look at mysticism. So mysticism like yoga, yoga or maybe like uh, Buddhism, the Buddhism and yoga both say don't take things on faith. So they're very against Vaishnavism, right? Yoga is like, I'm not going to believe in a god. i rather discover something for myself. So they just meditate. Buddhists are also like, look, I, I, I'm the Buddha. I had an insight. And in my insight, there is no self. There is no god apart from you. There is no god within you. Uh, here's meditation. Realize that for yourself. That's the only way out of suffering. But look at this. Even though the mystic doesn't want you to take an ideology on faith, they do want you to take a practice on faith. Do you notice that? They're saying, here is a method, and if you practice that method, you will realize this. Don't take my word for it, but do take my practice. You see, there's, there's still some faith involved, and the faith is in the Buddha's Ashtanga Marga. Hopefully, you can see the logic and reason of why you want to practice that. But hey, it takes years. You know, it takes years to meditate and get to the level where you have shamatha, a Buddhist term for tranquility of mind. And it's through through shamatha, the tranquil mind, that you can glimpse the inside. Uh, and if you're going to sit every day and meditate for like 45 minutes a day at least, um, you better have some faith in that system, you know. And in the Buddhist system, they say doubt. Doubt in the, the method is one of the obstacles. 
Isn't that interesting? It says, don't take anything on faith, but take the practice on faith. Now, look at Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is probably the most radical of all these schools. And it says, don't take even a practice on faith. Good night, Vanessa. Thank you for coming. Like, don't even, you don't even need to practice meditation, uh, yoga. Uh. More importantly, discernment. Philosophy. Discern what is real and what is unreal. Use your intellect, your buddhi. But what do you have to have faith in? Your reasoning. You have to have faith in your own reasoning process and you have to have faith that reasoning can arrive at truth. Ultimately, you do have to have faith in something, Destiny. The beauty of South Asian philosophy is it tempers skepticism with a kind of devotion. So in the West, they say... Uh, Teach me, like, in the West they say, uh, know it and then try it. In the in East they say, try it to know it. So our mentality is we're like kind of open-minded about practice. We're willing to just try stuff out. Whereas here in the West, you don't want to practice until you're convinced the practice is going to work. <laughs> so it's important to remember, you can't take skepticism too far, Destiny, um, because, oh yes, Vanessa, beautiful. Because uh, that means you, you, Cut yourself off from, from inspiration that can come from faith. And so the Buddha said, don't believe me, don't follow me, become me. But you still have to derive inspiration from his journey. You know, you still have to feel like you can do it. Uh, and you still have to believe that he did it. You have to believe that his method comes from his genuine insight. It would have been easy for you to do that at the time of the Buddha. Why? You would have met him. And you would have met how, uh, what it, you would have seen for yourself what an incredible individual he was. Simple, calm, but infinitely powerful. If you met the Christ, wow. Granted, if you don't miss him, most people would have missed the Christ. And, and he's, at, he's at the Whole Foods every day. You know, you walk by many masters, you don't notice that. Uh, but that's easier, right? Seeing is believing. So I hope that helps, Destiny. You are supposed to resonate with things and have physical reactions and things are supposed to inspire you and you should take things on faith. But ultimately, remember that they are means and not ends. That's what I'm advising against. You know, that's what this tradition cautions you against. Faith as an ends. No, faith is very good as a means. You know, we call it shrada. Yes, Destiny. Yes. Yes, and then comes Zen Buddhism, who says, kill the Buddha on the road. Uh, and, and you're right, Zen is Buddhism hardcore. It's Buddhism squared. It's like, if you thought the Hinayana, Vipassana people in Burma and Sri Lanka were hardcore, wait till you go to Japan and meet the Zen Buddhists. Yeah, they're the Marines. Uh, they're so hardcore that they'll give you so little teaching. They're so austere that they strip away. The Buddha is a very verbose gentleman. He talked a lot. And I often make this joke. If you go to a party and all the spiritual masters were there, they're all of the same realization, but the way they express it is different. So on the couch, Jesus would be playing guitar. He's that guy at the party that plays acoustic guitar, you know? Um, but the Buddha would be in the kitchen talking someone's ear off about... Uh, why nobody exists, you know? Buddha is a jnani. Jesus is a bhakta. So the Buddha was very verbose. He spoke a lot. Zen Buddhism strips that to its bare bones in order that you can experience insight for yourself. You know, yes. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. <laughs> yeah, Jesus would have done that. He was a man of the people, except when he was flipping tables. <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, in Zen Buddhism, Fabrizio is spot on. They are so careful, like along the lines of the Buddha, to make any concepts, to reify any notions. And they noticed the Buddha was becoming a bit of a deity. You know, there's that story where the Buddha puts the lotus on a river and he says, if the lotus floats upstream, I will be enlightened. Lo and behold, the lotus floats upstream. That's obviously a tantric metaphor, right? For going up the Shushumna Nadi or like moving or redirecting the flow of life force. It's a very tantric symbol. And if you were a tantrika, you'd recognize it. But people were starting to make the Buddha a celestial king. Not an ordinary person with an extraordinary question. I mean, that's what the Buddha was, right? Ordinary person, extraordinary question. Ordinary king in an ordinary kingdom with an extraordinary question. You are that too. Uh, But people were starting to put the Buddha on the pedestal. Look what they've done to Jesus. You know, how horrid. They've turned him into a deity. You know, when in fact he came to teach people how to be him. To show them how to walk in his path. Uh, but instead, he's been turned into some kind of unattainable goal. Um, how dehumanizing. You know, it's like when you meet someone um, and they're really beautiful or whatever, and you put them on a pedestal for it and deny them their humanity. It's like that. So that's why the Zen Buddhists are like, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill them. Yes, your physical emotions are completely valid. <laughs> Here's Wonderwall. <laughs> Yes, in the end of the path, Buddhism becomes coming Yes, exactly. All concepts. You know, the idea is to go beyond it all. And remember the term nirvana is a very important term. It means cessation. You know, it means the end. And, and in fact, it can even be described as blowing out. You know, <laughs> Holly emphasizes the point. The ending, the closing, the completion. So, yeah, it's true destiny. Different paths in South Asian philosophy meet people with different dispositions. Some people are really against worship and devotion. Why? Because they grew up in a Catholic like church and their parents forced them to go, yeah, Holly identifies. So, so for them, if you say Krishna exists, worship him, they'll be like, sing Hare Krishna. They'll be like, but they are ready for uh, meditation because it's austere, it's pure, it's reasonable. And so people come through that. Other people uh, are so craving something emotional and beautiful and, 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 and uh, sentimental that they gravitate towards the Hare Krishna thing. Notice this. Often, you come into this practice through one door. The door of the heart or the door of the mind. Often, you end up going to the other door. Eventually, sooner or later. So through the practice of Gyana, I've become incredibly devotional. You know, because now I realize uh, that this drunken monkey niche is the reflection of Brahman. But there is another reflection of Brahman. And that reflection of Brahman is in Maya. And that to niche is God. You know, uh, it is in everything. Um, and this niche is God as well. It's God worshiping God. Uh, but there's still joy in that worship. Now, I never could have appreciated that, appreciated that without uh, insight, non-dual insight. But that's turned me into a bhakta. You know, so now I sing and I pray and I bow and I put the flower and I light the incense and I look at people and I'm like, oh, you are Kali, you know, uh, and I fall in love with everyone because everyone looks like God now. Everyone's so beautiful. It's bhakta, 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 you know, and the other way is true. You come in as a Hare Krishna person, you start to crave a little more than that. Your mind hungers for insight. You know, so whether you come in through the path of mysticism, whether you come in through the path of the mind, whether you come in through the path of the heart, 
ultimately, when you become realized, you would have mastered all three, like Nachiketa in our story. Yes. All right, Destiny, beautiful. <laughs> yes. The Vaishnavas tend to push a lot of people away who aren't Vaishnavas, <laughs> as indeed does any dogmatist do. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It's very non-dual too, that idea of, of, of seeing oneness as opposed to difference. Yes, beautiful. All right, Douglas, uh, I were circling back to you. I know you had a second question. Yes, and after this, I need to go to bed. I am on the other side of the country, so it's actually past Whoops. 3 a.m. here. <laughs> but that's normal for me, so it's not too bad. It's just the end of the night for me. Um, first, I wanted to say it's uh, hard not to fall in love with Shiva with the way you talk about him. <laughs> it's clear <laughs> how much you know and how much you love him through the way that you talk about him. Uh, and it's so hard not to see that in the way that you speak about him. Um, but I wanted to ask what may be kind of a rudimentary question or like a more technical question about reincarnation. I know you said that uh, Advaita Vedanta sort of rejects the idea of reincarnation, but uh, obviously I understand like the idea, but I don't understand in, in certain practices that uh, genuinely believe in reincarnation, what their like belief rests on. And I was thinking about it and I was curious, like, uh, obviously if the idea of like enlightenment is that you get to the end of the cycle of like birth and living and death and you transcend that and you no longer reincarnate, um, I feel like in, in a rudimentary sense, it would stand to reason that there would then sort of be fewer and fewer people, right? Like they would transcend and they would leave and they would not reincarnate. Um, but then, you know, you see the population of the earth like is rapidly expanding and you have more and more people. And I was just curious about like what the explanation was behind that in different ideas of reincarnation. Like, are there a bunch of like little baby existences that are brand new that are being created or, uh, cause it seems like a lot of people talk about past lives and you speak about just even learning as almost an experience of like recognizing uh knowledge that you knew before in a previous life and if everybody is learning and everybody is recognizing knowledge that they saw in a previous life like has anybody not been reincarnated like what's the idea behind that the great question and in fact now you could probably appreciate the beauty of non-duality with regards to that question because it's not that there are more souls you know it's just that there are more reflections of the sun, but that doesn't mean that there are more suns, you know. Um, so it's, it's an interesting way that non-duality says you can't cut up the space, you can't cut up awareness into little parts. Um, and so you don't really have to deal with this question of are there more parts or less parts because ultimately it's all one. There always has been one, always will be one, is only one now. Uh, reincarnation seems to be happening, uh, but that's just in Maya. It's just an appearance within awareness. So non-duality does kind of reject reincarnation along with everything else the buddhist also rejects reincarnation as you it's not the soul there's no soul anatma uh, but they accept it as a scientific process so reincarnation as you will see and and i know your question was about schools that really do premise their philosophy on reincarnation and i can tell you this all indians all south asian philosophies except charvaka it's obvious to us that reincarnation is a thing you know it's just like duh it's like such an obvious scientific point and we'll tell you why. So what is science except an investigation into cause and effect? 
So I think a week ago we had a reincarnation discussion and we described it as we asked the question, what's the cause and what's the effect? We study the effect and try to figure out the cause. That's science, yes. Let's look at the data. One, all your learning feels like remembering. How do you account for the instinct of a little chick who is frightened of the eagle even before being socialized into that by the mother? You would say instinct, but instinct doesn't say anything. It's just a word. It's like a plug-in, like dark matter or dark energy. It doesn't describe anything. It's just like instinct. Okay, convenient. Tell me what that is. How did it get there? You know, and there's this question. I was like, oh, it's in the body, but this is a new body. Then you have cases of past life memory like Dorothy Eady. So Dorothy Eady was able to show British archaeologists um, where tombs were that they didn't know because she had past life memories as a priestess in the temple of Abydos. They've made lots of documentaries about Dorothy Eady. Uh, she goes by the name Om Seti, mother of Seti. Um, but yeah, so you have these, th these events, right? Reincarnation in terms of remembering, reincarnation in terms of instincts and animals, reincarnation in terms of past life memories, and most importantly, look at the Mozart case. Now, Mozart at age three is like an accomplished mu musician, right? You have two explanations of this. One, the rather unscientific statement, oh, it's just accident. How unscientific? The fact that effect is there, but you reject a cause. How about saying this? When is it when... How do you know when a person demonstrates skill? Usually when they've developed a certain level of muscle memory. So when piano comes naturally to you, it's because you've been playing piano for a long time. You know by your own observations of life that a person needs to invest a certain amount of time to create the neuroplasticity, if you want to use that term, or muscle memory to be able to do something. So when someone is born with a natural proclivity of something, because you have data that says proclivity comes from training, they must have done that training. Obviously, they couldn't have done it in that life since they're two, so they must have done it in a previous life. If you don't accept that, then you're left with random chance. Einstein's brain was just different. No, it wasn't. We took that brain out and found it that it was the exact same brain, <laughs> you know? So, uh, for a theory to be scientific, it must explain causes by positing the least number of entities with the maximum explan explanatory power, and reincarnation seems to do that quite nicely. Now, I can understand why a materialist would reject reincarnation because it presupposes life outside of the body. You know, so they're very scared to attribute to any kind of consciousness apart from the mind. Uh, and they discount past life memories, even the very verifiable ones, as just outliers, you know, whatever. Uh, so I understand the position of materialists, but we don't understand the position of Christians and Muslims with regards to non-duality. Clearly, all religious schools believe in an existence apart from the body. Every school believes in a soul, right? Um... Now, Rumi and Shams, the Sufis within the Muslim tradition, believe in reincarnation, and the Christian mystics believe in reincarnation. Jesus himself says a statement, I am Elijah, who was Eli, or something like that. Uh, uh, so, yeah. The idea, though, is if, if a soul can exist from, apart from the body, doesn't it also stand that it can come back into a body? If a soul leaves a body, what's to say it didn't enter it? You know, so as long as you believe that something exists apart from a body, reincarnation is pretty inevitable, especially given uh, the lack of accountability otherwise for some of these cases that we've mentioned. Now, here's how to explain, Douglas, the coming in of new souls. So you're thinking too humanistically. You're thinking that only humans have souls. Another mistake from the uh, uh, recent thought, because... 
there is a worldview that says animals and trees don't have souls or that there aren't other realms. But if you account for a soul being an individuated being, then you must also account for the various unseen realms between these buloka and every other realm. So the new souls coming in are either coming from the animal kingdom into the human kingdom or coming in from lower realms into higher realms or coming down from higher realms. I truly think Jimi Hendrix is a descended Gandharva. You know, so all these musical and artistic visionaries are just bringing down with them memories of worlds that they used to inhabit before they took a human incarnation. So you'll find this in the Yoga Sutra. It explains reincarnation as uh, the world is a school. Whether you're a god or a demon, you will eventually have to pass through the world to be liberated. So naturally, a great number of new souls are coming into the world uh, because universities tend to see an increase, as Fabricio probably knows, in uh, 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 people trying to come to the university as more people recognize the value of education. So truthfully, as we continue to go along this time period, this yuga, this age, you'll see more and more souls. Because more and more people are rushing to get into school so they can get out, graduate, and finish with the wheel of birth and death. That's how you account for the new souls. So try to avoid thinking just in terms of human-to-human souls. Add also the souls of animals, plants, and also uh, other dimensional beings. And that should probably solve the problem. That makes complete sense. I was not at all thinking of anything besides humans. You hit that right on the head. But I mean, uh, I I don't want to lead you down a long rabbit hole, but it just immediately brought up the question of like, oh my gosh, I mean, do animals reach enlightenment? Do trees reach enlightenment? Do you only reach enlightenment as a human? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a great question. According to Yoga Sutra, yes, you need a, uh, at least an anthropomorphic body. They seem to say something about the spine. Uh, and it has to do, well, you'll notice like evolution seems to be taking a trend where it favors more upright spines or whatever, if you will. Uh, I, I, I don't know this one too much. But I've definitely heard a lot of sadhus talking about the spine as privileged in spiritual practice. Why does Moses have his, like, stake or, or Jacob's ladder, you know, with the 33 bones in the spine? There's a lot to get into with regards to the spine and why the spine is special for spirituality. But um, the general idea is you need to sit upright. That's why we don't meditate lying down. Not to say you can't be enlightened lying down. It's just that you need to sit upright uh, to, to, what do you call it, um... Uh, make it more conducive. It engenders that state a little more. But there are people with broken spines that have become enlightened. So what we're really talking about is that, oh, and Marissa, I will answer that question in a little bit. It's a very good question. The state of an animal being higher than a human. Such a good question. I love that one. Uh, Yeah, why do we eat the corpses of other beings and mourn our own? (laughs) Yes, that's so funny. It's the humanistic uh, approach of some of that, you know, Uh, I think it happened in the 18th century. We started seeing nature as very mechanistic. Animals don't have souls. It's urbanization, you know. Anyway, not to digress. But the idea is that animals, they're more likely to become enlightened if they become humans. You know, so an animal spirit desires a human birth. And if a human, like, messes up, they go back to an animal life. But... Importantly, we don't just consider tigers tigers, by the way. There are different tigers. Some tigers are nice. Some are a little more mean. Have you noticed dogs have very clear personalities? Some dogs are assholes, dude. And some dogs, you're like, that dog is going straight to Buddhahood. I have four, so I understand that very well. (laughs) Right? 
So Indians don't just say like dog. They're not like, okay, dog is a kind of thing in the world and they're all the same. No, each dog has a soul. And that dog might take a human birth higher than yours because you might be here with a certain level of intellectual ability, right? When that dog takes a human birth, it's going to be super smart. I don't know, just based on its karmas, right? Uh, dogs are born with personalities, yes, because they have a jiva. Jiva means like... It's, it's a technical term, but it, chida basha refers to chid, pure consciousness, reflected in a subtle body. So if you think of my metaphor that we often, it's a common metaphor of the sun and the cups. The reflection of the sun in the cup is your individual personality, but you must ask, what's the water? What's reflecting the sun? You need a reflecting medium to have a reflection. The water is subtle body. So we say we live in a world of two kinds of things, inert matter and jivas. So like, uh, for instance, the sun might be shining on a clay lump and it might be shining on a cup of water. The image of the sun only forms in the cup of water, not on the clay. Though both receive heat, right? Uh, one receives just heat, the other receives heat and the image. So we say every being is like, the only difference between the being, yes, the dog is the Buddha, right? Uh, and as the Buddha is the sinner, the sinner is the Buddha. So every dog is already the Buddha. Um, but we say like in this world, there are some things that are just inert and there are some things that are capable of self-reflexing awareness, but to different degrees. So among humans, some people are more perceptive to the truth. Uh, and some people just are pretty dense among dogs. The same hierarchy applies, you see? So that's how we account for individual jivas. And each jiva is a reflection of the one chit, uh, one consciousness, you know. That's why we can accept reincarnation and deny it as a non-dualist. It's real for you as a jiva. Uh, Buddha says the same. It's real for you as a mind and body. But since you are not the mind and body and since you are not the jiva, ultimately it's not real. As usual, your response has so much beauty, Nesh. But I must go to sleep. So thank you for everything. This is the first time that I've gotten to see uh, everything. I started at the very beginning of your lecture and made it to here. So I'm, I'm really hopeful to come back next week because last week I came in at the very end of your lecture and only got the questions afterwards, which um, are just as enlightening. But I hope to see you next week. Good thank night. Thank you, Douglas. Good night to you. This little boy is so touched that his family would stay up with him you know, and celebrate this wonderful thing that he loves so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So let's take maybe one more question. Uh, Fabricio made the joke last week. Last week at about like 9.30 or 10, I said, we'll take this last question and then we'll close there. Three hours later, <laughs> and Fabricio is like, I remember three hours ago when you said this was the last question. Okay, no, for real though, for real. We'll take one last question and then we'll close it. Nish, very quickly. Yes, please, Fabrizio. Uh, I'm starting to think that I'll always get enlightenment in your satsangas because the sun always rises at the end of it. <laughs> the uh, symbol in the Ramakrishna order for Jnana Yoga, the dawning of insight is the rising sun. So Fabrizio, <laughs> the hermetic order of the golden dawn. <laughs> Fabrizio is in Rio. Yes, for me, it's a fact. Shankaracharya says, unless you can say yes, Holly is sending you some love. 
unless you could say, Shankaracharya says, unless you can say, as surely as you say, I am the mind and body, as surely as you say the sun is rising, you should be able to say with that level of confidence that you are the, the Satchit Ananda. You are Brahman. So I'm happy, Fabrizio, that you can appreciate it as a fact, statement of fact. You are not the mind, you are not the body. Yes. Okay. So we'll close with this final sentiment. At the end of Tantra, there is a, a, a special thing that happens, and that is the invasion of the Mughals. So there is a northern invasion, and suddenly state patronage for the arts and spirituality was lost. This is a very pivotal moment in India, where India comes under foreign rule for the first time, you know. And what that means is the temples are burnt down. Um, it's blasphemy to practice tantra in the open so tantra goes underground and it takes a form that is called hatha yoga so hatha yoga appears very late it appears in the like 12th century ad and the central texts are like the shiva samhita from the 12th century ad the shiva svarodaya um, james mallinson has good translations of these um yes <laughs> i like operating her as a Yes, exactly. Kali is pulling the strings. This is just an automaton. Uh, but yeah, James Mallison is a nice Shiva Samhita. The great text is the Hatha Yoga Pradipika by the Yogi Swatmarama. So I didn't want to close today's lecture on the spiritual her heritage of India before I talked at least a little bit about Hatha Yoga. So Swami Swatmarama, will we get the second season? <laughs> yes. Yeah, maybe next week we'll do a more complete part two. But just to wrap it up, since I cannot guarantee that, Fabricio, next week before class, I don't know, some different inspiration might strike and be like, okay, now we talk about karma or something. So I, I, I've noticed myself making a lot of empty promises sometimes. I'm like, we'll talk about this next week. And then next week, something becomes more pressing. <laughs> so I do want to just close very briefly with Hatha Yoga. And that will explain how yoga gets to us, to the West. Now, Hatha Yoga appears, and um, it's characterized by a figure known as Matsyendranath, who was born uh, a cripple to a fishing man's family, right? And fishing man, fisherman. And because they were unable to take care of an extra mouth, you know, poor fisherman, they throw the body in the water, just abortion, dumping the child, you know. People are arguing, first trimester, third trimester, they're like, no, 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 after it's born, you can throw it. <laughs> so they throw the child into the water. It's really pro-choice, right? Uh, and they throw the child into the water. A fish eats the child, and the child grows up in the belly of the fish, kind of like a, a Jonah and the whale. Not Noah and the whale, that's a band. And the fish goes to the bottom of the ocean where Shiva and Parvati are talking. So this is the link between Hatha and Tantra. It comes as the end of Tantra, right? Shiva is teaching Parvati Hatha Yoga, this little boy in the belly of the fish learns that, um, practices it, and becomes super strong. He busts out of the fish, comes to the earth, and initiates Gorakshanath. So Gorakshanath is seen as the founder of Hatha Yoga. Importantly, Hatha Yoga is a summary of Tantra. Tantra is super philo uh, philosophically rich, super sophisticated, and generally only for really intelligent people because it became so sophisticated by the time Hatha Yoga shows up. Hatha Yoga, in order to preserve the central teachings of Tantra and in order to correct for some of the uh, degeneration of Tantric practice into black magic, provides the bare minimums. 
It strips away the complex philosophy and maintains the practice. So it's a mystical path that uses these uh, techniques known as asana, postural yoga, pranayama, breath control, which was known before, and most importantly, shatkarmas. Shatkarmas are six things that you do to purify the body. It's like putting an anima, do you know, like a bamboo, they put a bamboo uh, shoot into the butt and then squat in the river to clear the colon. It's, I think, a caloric, a colonic or something. Then they swallow uh, a cloth in order to clean the stomach. They put a thread up their nose to clean the nose. And something some of you probably do is the neti pot. That's from Hatha Yoga. I was so surprised to find it at CVS. I'm like, how is it that this super obscure yogic practice is now $4.99 at CVS? I don't know. <laughs> Funny story. But Hatha Yoga is really about radical purification of the body. If I actually told you what the practice of Hatha Yoga is like, none of you would probably want to do it. It's pretty gross, you know? Uh, it's like squatting in the river and colonic, cleaning the nose. Now, why are they doing this? The idea is we live in something known as the Kali Yuga. Yuga means age. Kali kind of means darkness, the age of darkness, the age of ignorance. If you try to meditate, you won't be successful. The idea is that the body is no longer predisposed for meditation the way it might have been if you lived in nature. The truth of the matter is you no longer live in the Himalayas in a pastoral, sharing community, supporting poetic Marxist ideals. No, now you live in a capitalist city where every day your reality is defined by the braying of donkeys, by the harsh vibration of the marketplace and capital competitiveness. Now, in such an environment, meditation cannot thrive. It's such a toxic space to be in, dare I say it. Vibes are rotted. So what does the Hatha Yogi do? The Hatha Yogi practices to purify the body first. Ramakrishna actually warns against the obsession, the body obsession that can come from Hatha Yoga. So Hatha Yoga is a body-based practice. Purify the body. Super obscure. This is one thing you need to know. It's like an underground movement. There's like nine guys. They're called the Naths, the Nath school of yoga. And it's just nine skinny bearded dudes teaching this. Nobody cares. Okay, like Hatha Yoga is super obscure. Okay, in the 19th century, emerges a man named Krishnamacharya. He's a 16-year-old spiritual prodigy. And what does a 16-year-old get interested in? Probably the physical parts of his craft, right? So this young Brahmin boy is so interested in Hatha Yoga, but no one is teaching it. His name is Krishnamacharya. He eventually goes to Tibet. On his way to Tibet, because he's told there's a master there who can teach him. So on his way to Tibet, lo and behold, he's stopped by a British border guard. Now it's British colonial India, by the way. And the British border guard says, you have no passport. I can't let you pass. And Krishnamacharya is like, no, I gotta go. I'm trying to get to Tibet. I need to meet this guru. He's going to teach me Hatha Yoga. And the British officer says, Hatha Yoga? What's that? And Krishnamacharya, he's at a loss. Here is a Brahmin, a spiritual prodigy, faced with a Westerner who knows nothing of spirituality. What does he say? This is an important moment. This is the meaning of, of East and West with regards to yoga. So what does Krishnamacharya say? He says, oh, it's a bunch of poses that make you feel good. Isn't that interesting? He reduces it. He reduces it so the officer can understand, just so he could get through. Good night, Marissa. And the officer says, I have diabetes. I'm suffering right now. Can you teach me? And if your poses make me feel better, I'll let you pass without a passport. This was the trade. 
So Krishnamacharya teaches the poses. Lo and behold, the British officer feels better. Yoga is now used as a therapy system. It's the first time yoga is used outside of a spiritual context. You know, remember this, yoga was preparation for meditation. The goal was never to have a healthy body as an ends, but as a means for spiritual practice. But Krishnamacharya teaches it as an ends to this British officer. He goes, he learns it in Tibet, and his Tibetan guru says, now you go back to India and you teach it. The world needs this. So Krishnamacharya comes back to India. He teaches it on the street. Eventually, a Maharaja becomes interested, invites him to teach it in the palace. The Maharaja is obsessed with British gymnastics. And so he's obsessed with the physicality of Hatha Yoga because he's in love with the body and the movements of the body. Krishnamacharya, and by the way, the first group yoga class to ever be taught formally, is Krishnamacharya standing in front of a room full of British-trained Indian gymnasts. So what does he do? He adapts Hatha Yoga to British gymnastics. So make no mistake, the Hatha Yoga you are practicing today is mostly British gymnastics with slight uh, references to that obscure practice that most of you would not want to do because it's fairly demanding and rigorous and fairly obscure. So this is an important point to make. Krishnamacharya learns Hatha Yoga. He adapts it because he's teaching British gymnasts. He eventually gets two very important students. One is Patabi Joy, who wants to teach his uh, his uh, ADD son yoga. So he creates a very ADD-friendly yoga practice. Lots of poses, very dynamic, very like active. He calls this Ashtanga Yoga eight-limbed yoga, and he comes to the West and he teaches it as Ashtanga yoga. It later turns into Vinyasa yoga. Then another student, my personal favorite, BKS Iyengar, learns something from Krishnamacharya. He comes to America, uh, calls it Iyengar yoga. Now, Iyengar's story is he eventually met Yehudi Menuhin, a violin player. Yehudi Menuhin was playing with Ravi Shankar. So Yehudi was already a Westerner interested in Eastern music. He eventually meets Iyengar and he says Iyengar was the best yoga teacher, uh, music teacher he ever had because yoga improved his musicianship. Eventually, through Yehudi Menuhin, Iyengar teaches the prince, uh, uh, queen of Denmark or something uh, and teaches her how to do a headstand at age 80. Kind of crazy, right? So Iyengar gets into the West. Patabi gets into the West. There's a woman named Indra Devi who's called the first lady of yoga. She's a white woman who was into yoga way before any other white woman was into yoga. So she's kind of like the prototypical white yoga woman. Um, and she learned it with Krishnamacharya, came to the West, and because she looked like other women in California, attracted more people to the practice. So thanks to Indra Devi, BKS Iyengar, and Patabi Joy, the practice of physical yoga became exported to the West. Now here's, here's what I wanted to leave you with. It wasn't taken. You know, I want you to remember that yoga was a corroboration. It was a collaboration. We couldn't have developed it without British gymnastics. And um, we came to give it. So Patabi Joy, Iyengar, Indra Devi, like they were exporting yoga to the West. Even before yoga arrived in like the, the 30s and, and, and the 50s and the 60s is when it really started to take off and there was the, the 80s yoga boom and there was Bikram and all, all sorts of crazy stuff and now here we are with yoga studios all over the world. Um, before that yoga boom, way before Krishnamacharya, there were a group of sages, Ramakrishna, Ananda Mahima, 
Maharaji or Neem Karoli uh, Baba, um, Nisargadatta Maharaj and Ramana Maharshi. So I just want to tell you, these are the greatest saints of India. They emerged towards the end of the 19th century and their message eventually permeated into the 60s. So the reason yoga is here now is because of a variety of factors. One, it involves Krishnamacharya being interested in Hatha yoga and learning how to adapt it to the British interest in physical well-being. It happens because of teachers like Ramana Maharshi and Ramakrishna, whose ideas are so powerful that the 60s hippie revolution in America eventually allows for those ideas to seep through in the form of Ram Das and Alan Watts. Um, eventually, teachers like Yogi Bhajan, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi appear in the West. Now, I want to leave you with this. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and, and we already talked about how Vivekananda and Yogananda came before all of that, but when Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came, he taught transcendental meditation for productivity. He taught people how to be more productive, how to be um, uh, more happy, how to have better sex. I don't know. He was teaching people how to use meditation for material ends. When he went home to India, he was criticized by his fellow monastics. And they said to him, you are a Shaiva Tantrika practitioner. You are enlightened in the highest philosophies of India. Why do you debase that philosophy and teach people these parlor tricks? And he says something so beautiful. I give them only what they want. So eventually they might come to want what I want to give them. Do you realize that? Maybe for you, yoga is healing. Fine. Heal the body. Heal the mind. So that you can realize we are not here to teach you to heal. We are here to teach you to be what you always were. And I will leave you with this one thought. This practice lives on in you. So if you look at the yoga studios, it doesn't matter how watered down it is, you know, how material it is, uh, how base it is. Don't get the feeling that you do not belong in this culture or this tradition. I'm sure you've heard some of the language of like open practice and closed practice, except for Tantra and some initiatory traditions. This is the most radically open practice you can imagine. The slogan of South Asian philosophy, and I'll leave you with this, is unity in diversity. Let's not gloss over the diversity. Let's appreciate how every school of philosophy we've spoken about today is distinct, has a unique metaphysical worldview, but they're all just many paths to the one sugar mountain. Each of them is a grain of sugar, and each of them are equally sweet as any other. Uh, but ultimately, let the trail of sugar crumbs reach you reach to take you back to the mountain. You are not uh, uh, coming into this tradition as people in the West. You are not here as guests. You are here as brothers and sisters. This is your house too. So please remember that when Ramana, uh, Ramakrishna sent Vivekananda to the West, when Sri Yukteswar sent Yogananda to the West, we didn't come here because we were dragged by colonization and thrown in front of white people and forced to teach. No, we came here to teach out of the understanding that there are no white problems, there are no brown problems, there are just human problems, and there are just human solutions. So right now, India is going through a hard time, um, and it's not the first, and it certainly won't be the last. You know, as the Buddha ta taught us, suffering is all pervasive. Um, but as the birthplace of spirituality, um, it is with such joy and such delight that we 
embrace one another as brothers and sisters and family and help one another. The goal was always to bring spirituality to the West so that we could learn the Western penchant for practical material existence in the East. Both of us have half the picture and we complete each other. So before you abandon Western ideals, remember there's value to that too. You know, there's value to learning how to structure society, have trains and electricity that works, have social empowerment for women and children and, 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 and uh, hygiene. Bring that to India. And in exchange, please accept this teaching um, of what life is for, you know? So that's our exchange. Teach us how to live so we don't die in the slums. And in exchange, we'll teach you how to make this life meaningful. The spiritual gems in India are buried in heaps of conservatism, uh, social conservatism. Whereas in the West, uh, socially we're very liberal, but religiously we're very stunted. So let's trade. You know, and ultimately that's how brothers and sisters come together. So it's with such joy that I will close today's discussion. We managed to do six hours as opposed to the five that I wanted. So let's close with the oldest mantra in the tradition. And it's the Gayatri Mantra from the Rig Veda, very old mantra. And we will close with this mantra and it basically means, may the radiant sunlight of wisdom illumine each and every thought that we have. That is, may we remain enmeshed in the loftiest ideals of humankind. May we aspire to those ideals and realize we are that now. Om Bhur Bhuvasvaha Tatsavitorvaha